reported that BP and the Coast Guard response teams had deployed specially equipped boats to skim oil left from the explosion off the water's surface. Fixed-wing aircraft were scheduled to begin dropping chemical dispersants to break up the oil into smaller droplets, and the Coast Guard was working with BP and the impacted states to pre-position booms, floating barriers of sponge and plastic, to help prevent the possibility of oil spreading to the shore. What's BP saying about liability? I asked, turning to Salazar. Balding and bespectacled, with a sunny disposition and a fondness for cowboy hats and bolo ties, Ken had been elected to the Senate in 2004, the same year I was. He'd become a trusted colleague and was an ideal choice for Interior Secretary, having led the Department of Natural Resources in Colorado before becoming the state's first Hispanic Attorney General. He'd grown up in the stunningly beautiful ranch lands of south-central Colorado's San Luis Valley, where branches of his family had lived continuously since the 1850s, and was intimately familiar with the dueling impulses to exploit and to conserve the federal lands that had shaped so much of that region's history. I heard from them today, Mr. President, Salazar said. BP's confirmed that they'll pay any damages that aren't covered by the Oil Spill Liability Trust Fund. This was good news, I thought. While individual oil companies were responsible for the entire cost of cleaning up their spills, Congress had put a paltry $75 million cap on their obligation to compensate third parties like fishermen or coastal businesses for damages. Instead, oil companies were required to pay into a joint trust fund that would cover any excess damages up to $1 billion. But Carroll had already alerted us that if the oil slick wasn't sufficiently contained, that might not be enough. By securing an early pledge from BP to make up any shortfall, we could at least provide affected states with some assurance that their residents would have their losses covered. At the end of the meeting, I asked the team to keep me informed of new developments and reminded them to use whatever federal resources we had at our disposal to mitigate the economic and environmental impacts. Walking everyone out of the Oval, I noticed Carol looked pensive. I asked her to hang back for a minute so I could speak to her alone. Is there something we didn't cover? I asked. Not really, Carol said. I was just thinking we need to prepare for the worst. Meaning? I asked. Carol shrugged. BP's claiming that oil isn't leaking out of the well, and if we're lucky, they'll turn out to be right. But we're talking about a pipe that travels a mile down to a well on the bottom of the ocean floor, so I doubt anyone knows for sure. What if they're wrong, I asked. What if there is a leak beneath the surface? If they can't seal it quickly, she said then we've got a nightmare on our hands. It took less than two days to confirm Carol's fears. The Macondo well was discharging oil below the surface, and not just a trickle. At first, BP engineers identified the leak as coming from a break in the pipe that had occurred when the rig sank, discharging an estimated 1,000 barrels of oil into the Gulf each day. By April 28th, underwater cameras had discovered two more leaks and those estimates had risen to 5,000 barrels a day. At the surface, the oil slick had grown to roughly 600 square miles and was close to reaching the Louisiana coast, poisoning fish, dolphins, and sea turtles, and threatening long-term damage to the marshes, estuaries, and inlets that were home to birds and other wildlife. Even more alarming was the fact that BP didn't seem to know how long it would take to successfully plug the well. The company insisted that there were several viable options, 
including the use of remotely operated vehicles to unjam the blowout preventer, stuffing the hole with rubber or other materials, placing a containment dome above the well to funnel oil up to the surface so it could be collected, or drilling intersecting relief wells so that cement could be pumped in to block the flow of oil. According to our experts, however, the first three of those options weren't guaranteed to work, while the fourth might, quote, take several months. At the rate we believed oil was gushing out, that could add up to a 19 million gallon spill, about 70% more than had been released during Exxon Valdez. Suddenly, we faced the prospect of the worst environmental disaster in U.S. history. We assigned Thad Allen to the job of National Incident Commander, imposed a 30-day moratorium on new offshore drilling, as well as a fishing ban in the contaminated area, and declared the Macondo disaster a spill of national significance. The federal government coordinated a response across many entities, including engaging with citizen volunteers. Soon, more than 2,000 people were working around the clock to contain the spill, operating an armada that comprised 75 vessels, including tugboats, barges, and skimmers, plus dozens of aircraft and 275,000 feet of flotation booms. I sent Napolitano, Salazar, and Lisa Jackson of the EPA to the Gulf to monitor the work, and I told Valerie I wanted her talking to the governors of Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, and Florida, all five of whom happened to be Republican, every single day to find out what more we could do to help. Tell them if they've got a problem, I want to hear from them directly, I said to Valerie. I want us to be so goddamn responsive, they get sick of hearing from us. It's fair to say, then, that by May 2nd, when I visited a Coast Guard station in Venice, Louisiana, to get a first-hand look at the cleanup operations, we were throwing everything we had at the disaster. As with most presidential trips, the point was not so much to gather new information, but to communicate concern and resolve. After delivering a press statement in the driving rain outside the station, I spoke with a group of fishermen who told me they'd recently been hired by BP to lay down booms across the path of the spill and were understandably worried about the spill's long-term impact on their livelihoods. I also spent a good deal of time that day with Bobby Jindal, the former congressman and health policy expert in the Bush administration, who had leveraged his sharp-edged conservatism to become the nation's first Indian-American governor. Smart, ambitious, and in his late 30s, Jindal was viewed as an up-and-comer within his party and had been selected to deliver the televised GOP response to my first joint session address. But the Deepwater incident, which threatened to shut down vital Louisiana industries like commercial seafood and tourism, put him in an awkward spot. Like most GOP politicians, he was a champion of big oil and an equally fervent opponent of strengthening environmental regulations. Scrambling to get ahead of any shift in public sentiment, Jindal spent most of his time pitching me a plan to rapidly erect a barrier island, a berm, along a portion of the Louisiana coast. This, he insisted, would help keep the impending oil slick at bay. We've already got the contractors lined up to do the job, he said. His tone was confident, verging on cocky. Those dark eyes betrayed a wariness, almost pain, even when he smiled. We just need your help to get the Army Corps engineers to approve it and BP to pay for it. In fact, I'd already heard about the berm idea. Preliminary assessments from our experts suggested that it was impractical, expensive, and potentially counterproductive. I suspected that Jindal knew as much. The proposal was mainly a political play, 
a way for him to look proactive while avoiding the broader questions the spill raised about the risks of deepwater drilling. Regardless, given the scope of the crisis, I didn't want to be seen as dismissing any idea out of hand, and I assured the governor that the Army Corps of Engineers would give his berm plan a quick and thorough evaluation. With the weather too foul to fly Marine One, we spent much of the day driving. Sitting in the back seat of the SUV, I surveyed the patchy membrane of vegetation, mud, silt, and marsh that spread unevenly on either side of the Mississippi River and into the Gulf. For centuries, humans had fought to bend this primordial landscape to their will, just as Jindal was now proposing to do with his berm. Building dikes, dams, levees, channels, sluices, ports, bridges, roads, and highways in the service of commerce and expansion, and rebuilding time and again after hurricanes and floods, undaunted by the implacable tides. There was a certain nobility in such stubbornness, I thought, part of the can-do spirit that had built America. Yet, when it came to the ocean and the mighty river that emptied into it, the victories of engineering turned out to be fleeting, the prospect of control illusory. Louisiana was losing more than 10,000 acres of land every year as climate change raised sea levels and made hurricanes in the Gulf more fierce. The constant dredging, banking, and rerouting of the Mississippi to ease passage for ships and cargo meant that less sediment washed down from upriver to restore the land that was lost. The very activity that made the region a commercial hub and allowed the oil industry to thrive was now hastening the sea's steady advance. Looking out the rain-streaked window, I wondered how long the road I was traveling would last, with its gas stations and convenience stores, before it too was swallowed by the waves. A president has no choice but to continually multitask. You're like the guy in the circus, Michelle told me once, just spinning plates at the end of a stick. Al-Qaeda didn't suspend its operations because of a financial crisis. A devastating earthquake in Haiti didn't time itself to avoid relief efforts overlapping with a long-planned 47-nation nuclear security summit I was chairing. And so, as stressed out as I was about the deepwater disaster, I tried not to let it consume me. In the weeks following my Louisiana visit, I carefully tracked our response, relying on detailed daily briefings while also attending to the 10 or 12 other pressing matters that demanded my attention. I visited a manufacturing plant in Buffalo to discuss the economic recovery and continue to work with a bipartisan fiscal commission that was looking for ways to stabilize the long-term U.S. deficit. There were calls to Merkel on Greece and Medvedev on the ratification of START. A formal state visit from President Felipe Calderon of Mexico focused on border cooperation and a working lunch with President Karzai of Afghanistan. Along with the usual terrorist threat briefings, strategy sessions with my economic team, and a slew of ceremonial duties, I interviewed candidates for a Supreme Court seat that had opened up after Justice John Paul Stevens announced his retirement in early April. I settled on brilliant young Solicitor General and former Harvard Law School Dean Elena Kagan, who, like Justice Sotomayor, would emerge from the Senate hearings relatively unscathed and be confirmed a few months later. But no matter how many other plates I had spinning in the air, at the end of each day, my mind would be pulled back to the deep water spill. If I squinted hard, I could tell myself there had been some progress. BP had successfully shut off the smallest of the three underwater leaks, using robots to fit a valve on the ruptured pipe. Admiral Allen had brought a semblance of order to the cleanup efforts on the ocean surface, 
which by mid-May had grown to nearly a thousand vessels and an army of close to 20,000 BP workers, members of the Coast Guard and National Guard, shrimpers, fishermen, and volunteers. Valerie did such an outstanding job of staying close to the five governors whose states were threatened by the spill that, despite their party affiliations, most had only good things to say about the federal response. Me and Bob Riley have become best buddies, she said with a smile, referring to the Republican governor of Alabama. The lone exception was Governor Jindal. Valerie reported that on several occasions, he'd make a request for White House help on some issue, only to put out a press release ten minutes later blasting us for ignoring Louisiana. Still, the oil kept coming. BP's robots couldn't close the jammed blowout preventer, leaving the two main leaks unsealed. The company's first effort to place a containment dome over the leaks also failed, due to issues caused by frigid temperatures so far down. It became increasingly obvious that BP's team didn't know exactly how to proceed, and that none of the federal agencies that typically handled spills did either. We're used to dealing with an oil slick from a tanker accident or a busted pipe, Admiral Allen explained to me. Trying to seal a live oil well a mile under the surface, this is more like a space mission. It was an apt analogy, and the reason I decided to turn to Steve Chu for help. Despite the title, the Secretary of Energy doesn't normally have jurisdiction over oil drilling. But we figured it couldn't hurt to have a Nobel Prize-winning physicist involved in our response. And after discovering the underwater leaks, we asked Chu to brief the team on the science involved in shutting them down. Despite Carol's warning to be succinct, his Situation Room presentation ran about twice as long as he'd been allotted and involved 30 slides. Most of the room was lost after the fifth one. Rather than waste all that brain power on us, I instructed him to head down to Houston, where BP's response team was headquartered, to work with the engineers there on a possible fix. Meanwhile, public attitudes about the disaster began to shift. Throughout the first few weeks of the spill, BP bore the brunt of the blame. Not only did Americans tend to be skeptical of oil companies, but BP's CEO, Tony Hayward, was a walking PR disaster, stating in the media that the spill involved a, quote, relatively tiny amount of oil in a very big ocean, arguing in another interview that no one wanted to see the hole plugged more than him because, quote, I'd like my life back, and generally living up to every stereotype of the arrogant, out-of-touch multinational executive. His obtuseness reminded me that BP, previously known as British Petroleum, it started off as the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, the same company whose unwillingness to split royalties with Iran's government in the 1950s had led to the coup that ultimately resulted in that country's Islamic revolution. As the crisis passed the 30-day mark, though, attention increasingly turned to my administration's possible culpability for the mess. In particular, news stories and congressional hearings fastened on a series of exemptions from standard safety and environmental guidelines that BP had received from the Minerals Management Service, or MMS, the sub-agency within the Interior Department responsible for granting leases, collecting royalties, and overseeing offshore drilling operations in federal waters. There hadn't been anything unusual about the exemptions MMS had granted to BP on the Macondo Well. When it came to managing the risks of deepwater drilling, the agency's officials routinely ignored their staff scientists and engineers and deferred to industry experts they believed to be better versed in the latest processes and technologies. Of course, that was exactly the problem. 
before I had taken office, we'd heard about MMS's coziness with the oil companies and its regulatory shortcomings, including a well-publicized scandal toward the end of the Bush administration involving kickbacks, drugs, and sexual favors. And we'd promised to reform the place. And in fact, as soon as he'd taken over the Interior Department, Ken Salazar had cleaned up some of the more egregious problems. What he hadn't had the time or resources to do was to fundamentally reorganize MMS so that it had the capacity to tightly regulate such a well-heeled and technologically complex industry. I couldn't really fault Salazar for this. Changing practices and culture inside government agencies was hard and rarely completed in a matter of months. We were confronting similar issues at agencies charged with regulating the financial system, where overstretched and underpaid regulators could barely keep up with the sophisticated, constantly evolving operations of massive international financial institutions. But that didn't excuse the fact that no one on my team had warned me that MMS still had such serious problems before recommending that I endorse Interior's plan to open up additional areas to exploratory drilling. And anyway, in the middle of a crisis, no one wanted to hear about the need to put more money into federal agencies. Nor did they want to hear about how raising civil servant salaries would help those agencies improve management and compete with the private sector to attract top-flight technical talent. Folks just wanted to know who had let BP drill a hole three and a half miles below the ocean's surface without knowing how to plug it. And the bottom line was, it had happened on our watch. While questions about MMS kept reporters busy, what really turned public attitudes was BP's late May decision, which I supported in the interest of transparency, to start releasing live, real-time video feeds of the leaks coming from the company's underwater cameras. The early images of the burning Deepwater Horizon rig had received wide coverage, but footage of the spill itself, consisting mostly of overhead shots, faint streaks of crimson against the blue-green ocean, hadn't fully captured the potential devastation. Even when oil-sheened waves and blobs of oil known as tar balls started reaching the outer shores of Louisiana and Alabama, camera crews didn't have a lot of arresting visuals to work with, particularly since, after decades of offshore drilling, the waters of the Gulf weren't all that pristine to begin with. The underwater video feed changed all this. Suddenly, people around the world could see the oil pulsing in thick columns from the surrounding wreckage. Sometimes it appeared sulfurous yellow, sometimes brown or black, depending on the lighting from the camera. The roiling plumes looked forceful, menacing, like emanations from hell. Cable news networks began broadcasting the footage in a corner of the screen around the clock, along with a digital timer reminding viewers of the number of days, minutes, and seconds since the spill had begun. The videos seemed to confirm calculations that our own analysts had made independent of BP. The leaks were likely pumping out anywhere between four and ten times the original estimate of 5,000 barrels of oil daily. But more so than the frightening numbers, the images of the underwater gushers, along with a sudden increase in B-roll footage of pelicans coated in oil, made the crisis real in people's minds. Folks who hadn't been paying much attention to the spill suddenly wanted to know why we weren't doing something to stop it. In the dentist's office, Salazar found himself staring at the video feed on a ceiling-mounted TV as he underwent an emergency root canal. Republicans called the spill Obama's Katrina, and soon we were under fire from Democrats as well. 
most notably former Clinton aide and longtime Louisianan James Carville, who, appearing on Good Morning America, issued a blistering, high-volume attack on our response, directing his criticism specifically at me. Man, you got to get down here and take control of this. Put somebody in charge of this thing and get this moving. A nine-year-old boy in a wheelchair, who was visiting the Oval Office through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, warned me that if I didn't get the leak filled soon, I was, quote, going to have a lot of political problems. Even Sasha came into my bathroom one morning while I was shaving to ask, Did you plug the hole yet, Daddy? In my own mind, those dark cyclones of oil came to symbolize the string of constant crises we were going through. More than that, they felt alive somehow a malevolent presence actively taunting me. To that point in my presidency, I'd maintained a fundamental confidence that no matter how bad things got, whether with the banks, the auto companies, Greece, or Afghanistan, I could always come up with a solution through sound process and smart choices. But these leaks seemed to defy a timely solution, no matter how hard I pushed BP or my team, and no matter how many meetings I held in the sit-room pouring over data and diagrams as intently as I did in any war planning session. With that feeling of temporary helplessness, a certain bitterness began creeping into my voice, a bitterness I recognized as a companion to self-doubt. What does he think I'm supposed to do? I growled at Rom after hearing of Carville's broadside. Put on my fucking Aquaman gear and swim down there myself with a wrench? The chorus of criticism culminated in a May 27th White House press conference that had me fielding tough questions on the oil spill for about an hour. I methodically listed everything we'd done since the deep water had exploded, and I described the technical intricacies of the various strategies being employed to cap the well. I acknowledged problems with MMS, as well as my own excessive confidence in the ability of companies like BP to safeguard against risk. I announced the formation of a national commission to review the disaster and figure out how such accidents could be prevented in the future. And I re-emphasized the need for a long-term response that would make America less reliant on dirty fossil fuels. Reading the transcript now, a decade later, I'm struck by how calm and cogent I sound. Maybe I'm surprised because the transcript doesn't register what I remember feeling at the time or come close to capturing what I really wanted to say before the assembled White House press corps. That MMS wasn't fully equipped to do its job, in large part because for the past 30 years, a big chunk of American voters had bought into the Republican idea that government was the problem, and the business always knew better, and had elected leaders who made it their mission to gut environmental regulations, starve agency budgets, denigrate civil servants, and allow industrial polluters to do whatever the hell they wanted to do. That the government didn't have better technology than BP did to quickly plug the hole because it would be expensive to have such technology on hand. And we Americans didn't like paying higher taxes, especially when it was to prepare for problems that hadn't happened yet. That it was hard to take seriously any criticism from a character like Bobby Jindal, who'd done Big Oil's bidding throughout his career and would go on to support an oil industry lawsuit trying to get a federal court to lift our temporary drilling moratorium, and that if he and other Gulf-elected officials were truly concerned about the well-being of their constituents, they'd be urging their party to stop denying the effects of climate change, since it was precisely the people of the Gulf who were the most likely to lose homes or jobs as a result of rising global temperatures, and that the only way to truly guarantee that we didn't have another catastrophic oil spill in the future 
was to stop drilling entirely. But that wasn't going to happen because at the end of the day, we Americans loved our cheap gas and big cars more than we cared about the environment, except when a complete disaster was staring us in the face. And in the absence of such a disaster, the media rarely covered efforts to shift America off fossil fuels or pass climate legislation, since actually educating the public on long-term energy policy would be boring and bad for ratings. And the one thing I could be certain of was that for all the outrage being expressed at the moment about wetlands and sea turtles and pelicans, what the majority of us were really interested in was having the problem go away. For me to clean up yet one more mess decades in the making with some quick and easy fix so that we could all go back to our carbon-spewing, energy-wasting ways without having to feel guilty about it. I didn't say any of that. Instead, I somberly took responsibility and said it was my job to, quote, get this fixed. Afterward, I scolded my press team, suggesting that if they'd done better work telling the story of everything we were doing to clean up the spill, I wouldn't have had to tap dance for an hour while getting the crap kicked out of me. My press folks looked wounded. Sitting alone in the treaty room later that night, I felt bad about what I had said, knowing I'd misdirected my anger and frustration. It was those damn plumes of oil that I really wanted to curse at. For the next six weeks, the spill continued to dominate the news. As efforts to kill the well kept coming up short, we compensated by making more of a show of my personal involvement. I made two more trips to Louisiana, as well as visits to Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. Working with Admiral Allen, who'd agreed to delay his retirement until the crisis was over, we found ways to meet every governor's request, including a scaled-down plan for Jindal's berm. Salazar had signed an order that effectively dissolved MMS, dividing responsibilities for energy development, safety regulation, and revenue collection between three new independent agencies. I announced the formation of a bipartisan commission tasked with recommending ways to prevent future offshore drilling disasters. I held a full cabinet meeting on the crisis and had a heart-wrenching visit with the families of the 11 deepwater workers killed in the explosion. I even delivered an Oval Office address on the spill, the first such address of my presidency. The format, with me sitting behind the resolute desk, felt stilted, of another era, and by all accounts I wasn't very good. The flood of appearances and announcements had the intended effect of muting, if not fully eliminating, the bad stories in the press but it was the result of two earlier decisions I'd made that ultimately got us through the crisis. The first involved making sure that BP followed through on its earlier promise to compensate third parties harmed by the spill. Typically, the process for filing claims required victims to jump through a bunch of bureaucratic hoops or even hire a lawyer. Resolving those claims could take years by which time a small tour boat operator or restaurant owner might have already lost his or her business. We thought the victims in this case deserved more immediate relief. We also figured now was the time for maximum leverage. BP's stock was tanking. Its global image was being pummeled. The Justice Department was investigating the company for possible criminal negligence. And the federal drilling moratorium we'd imposed was creating huge uncertainty for shareholders. Can I squeeze the hell out of them? Rom asked. Please do, I said. Rom went to work badgering, cajoling, and threatening as only he could. And by the time I sat across the table from Tony Hayward and BP's chairman, 
Carl Henrichs Vonberg for a June 16th meeting in the Roosevelt Room. They were ready to wave the white flag. Hayward, who said little in the meeting, would announce his departure from the company a few weeks later. Not only did BP agree to put $20 billion into a response fund to compensate victims of the spill, but we arranged for the money to be placed in escrow and administered independently by Ken Feinberg, the same lawyer who'd managed the fund for 9-11 victims and reviewed executive compensation plans for banks receiving TARP money. The fund didn't solve the environmental disaster, but it fulfilled my promise that all the fishermen, shrimpers, charter companies, and others who were racking up losses due to the crisis would get their due. The second good decision I'd made was putting Steve Chu on the job. My energy secretary had been underwhelmed by his initial interactions with BP engineers. They don't know what they're dealing with, Chu said, and he was soon splitting his time between Houston and D.C., telling Thad Allen that BP, quote, shouldn't do anything unless they clear it with me. In no time, he had recruited a team of independent geophysicists and hydrologists to work with him on the problem. He convinced BP to use gamma-ray imaging to help diagnose what had gone wrong with the blowout preventer and to install pressure gauges to get real data on what was happening at the base of the well. Chu and his team also hammered home the point that any effort to cap it should be preceded by a thorough consideration of how that work risked triggering a cascade of uncontrollable underground leaks and an even worse catastrophe. Chu and the BP engineers eventually agreed that the best solution was to fit a second, smaller blowout preventer, called a capping stack, on top of the one that had failed, using a series of sequential valves to shut down the leak. But after looking over BP's initial design and getting government scientists and engineers at Los Alamos National Laboratory and elsewhere to run a series of simulations on their supercomputers, Chu determined that it was inadequate and the group quickly went to work on crafting a modified version. Axe stopped into the Oval one day and told me he'd just run into Chu at a nearby deli, sitting with his food barely touched, drawing various models of capping stacks on his napkin. He started trying to explain how the contraption worked, Axe said, and I told him I was having enough trouble figuring out what I should order for lunch. The final capping stack weighed 75 tons, stood 30 feet tall, and, because of Chu's insistence, included multiple pressure gauges that would give us crucial data revealing its efficacy. Within weeks, the stack was in place above the well and ready to be tested. On July 15th, BP engineers shut down the stack's valves. The cap held. For the first time in 87 days, oil wasn't leaking from the Macondo well. Consistent with the luck we'd been having, a tropical storm threatened to pass through the Macondo site the following week. Chu, Thad Allen, and BP's managing director, Bob Dudley, had to quickly decide whether or not to reopen the valves before the vessels involved in the containment efforts and the BP staff members monitoring the integrity of the capping stack had to clear out of the storm path. If their calculations on subsurface pressure proved wrong, there was a risk that the stack wouldn't hold and, worse, could cause the ocean floor to fracture triggering even more problematic leaks. Loosening the valves, of course, meant we'd restart the flow of oil into the Gulf, which was something nobody wanted. After running a final set of numbers, Chu agreed that it was worth the gamble and we should keep the valves closed as the storm ripped through. Once again, the cap held. There were no celebrations in the White House when we heard the news, 
just enormous relief. It would take a couple more months and a series of additional procedures before BP declared the Macondo well permanently sealed, and cleanup efforts would continue through the end of the summer. The fishing ban was gradually lifted, and seafood from the Gulf was certified as safe. Beaches were reopened, and in August I took the family to Panama City Beach, Florida, for a two-day holiday to boost the region's tourism industry. A picture from that trip, taken by Pete Souza and later released by the White House, shows me and Sasha splashing in the water, a signal to Americans that it was safe to swim in the Gulf. Malia is missing from the photo because she was away at summer camp. Michelle is missing because, as she explained to me shortly after I was elected, quote, one of my main goals as First Lady is to never be photographed in a bathing suit. In many ways, we had dodged the worst-case scenario, and in the months that followed, even critics like James Carville would acknowledge that our response had been more effective than we'd been given credit for. The Gulf's shorelines and beaches suffered less visible damage than expected, and just a year after the accident, the region would enjoy its biggest tourism season ever. We formed a Gulf Coastline Restoration Project, funded by additional penalties levied against BP allowing federal, state, and local authorities to start reversing some of the environmental degradation that had been taking place long before the explosion. With some nudging from federal courts, BP ultimately paid settlements in excess of what was in the $20 billion response fund. And although the preliminary report of the Oil Spill Commission I had set up would rightly criticize MMS oversight of BP's activities in the Macondo field, as well as our failure to accurately assess the enormity of the leaks immediately after the explosion, by the fall, both the press and the public had largely moved on. Still, I continued to be haunted by the images of those plumes of oil rushing out of a cracked earth and into the sea's ghostly depths. Experts inside the administration told me it would take years to understand the true extent of the environmental damage resulting from the deepwater spill. The best estimates concluded that the Macondo well had released at least 4 million barrels of oil into open waters, with at least two-thirds of that amount having been captured, burned off, or otherwise dispersed. Where the rest of the oil ended up, what gruesome toll it took on wildlife, how much oil would eventually settle back onto the ocean floor, and what long-term effect that might have on the entire Gulf ecosystem, it would be years before we'd have the full picture. What wasn't a mystery? was the spill's political impact. With the crisis behind us and the midterm elections now on the horizon, we felt ready to project a cautious optimism to the public, to argue that the country was finally turning a corner and to highlight all the work my administration had done in the previous 16 months to make a concrete difference in people's lives. But the only impression registering with voters was of yet one more calamity the government seemed powerless to solve. I asked Axe to give me his best assessment of the chances that Democrats would retain control of the House of Representatives. He looked at me like I was joking. We're screwed, he said. From the day I took office, we'd known that the midterms were going to be tough. Historically, the party controlling the White House almost always lost congressional seats after its first two years in power, as at least some voters found reason for disappointment. Voter turnout also dropped substantially in the midterm elections. And, thanks in part to America's long history of voter discrimination, as well as many states' continued use of complicated procedures that made casting a ballot more difficult than it needed to be, the fall-off was most pronounced among younger, 
lower income, and minority voters, demographic groups that tended to vote Democratic. All this would have made the midterms challenging for us, even in a time of relative peace and prosperity, which, of course, we weren't in. Although companies had started hiring again, the unemployment rate remained stuck around 9.5% through June and July, mainly because cash-strapped state and local governments were still shedding employees. At least once a week, I'd huddle with my economic team in the Roosevelt Room, trying to come up with some variation on additional stimulus plans that we might shame at least a few Senate Republicans into supporting. But beyond a grudging extension of emergency unemployment insurance benefits before Congress adjourned for the August recess, McConnell generally managed to keep his caucus in line. I hate to say it, a Republican senator told me when he came by the White House for another matter, but the worse people feel right now, the better it is for us. The economy wasn't the only headwind we faced. Public opinion polls typically gave Republicans an edge over Democrats when it came to national security. And from the day I'd taken office, the GOP had looked to press that advantage, seizing every opportunity to paint my administration as weak on defense and soft on terrorism. For the most part, the attacks had failed. As disenchanted as voters were with my economic stewardship, they'd continued to give me solid marks on keeping them safe. Those numbers had held steady after the attack at Fort Hood and the thwarted Christmas Day bombing. They even remained largely unchanged when, in May 2010, a man named Faisal Shahzad, a naturalized American citizen raised in Pakistan and trained by the Pakistani Taliban, tried unsuccessfully to detonate a car bomb in the middle of Times Square. Still, the fact that 180,000 U.S. troops remained deployed in wars overseas cast a pall over the midterms. And while we were entering the final phase of withdrawal from Iraq, with the last combat brigades due home in August, the summer fighting season in Afghanistan was likely to once again bring about a distressing rise in U.S. casualties. I'd been impressed with Stan McChrystal's leadership of coalition forces there. The additional troops I'd authorized had helped regain territory from the Taliban. The training of the Afghan army had ramped up. McChrystal had even convinced President Karzai to venture out beyond his palace and start engaging the population he claimed to represent. And yet, each time I met with wounded soldiers at Walter Reed and Bethesda, I was reminded of the awful costs of such incremental progress. Whereas my earlier visits had taken roughly an hour, I was more often spending at least twice that time, as the hospital appeared to be filled almost to capacity. On one visit, I entered a room to find the bedridden victim of an IED blast being tended to by his mother. Thick stitches ran along the side of the young man's partially shaved head. His right eye appeared blinded and his body partly paralyzed, with one badly injured arm encased in a soft cast. According to the doctor who briefed me before I went in, the patient had spent three months in a coma before regaining consciousness. He'd suffered permanent brain damage and had just undergone surgery to rebuild his skull. Corey, the president's here to see you, the soldier's mother said encouragingly. The young man couldn't speak, but registered a faint smile and nod. It's great to meet you, Corey, I said, gently shaking his free hand. Actually, you two have met before, the mother said. See? She pointed to a photograph that had been taped to the wall, and I stepped closer to examine a picture of me with a group of smiling army rangers. It dawned on me then that the wounded soldier lying in the bed was Sergeant First Class Corey Remsburg, the spirited young paratrooper I'd spoken with less than a year earlier, during the commemoration of the Allied landing at Normandy. 
the one who told me he was on his way to Afghanistan for his 10th deployment. Of course, Corey, I said, glancing over at the mother. Her eyes forgave me for not having recognized her son. How you feeling, man? Show him how you're feeling, Corey, the mother said. Slowly and with great effort, he raised his arm and offered me a thumbs up. Taking pictures of the two of us, Pete looked visibly shaken. Maybe what had happened to Corey and so many like him didn't sit at the forefront of voters' minds the same way it did mine. Since the shift to an all-volunteer military in the 1970s, fewer Americans had family members, friends, or neighbors who served in combat. But at the very least, the mounting casualties left a weary nation as uncertain as ever about the direction of what increasingly seemed like an endless war. That uncertainty was only compounded in June, when a lengthy Rolling Stone profile of Stan McChrystal hit the newsstands. The article, titled The Runaway General, was largely critical of the U.S. war effort, suggesting I'd been rolled by the Pentagon into doubling down on a hopeless cause. But that wasn't new. Instead, what grabbed Washington's attention was the access McChrystal had granted to the reporter and the slew of caustic remarks the general and his team had leveled at allies, elected officials, and members of the administration. In one scene, the reporter describes McChrystal and an aide joking about possible responses to questions about Vice President Biden. Are you asking about Vice President Biden? McChrystal is quoted as saying. Who's that? To which the aide chimes in. Did you say, bite me? In another, McChrystal complains about having to have dinner with a French minister in Paris. I'd rather have my ass kicked. And groans over an email from Hillary's special advisor, longtime diplomat Richard Holbrook. I don't even want to open it. And while I'm largely spared the worst of the mockery, a member of McChrystal's team notes his boss's disappointment at our meeting right before I appointed him coalition commander, suggesting that I should have given the general more personal attention. Beyond the hard feelings the article was bound to generate, reopening divisions within the Afghan team that I'd hoped were behind us, it made McChrystal and his crew sound like a bunch of cocky frat boys. I could only imagine how Corey Remsburg's parents would feel if they read the article. I don't know what the hell he was thinking, Gates said to me, making an effort at damage control. He wasn't, I said curtly. He got played. My team asked me how I wanted to handle it. I told them I hadn't decided, but that while I made up my mind, I wanted McChrystal on the next flight back to Washington. At first, I was inclined to let the general off with a stern reprimand, and not just because Bob Gates insisted that he remain the best man to lead the war effort. I knew that if anyone ever recorded some of the private conversations that took place between me and my senior staff, we might sound pretty obnoxious ourselves. And although McChrystal and his inner circle had shown atrocious judgment in speaking like that in front of any reporter, whether out of carelessness or vanity, every one of us in the White House had said something on tape that we shouldn't have at one time or another. If I wouldn't fire Hillary, Rom, Valerie, or Ben for telling tales out of school, why should I treat McChrystal any differently? Over the course of 24 hours, I decided this was different. As every military commander liked to remind me, America's armed forces depended entirely on rigid discipline, clear codes of conduct, unit cohesion, and strict chains of command. Because the stakes were always higher. Because any failure to act as part of a team, any individual mistakes, didn't just result in embarrassment or lost profits. People could die. 
any corporal or captain who publicly disparaged a bunch of superior officers in such vivid terms would pay a grave price. I saw no way to apply a different set of rules to a four-star general, no matter how gifted, courageous, or decorated he was. That need for accountability and discipline extended to matters of civilian control over the military, a point I'd emphasized in the Oval Office with Gates and Mullen, apparently to insufficient effect. I actually admired McChrystal's rebel spirit, his apparent disdain for pretense and authority that, in his view, hadn't been earned. It no doubt had made him a better leader and accounted for the fierce loyalty he elicited from the troops under his command. But in that Rolling Stone article, I'd heard in him and his aides the same air of impunity that seemed to have taken hold among some in the military's top ranks during the Bush years, a sense that once war began, those who fought it shouldn't be questioned that politicians should just give them what they ask for and get out of the way. It was a seductive view, especially coming from a man of McChrystal's caliber. It also threatened to erode a bedrock principle of our representative democracy, and I was determined to put an end to it. The morning was hot and muggy when McChrystal and I finally sat down alone in the Oval Office. He seemed chastened but composed. To his credit, he made no excuses for his remarks. He didn't suggest that he'd been misquoted or taken out of context. He simply apologized for his mistake and offered his letter of resignation. I explained why, despite my admiration of him and my gratitude for his service, I had decided to accept it. After McChrystal left, I held a press conference in the Rose Garden to outline the reasons for my decision and to announce that General Dave Petraeus would be assuming command of coalition forces in Afghanistan. It was Tom Donlan who'd come up with the idea of moving Petraeus into the job. Not only was he the country's most widely known and respected military leader, but as the head of Central Command, he was already intimately familiar with our Afghan strategy. The news went over about as well as we could have hoped for under the circumstances. Still, I walked out of the press conference feeling livid about the whole situation. I told Jim Jones to gather everyone on the national security team right away. The meeting didn't last long. I'm putting everyone on notice that I am fed up, I said, my voice steadily rising. I don't want to hear any commentary about McChrystal in the press. I don't want any more spin or rumors or backbiting. What I want is for people to do their damn jobs. And if there are people here who can't act like they're on a team, then they'll be gone too. I mean it. The room fell silent. I turned around and left, with Ben trailing behind me. Apparently, we were scheduled to work on a speech. I liked Stan, I said quietly as we walked. You really didn't have a choice, Ben said. Yeah, I said, shaking my head. I know. It doesn't make it go down better. Although the firing of McChrystal made headlines and reinforced the conviction among the GOP faithful that I was unfit to serve as commander-in-chief, it wasn't the kind of story that necessarily moved swing voters in an election. As the midterms approached, the Republicans instead focused on a national security issue that struck closer to home. It turned out that a solid majority of Americans really didn't like the idea of trying terrorist suspects in civilian criminal courts on U.S. soil. In fact, most weren't particularly concerned about giving them full or fair trials at all. We'd gotten an early inkling of this as we'd tried to move forward with my pledge to close the detention center at Guantanamo. In the abstract, most congressional Democrats bought my argument that holding foreign prisoners there indefinitely 
without trial was a bad idea. The practice violated our constitutional traditions and flouted the Geneva Conventions. It complicated our foreign policy and discouraged even some of our closest allies from cooperating with us on anti-terrorism efforts. And perversely, it boosted al-Qaeda's recruitment and generally made us less safe. A few Republicans, most notably John McCain, agreed. But to actually close the facility, we had to figure out what to do with the 242 detainees being held at Guantanamo when I took office. Many were ill-trained, low-level fighters who'd been randomly scooped up on the battlefield and posed little or no threat to the United States. The Bush administration itself had previously released more than 500 such detainees to their home countries or to a third country. But a small number of Gitmo prisoners were sophisticated al-Qaeda operatives, known as high-value detainees, or HVDs, like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, one of the self-professed masterminds behind the 9-11 attacks. The men in this category were accused of being directly responsible for the murder of innocent people. And as far as I was concerned, releasing them would be both dangerous and immoral. The solution had seemed clear. We could repatriate the remaining low-level detainees to their home countries, where they would be monitored by their governments and slowly reintegrated into their societies, and put the HVDs on trial in U.S. criminal courts. Except the more we'd looked into it, the more roadblocks we'd encountered. When it came to repatriation, for instance, many low-level detainees came from countries that didn't have the capacity to safely handle the return. In fact, the largest contingent, 99 men, was from Yemen, a dirt-poor country with a barely functioning government, deep tribal conflicts, and the single most active al-Qaeda chapter outside Pakistan's federally administered tribal areas, or the Fatah. International law also prohibited us from repatriating detainees who we had grounds to believe might be abused, tortured, or killed by their own government. Such was the case with a group of Uyghurs being held at Gitmo, members of a Muslim ethnic minority who had fled to Afghanistan because of brutal, long-standing repression in their native China. The Uyghurs had no real beef with the United States. Beijing, however, considered them terrorists and we had little doubt that they risked a rough reception if we sent them to China. The prospect of bringing HVDs to trial in U.S. courts was perhaps even more complicated. For one thing, the Bush administration hadn't placed a high priority on preserving chains of evidence or maintaining clear records regarding the circumstances in which detainees had been captured. So many prisoners' files were a mess. Also, a number of HVDs, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, had been tortured during their interrogations, rendering not only their confessions but also any evidence linked to those interrogations inadmissible under the rules of ordinary criminal proceedings. Bush administration officials hadn't considered any of this to be a problem since, in their view, all Gitmo detainees qualified as, quote, unlawful enemy combatants, exempt from the protections of the Geneva Conventions and unentitled to civilian trials. Instead, to adjudicate cases, the administration had created an alternative system of military commissions in which U.S. military judges determined guilt or innocence and lower standards of evidence and weaker procedural safeguards prevailed. Few legal observers found the administration's approach to adequately meet the minimum requirements of due process, and as a result of constant legal challenges, delays, and procedural snags, the commissions had managed to decide only three cases in two years. Meanwhile, a month before I was elected, 
Lawyers representing 17 Uyghurs held at Gitmo had successfully petitioned a U.S. federal judge to review their detention, leading him to order their release from military custody and setting the stage for a lengthy legal battle over jurisdiction. Similar appeals on behalf of other prisoners were also pending. This isn't just a turd sandwich, Dennis observed after one of our sessions on Gitmo. It's a turd smorgasbord. Despite these difficulties, we started chipping away at the problem. I ordered the suspension of any new cases being brought before military commissions. Although in a nod to the Pentagon, I agreed to have an interagency team review whether the commissions could be reformed and used as a backup in the event that we couldn't try certain detainees in civilian court. We set up a formal process to evaluate which detainees could be safely released, whether to their home countries or to other nations willing to take them. Working with lawyers at the Pentagon and the CIA, Attorney General Eric Holder and a team of Justice Department prosecutors began reviewing prisoner files to see what further evidence was required to bring to trial and convict each HVD at Gitmo. We began looking for a U.S. facility, whether on a military installation or within the existing federal prison system, that could immediately house transferred Gitmo detainees while we determined their ultimate dispositions. That's when Congress began to freak out. Republicans got wind of rumors that we were considering the possible resettlement of Uyghurs in Virginia. Most were ultimately sent to third countries, including Bermuda and the island nation of Palau, and took to the airwaves warning voters that my administration planned to move terrorists into their neighborhoods, maybe even next door. This made congressional Democrats understandably nervous, and they ultimately agreed to a provision added to a defense spending bill that prohibited the use of any taxpayer funds for the transfer of detainees to the United States for anything but a trial. It also required Bob Gates to submit a formal plan to Congress before a new facility could be chosen and Guantanamo shut down. Dick Durbin approached us in the spring of 2010 with the possibility of using a largely vacant state prison in Thompson, Illinois, to house up to 90 Gitmo detainees. Despite the jobs it was likely to bring for residents of a rural town hard hit by the economic crisis, Congress refused to fund the $350 million needed to buy and renovate the facility, with even some liberal Democrats echoing Republican arguments that any detention center located on U.S. soil would become a prime target for future terrorist attacks. None of this made sense to me. Terrorist plotters weren't Navy SEALs. If al-Qaeda were to plan another attack in the United States, detonating a crude explosive in a New York subway or crowded Los Angeles mall would be far more devastating, and a lot easier, than trying to mount an assault on a hardened correctional facility in the middle of nowhere staffed by heavily armed U.S. military personnel. In fact, well over 100 convicted terrorists were already serving time without incident in federal prisons scattered across the country. We're acting like these guys are a bunch of supervillains straight out of a James Bond movie, I said to Dennis in exasperation. The average inmate at a supermax prison would eat these detainees for lunch. Nonetheless, I could understand that people had very real fears. Fears born of the lingering trauma of 9-11 and continually stoked by the previous administration and much of the media, not to mention countless movies and TV shows, for almost a decade. Indeed, several Bush administration alumni in particular, former Vice President Dick Cheney, made it their mission to keep fanning those fears, viewing my decisions to revamp the handling of terrorist suspects as an attack on their legacy. 
In a series of speeches and television appearances, Cheney insisted that the use of tactics like waterboarding and indefinite detention had prevented, quote, something much bigger and far worse than the 9-11 attacks. He accused me of reverting to a pre-2001, quote, law enforcement mode in dealing with terrorists rather than understanding the concept of military threat. And he claimed that in doing this, I was increasing the risk of another attack. Cheney's assertion that my administration wasn't treating al-Qaeda as a military threat was hard to square with the additional battalions I deployed to Afghanistan or the scores of al-Qaeda operatives we were targeting with drone strikes. And Cheney probably wasn't the best messenger for any argument, given how personally unpopular he was with the American public, thanks in large part to his catastrophic judgment on Iraq. Still, the idea that we shouldn't treat terrorists like ordinary criminals did resonate with a lot of voters and it had gotten even more traction in the aftermath of the underwear bomber Umar Farouk Abdul-Muttalib's attempt to bring down a jet the previous Christmas. In handling that case, both the Justice Department and the FBI had followed procedure. At Eric Holder's direction, and with the concurrence of the Pentagon and the CIA, federal officials had arrested the Nigerian-born Abdul-Muttalib as a criminal suspect as soon as the Northwest Airlines plane landed in Detroit and had transported him to receive medical care. Because the top priority was ascertaining that there were no further immediate threats to public safety, other bombers on other planes, for example, the first team of FBI agents questioning Abdul-Muttalib did so without reading him the Miranda warnings, using a well-established legal precedent that allowed law enforcement an exception when neutralizing an active threat. Speaking to agents for nearly an hour, the suspect provided valuable intelligence about his al-Qaeda connections, his training in Yemen, the source of his explosive device, and what he knew of other plots. He was later read his rights and given access to counsel. According to our critics, we had practically set the man free. Why in God's name would you stop questioning a terrorist? Former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani declared on TV. Joe Lieberman insisted that Abdul-Muttalib qualified as an enemy combatant and as such, should have been turned over to military authorities for interrogation and detention. And in the heated Massachusetts Senate race that was going on at the time, Republican Scott Brown used our handling of the case to put Democrat Martha Coakley on the defensive. The irony, as Eric Holder liked to point out, was that the Bush administration had handled almost every case involving terrorist suspects apprehended on U.S. soil, including Zacharias Musawi, one of the planners behind 9-11, in exactly the same way. They'd done so because the U.S. Constitution demanded it. In the two instances where the Bush administration had declared terrorist suspects arrested in the United States enemy combatants subject to indefinite detention, the federal courts had stepped in and forced a return to the criminal system. Moreover, following the law actually worked. Bush's Justice Department had successfully convicted more than 100 terrorist suspects, with sentences at least as tough as the few that had been handed down through military commissions. Mosawi, for example, was serving multiple life sentences in federal prison. These lawful criminal prosecutions had in the past drawn lavish praise from conservatives, including Mr. Giuliani. It wouldn't be so aggravating, Eric told me one day, if Giuliani and some of these other critics actually believed the stuff they're saying. But he's a former prosecutor. He knows better. It's just shameless. 
As the point person in our effort to bring America's counterterrorism practices into alignment with its constitutional principles, Eric would bear the brunt of this manufactured outrage. He didn't seem to mind, knowing it came with the job. Although he didn't consider it entirely a coincidence that he was the favorite target in my administration for much of the Republican vitriol and Fox News conspiracy theorizing. When they're yelling at me, brother, Eric would say, patting my back with a wry smile, I know they're thinking of you. I could see why those who opposed my presidency might have considered Eric a handy stand-in. Tall and even-tempered, he'd grown up in Queens, New York, the son of middle-class parents of Barbadian descent. They gave you that island vibe, I told him. He'd attended my alma mater, Columbia University, a decade before I got there, where he'd played basketball and participated in campus sit-ins. While at law school, he'd become interested in civil rights, interning one summer at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And like me, he'd chosen public service rather than a job in a corporate law firm, working as a prosecutor in the Justice Department's Public Integrity Section and later as a federal judge on the D.C. Superior Court. Bill Clinton eventually nominated him to be the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia and later the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, the first African-American to serve in either position. Eric and I both had an abiding faith in the law, a belief, tempered by personal experience and our knowledge of history, that through reasoned argument and fidelity to the ideals and institutions of our democracy, America could be made better. It was on the basis of those shared assumptions, more than our friendship or any particular agreement on issues, that I wanted him as my attorney general. It was also why I would end up being so scrupulous about shielding his office from White House interference in pending cases and investigations. There was no law expressly prohibiting such interference. At the end of the day, the AG and his or her deputies were part of the executive branch and thus served at the pleasure of the president. But the AG was first and foremost the people's lawyer, not the president's consigliere. Keeping politics out of the Justice Department's investigative and prosecutorial decisions was a crucial Democratic imperative, made glaringly apparent when the Watergate hearings revealed that Richard Nixon's AG, John Mitchell, had actively participated in the cover-up of White House misdeeds and initiated criminal investigations into the president's enemies. The Bush administration had been accused of violating that norm in 2006 when it fired nine U.S. attorneys whom it apparently considered insufficiently committed to its ideological agenda. And the one blemish on Eric Holder's otherwise spotless record was the suggestion that he'd succumbed to political pressure when, as deputy AG, he'd supported Bill Clinton's criminal pardon of a major donor in the waning days of the administration. Eric later said he regretted the decision, and it was precisely the kind of situation I was intent on avoiding. So, while he and I regularly discussed broad Justice Department policy, we were careful to steer clear of any topic that would even appear to compromise his independence as America's top law enforcement officer. Still, there was no getting around the fact that any attorney general's decisions had political ramifications, as my White House team liked to remind me and as Eric sometimes forgot. He was surprised and offended, for example, when a month into my presidency, Axe took him to task for failing to clear a Black History Month speech in which he referred to America as, quote, a nation of cowards when it came to its unwillingness to discuss race issues. A true enough observation, but not necessarily the headline we were looking for at the end of my first few weeks in office, 
The heat we took at the White House for the Justice Department's legally sound but politically toxic decision not to indict any of the bank executives for their role in the financial crisis also seemed to catch him off guard. And maybe it was this guilelessness, his confidence that logic and reason would ultimately prevail, that led Eric to miss how quickly the political ground was shifting when he announced late in 2009 that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four other 9-11 co-conspirators would finally go on trial in a lower Manhattan courtroom. On paper, we all thought the idea made sense. Why not use the prosecution of Guantanamo's most notorious prisoners to showcase the U.S. criminal justice system's ability to handle terrorist cases in a fair, above-board manner? And what better venue to deliver justice than one in the city that had suffered the most from that horrific crime, in a courtroom just a few blocks from Ground Zero? After months of painstaking work, Eric and his team felt sure that the case against the 9-11 plotters could be made without relying on information obtained through enhanced interrogations, in part because we now had more cooperation from other countries that had previously been reluctant to get involved. New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg had endorsed Eric's plan. So had New York's senior senator, Democrat Chuck Schumer. Then, in the weeks surrounding the attempted Christmas Day bombing, the prevailing opinion in New York spun a dizzying 180 degrees. A group of families of 9-11 victims organized a series of demonstrations to protest Eric's decision. We found out later that its leader, the sister of one of the pilots killed in the Pentagon attack, had formed an organization dedicated to opposing any and all efforts to reverse Bush-era national security policies, and funded by conservative donors and supported by prominent Republicans, including Liz Cheney, the former vice president's daughter. Next, Mayor Bloomberg, who was reportedly getting pressure from real estate interests concerned about what a trial might do to their redevelopment plans, abruptly withdrew his support, claiming a trial would be too expensive and disruptive. Chuck Schumer quickly followed suit, as did Senate Intelligence Committee Chair Dianne Feinstein. With New York officials, a vocal contingent of 9-11 families, and influential members of our own party all lined up against us, Eric felt he had no choice but to beat a tactical retreat, confirming that while he remained determined to try the 9-11 co-conspirators in civilian rather than military courts, the Justice Department would explore venues outside of New York. It was a significant setback for our overall strategy to close Gitmo, and civil liberties groups and progressive columnists faulted me and the rest of the White House for not having anticipated political pushback to the trials and for not mounting a more vigorous defense once the plan ran into trouble. They may have been right. Maybe if we had focused all of our attention on it for a month or so, to the exclusion of our efforts on health care or financial reform or climate change or the economy, we might have rallied the public to our side and forced New York City officials to back down. I would have enjoyed that fight. No doubt it was a fight worth having. But at the time, at least, it was a fight that none of us in the White House thought we could win. Certainly, Rom was happy to see Eric's plan tabled, since he was the one who had to field calls all day from terrified congressional Democrats, begging us to stop trying to push so many boulders up the hill. For the truth was, after an ambitious first year in office, I didn't have a lot of political capital left. And what little remained, we were husbanding to try to get as many initiatives as we could through Congress before the 2010 midterms brought about a possible shift in party control. In fact, 
Ron would get frustrated with me for wading into a related controversy at the end of that summer, when the same group of 9-11 families that opposed the trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in Manhattan launched a campaign to block the construction of an Islamic community center and mosque near Ground Zero, saying it was offensive to them and the memory of those who died in the World Trade Center attacks. To his credit, Mayor Bloomberg forcefully defended the project on the grounds of religious freedom, as did other city officials and even some 9-11 families. Nevertheless, right-wing commentators quickly seized on the issue, often in nakedly anti-Islamic terms. National polls showed that a majority of Americans were opposed to the mosque's location, and GOP political operatives spotted an opportunity to make life uncomfortable for Democrats running in the midterms. As it so happened, the controversy reached a boiling point the same week we had a scheduled White House iftar dinner with an assortment of Muslim American leaders to mark the month of Ramadan. The gathering was meant to be a low-key affair, a way to extend the same recognition to Muslims that we did to members of other faiths during their key religious holidays. But the next time Ram and I talked, I told him that I intended to use the occasion to publicly come down on the side of those building the mosque. Last I checked, this is America, I said, stuffing files in my briefcase before I headed up to the residence for dinner. And in America, you can't single out one religious group and tell them they can't build a house of worship on their own property. I get it, Mr. President, Ram said. But you need to know that if you say something, it's going to be hung around the necks of our candidates in every swing district around the country. I'm sure you're right, I answered as I walked to the door. But if we can't speak out on something this basic, then I don't know what the point is of us being here. Rom sighed. At the rate we're going, he said, we may not be. In August, my family and I flew up to Martha's Vineyard for a 10-day vacation. We'd first visited the island off the coast of Cape Cod 15 or so years earlier at the invitation of one of my law firm's partners, Allison Davis, and with the encouragement of Valerie, who'd spent summers there with her family when she was growing up. With its broad beaches and windswept dunes, the fishing boats coming into dock, the small farms and green meadows framed by oak forests and old stone walls, the place had a quiet beauty and unhurried vibe that suited us. We appreciated as well the vineyard's history. Freed slaves had been part of its earliest settlements, and black families had rented summer homes there for generations, making it that rare resort community where blacks and whites seemed equally at home. We had taken the girls there for a week or two every other summer, usually renting a small place in Oak Bluffs, close enough to town that you could bike there and with a porch where you could sit and watch the sun go down. Together with Valerie and other friends, we'd spend lazy days with our feet in the sand and a book in hand, swimming in water that the girls loved but was a little too cold for my Hawaiian tastes, sometimes spotting a pot of seals close to shore. Later, we'd walk to Nancy's to eat the best fried shrimp on earth, and then Malia and Sasha would run off with their friends to get ice cream or ride the small carousel or play games at the local arcade. We couldn't do things quite the same way now that we were the first family. Instead of taking the ferry into Oak Bluffs, we now arrived on the Marine One helicopter. The house we now rented was a 28-acre estate on a tonier part of the island, large enough to accommodate staff and secret service, and isolated enough to maintain a secure perimeter. Arrangements were made for us to go to a private beach, empty for a mile in either direction. Our bike rides now followed a tightly prescribed loop 
which the girls wrote exactly once to indulge me, before declaring it, quote, kind of lame. Even on vacation, I started my day with the PDB and a briefing from Dennis or John Brennan concerning the assorted mayhem transpiring around the world. And crowds of people and TV crews were always waiting for us when we went to a restaurant for dinner. Still, the smell of the ocean and sparkle of sunlight against the late summer leaves, the walks along the beach with Michelle, and the sight of Malia and Sasha toasting marshmallows around a bonfire, their faces set in zen-like concentration. Those things remained. And with each day of extra sleep, laughter, and uninterrupted time with those I loved, I could feel my energy returning, my confidence restored. So much so that by the time we returned to Washington, on August 29, 2010, I'd managed to convince myself that we still had a chance to win the midterms and keep Democrats in charge of both the House and the Senate. The polls and conventional wisdom be damned. And why not? The truth was, we had saved the economy from a likely depression. We had stabilized the global financial system and yanked the U.S. auto industry back from the brink of collapse. We had put guardrails on Wall Street and made historic investments in clean energy and the nation's infrastructure, protected public lands and reduced air pollution, connected rural schools to the Internet and reformed student loan programs so that tens of billions of dollars that had once gone into bank coffers would instead be used to provide direct grants to thousands of young people who otherwise might not be able to afford college. Taken together, our administration and the Democrat-controlled Congress could rightly claim to have gotten more done, to have delivered more significant legislation that made a real impact on the lives of the American people than any single session of Congress in the past 40 years. And if we had much work yet to do, if too many people were still out of work and at risk of losing their homes, if we hadn't yet passed climate change legislation or fixed a broken immigration system, then it was directly attributable to the size of the mess we'd inherited, along with Republican obstruction and filibusters, all of which American voters could change by casting their ballot in November. The problem is I've been cooped up in this building, I said to Favs as we sat together in the Oval, working on my stump speech. Voters just hear these sound bites coming out of Washington. Pelosi said this, McConnell said that. And they have no way to sort out what's true and what's not. This is our chance to get back out there and find a way to cut through that. Tell a clear story about what's really happened to the economy. How the last time Republicans were behind the wheel, they drove the car into the ditch. And how we've spent the last two years pushing it out. And now that we've just about got the car running again, the last thing the American people can afford to do is to give them back the keys. I paused to look at Favs, who'd been busy typing on his computer. What do you think? I think that works. It might, Favs said, although not as enthusiastically as I would have hoped. In the six weeks leading up to the election, I barnstormed the country, trying to rally support for Democratic candidates from Portland, Oregon to Richmond, Virginia from Las Vegas, Nevada, to Coral Gables, Florida. The crowds were energized, filling up basketball auditoriums and public parks, chanting, yes, we can, and fired up ready to go, as loudly as they had when I ran for president, hoisting signs, cheering wildly when I introduced the Democratic congresswoman or governor who needed their vote, having a hoot as I told them we couldn't afford to give the keys to the car back to Republicans. On the surface, at least, it was just like old times. But even without looking at the polls, I could sense a change in the atmosphere on the campaign trail. An air of doubt hovering over each rally, 
a forced, almost desperate quality to the cheers and laughter. As if the crowds and I were a couple at the end of a whirlwind romance, trying to muster up feelings that had started to fade. How could I blame them? They had expected my election to transform our country, to make government work for ordinary people, to restore some sense of civility in Washington. Instead, many of their lives had grown harder, and Washington seemed just as broken, distant, and bitterly partisan as ever. During the presidential campaign, I'd grown accustomed to the occasional heckler or two turning up at our rallies, usually anti-abortion protesters who'd shout at me before being drowned out by a chorus of boos and gently escorted out by security. But more often now, the hecklers would turn out to be those whose causes I supported, activists let down by what they considered to be a lack of progress on their issues. I was greeted at several stops by protesters holding up signs calling for an end to, quote, Obama's wars. Young Hispanics asked why my administration was still deporting undocumented workers and separating families at the border. LGBTQ activists demanded to know why I hadn't ended the don't ask, don't tell policy, which forced non-straight members of the military to hide their sexual orientation. A group of particularly loud and persistent college students shouted about AIDS funding for Africa. Didn't we increase AIDS funding? I asked Gibbs as we left a rally where I'd been interrupted three or four times. We did, he said. They're saying you didn't increase it enough. I soldiered on through the end of October, coming off the trail only to spend a day or two in meetings at the White House before hitting the road again, my voice increasingly hoarse as I made my last-minute appeals. Whatever irrational optimism I'd carried with me from vacation had long been extinguished. And by Election Day, November 2, 2010, the question was no longer whether we'd lose the House, but only how badly. Moving between a terrorism threat briefing in the Situation Room and a session in the Oval with Bob Gates, I stopped by Axe's office, where he and Jim Messina had been tracking early turnout data coming in from swing districts across the country. What's it looking like? I asked. Axe shook his head. We'll lose at least 30 seats, maybe more. Rather than sticking around for the wake, I headed up to the residence at my usual time, telling Axe I'd check in once most of the polls had closed, and asking my assistant Katie to send up a list of likely calls I'd have to make that night, first to the four congressional leaders, and later to any Democratic incumbents who'd lost. Not until I'd had dinner and tucked in the girls at bedtime did I call Axe from the treaty room to receive the news. Turnout had been low, with only four out of every ten eligible voters casting ballots, and a profound drop in the number of young people voting. The Democrats had been routed, tracking toward a loss of 63 House seats, the worst beating the party had taken since sacrificing 72 seats at the midpoint of FDR's second term. Worse yet, many of our most promising young House members had gone down. Folks like Tom Perriello of Virginia and John Bocciari of Ohio, Patrick Murphy of Pennsylvania, and Betsy Markey of Colorado, the ones who had taken the tough votes on health care and the Recovery Act, the ones who, despite being from swing districts, had consistently stood up to lobbyist pressure and the polls and even the advice of their political staffs to do what they thought was right. They all deserved better, I said to Axe. Yes, he said, they did. Axe signed off, promising to give me a more detailed readout in the morning. I sat alone with the phone receiver in my hand, 
one finger depressing the switch hook, my head congested with thoughts. After a minute, I dialed the White House operator. I've got some calls I need to make, I said. Yes, Mr. President, she said. Katie sent us the list. Who would you like to start with? Chapter 24 Whose bid is it? Pete Souza and I sat opposite Marvin and Reggie at the Air Force One conference table, all of us a bit bleary-eyed as we sorted through our cards. We were on our way to Mumbai, the first leg of a nine-day trip to Asia that would include not only my first trip to India, but also a stop in Jakarta, a G20 meeting in Seoul, and an Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APAC, meeting in Yokohama, Japan. The plane had been humming with activity earlier in the flight, with staffers working on laptops and policy advisors huddling over the schedule. After 10 hours in the air, with a refueling stop at Ramstein Air Base in Germany, almost everyone on board, including Michelle in the forward cabin, Valerie on the couch outside the conference room, and several senior staffers stretched out at odd angles on the floor, had gone to sleep. Unable to wind down, I'd enlisted our regular foursome for a game of spades, and I was trying to read through my briefing book and signing a stack of correspondence between plays. My divided attention, along with Reggie's second gin and tonic, may have accounted for the fact that Marvin and Pete were up six games to two on us, at $10 a pop. It's your bid, sir, Marvin said. What you got, Reg? I asked. Maybe one, Reggie said. We'll go board, I said. We're going eight, Pete said. Reggie shook his head in disgust. We're switching decks after the next hand, he muttered, taking another sip of his drink. These cards are cursed. Only three days had passed since the midterm elections, and I was grateful for the chance to get out of Washington. The results had left Democrats shell-shocked and Republicans exuberant, and I'd woken up the next morning with a mix of weariness, hurt, anger, and shame. The way a boxer must feel after coming out of the wrong end of a heavyweight bout. The dominant storyline in the post-election coverage suggested that the conventional wisdom had been right all along, that I'd attempted to do too much and hadn't stayed focused on the economy, that Obamacare was a fatal error, that I'd tried to resurrect the kind of big-spending, big-government liberalism that even Bill Clinton had pronounced dead years ago. The fact that in my press conference the day after the election, I refused to admit as much, that I seemed to cling to the idea that my administration had pursued the right policies even if we clearly hadn't managed to sell them effectively, struck pundits as arrogant and delusional, the sign of a sinner who wasn't contrite. The truth was, I didn't regret paving the way for 20 million people to get health insurance. Nor did I regret the Recovery Act. The hard evidence showed that austerity in response to a recession would have been disastrous. I didn't regret how we'd handled the financial crisis, given the choices we'd faced although I did regret not having come up with a better plan to help stem the tide of foreclosures. And I sure as hell wasn't sorry I'd proposed a climate change bill and pushed for immigration reform. I was just mad that I hadn't gotten either item through Congress, mainly because on my very first day in office, I hadn't had the foresight to tell Harry Reid and the rest of the Senate Democrats to revise the chamber rules and get rid of the filibuster once and for all. As far as I was concerned, the election didn't prove that our agenda had been wrong. It just proved that, whether for lack of talent, cunning, charm, or good fortune, I'd failed to rally the nation, as FDR had once done, behind what I knew to be right, which to me was just as damning.
Much to the relief of Gibbs and my press shop, I'd ended the press conference before burying my stubborn, tortured soul. I realized that justifying the past mattered less than planning what to do next. I was going to have to find a way to reconnect with the American people, not just to strengthen my hand in negotiations with Republicans, but to get reelected. A better economy would help, but even that was hardly assured. I needed to get out of the White House bubble to engage more frequently with voters. Meanwhile, Axe offered his own assessment of what had gone wrong, saying that in the rush to get things done, we'd neglected our promise to change Washington by sidelining special interests and increasing transparency and fiscal responsibility across the federal government. If we wanted to win back the voters who'd left us, he argued, we had to reclaim those themes. But was that right? I wasn't so sure. Yes, we'd been hurt by the sausage-making around the ACA, and fairly or not, we'd been tarnished by the bank bailouts. On the other hand, I could point to scores of good government initiatives we'd introduced, whether it was placing limits on the hiring of former lobbyists or giving the public access to data from federal agencies or scouring agency budgets to eliminate waste. All these actions were worthy on their merits, and I was glad we'd taken them. It was one of the reasons we hadn't had a whiff of scandal around my administration. Politically, though, no one seemed to care about our work to clean up the government, any more than they credited us for having bent over backward to solicit Republican ideas on every single one of our legislative initiatives. One of our biggest promises had been to end partisan bickering and focus on practical efforts to address citizen demands. Our problem, as Mitch McConnell had calculated from the start, was that so long as Republicans uniformly resisted our overtures and raised hell over even the most moderate of proposals, anything we did could be portrayed as partisan, controversial, radical, even illegitimate. In fact, many of our progressive allies believed that we hadn't been partisan enough. In their view, we'd compromised too much, and by continually chasing the false promise of bipartisanship, we'd not only empowered McConnell and squandered big Democratic majorities, we'd thrown a giant wet blanket over our base, as evidenced by the decision of so many Democrats not to bother to vote in the midterms. Along with having to figure out a message and policy reboot, I was now facing significant turnover in White House personnel. On the foreign policy team, Jim Jones, who despite his many strengths had never felt fully comfortable in a staff role after years of command, had resigned in October. Luckily, Tom Donilon was proving to be a real workhorse and had ably assumed the National Security Advisor role, with Dennis McDonough moving up to Deputy National Security Advisor and Ben Rhodes assuming many of Dennis's old duties. On economic policy, Peter Orsag and Christy Romer had returned to the private sector, replaced by Jack Lew, a seasoned budget expert who'd managed OMB under Bill Clinton, and Austin Goolsby, who'd been working with us on the recovery. Then there was Larry Summers, would stop by the Oval one day in September to tell me that, with the financial crisis behind us, it was time for him to exit. He'd be leaving at year's end. What am I going to do without you around to explain why I'm wrong? I asked, only half joking. Larry smiled. Mr. President, he said, you were actually less wrong than most. I'd grown genuinely fond of those who were leaving. Not only had they served me well, but despite their various idiosyncrasies, they'd each brought a seriousness of purpose, a commitment to policymaking based on reason and evidence that was born of a desire to do right by the American people. It was, however, the impending loss of my two closest political advisors, as well as the need to find a new chief of staff, that unsettled me most. 
Axe had always planned to leave after the midterms. Having lived apart from his family for two years, he badly needed a break before joining my re-election campaign. Gibbs, who'd been in the foxhole with me continuously since I'd won my Senate primary race, was just as worn down. Although he remained as well-prepared and fearless a press secretary as ever, the strain of standing at a podium day after day, taking all the hits that had been coming our way, had made his relationship with the White House press corps combative enough that the rest of the team worried that it was negatively affecting our coverage. I was still getting used to the prospect of fighting the political battles ahead without Axe and Gibbs at my side, though I took heart in the continuity provided by our young and skillful communications director, Dan Pfeiffer, who'd worked closely with them on messaging since the start of our 2007 campaign. As for Rom, I considered it a minor miracle that he'd lasted as long as he had without either killing somebody or dropping dead from a stroke. We'd made a habit of conducting our end-of-day meetings outside when the weather allowed, strolling two or three times around the driveway that encircled the South Lawn as we tried to figure out what to do about the latest crisis or controversy. More than once, we'd asked ourselves why we'd chosen such stressful lives. After we're finished, we should try something simpler, I said to him one day. We could move our families to Hawaii and open a smoothie stand on the beach. Smoothies are too complicated, Rom said. We'll sell t-shirts, but just white t-shirts, in medium. That's it, no other colors or patterns or sizes. We don't want to have to make any decisions. If customers want something different, they can go someplace else. I'd recognized the signs that Rom was close to burnout, but I'd assumed he'd wait for the new year to leave. Instead, he'd used one of our evening walks in early September to tell me that longtime Chicago Mayor Richard M. Daley had just announced that he wouldn't be seeking a seventh consecutive term. Rom wanted to run. It was a job he'd dreamed of since entering politics. And with the election happening in February, he needed to leave the White House by the 1st of October if he hoped to have a go at it. He looked genuinely distraught. I know I'm putting you in a bind, he said. But with only five and a half months to run a race, I stopped him before he could finish and said he'd have my full support. A week or so later, at a private farewell ceremony in the residence, I presented him with a framed copy of a to-do list that I'd handwritten on a legal pad and passed to him during my first week in office. Almost every item had been checked off, I told the assembled staff, a measure of how effective he'd been. Rom teared up, a blemish on his tough guy image for which he later cursed me. None of this turnover was unusual for an administration, and I saw the potential benefits of shaking things up. More than once, we'd been accused of being too insular and tightly controlled, in need of fresh perspectives. Rom's skill set would be less relevant without a Democratic House to help advance legislation. With Pete Rouse serving as interim chief of staff, I was leaning toward hiring Bill Daley, who'd been Commerce Secretary in the Clinton administration and was the brother of Chicago's outgoing mayor, to replace Rom. Balding and about a decade older than me, with a distinctive Southside accent that evoked his Irish working-class roots. Bill had a reputation as an effective, pragmatic dealmaker with strong relationships with both labor and the business community. And while I didn't know him the way I knew Rom, I thought his affable, non-ideological style might be well-suited for what I expected to be a less frantic phase of my administration. And along with some new faces, I was thrilled that I'd be getting one back starting in January when David Pluff, fresh from a two-year sabbatical with his family, would return as a senior advisor and provide our White House operation with the same strategic thinking, intense focus, and lack of ego that had benefited us so much during the campaign. 
Still, I couldn't help feeling a little melancholy over the changes the new year would bring. I'd be surrounded by even fewer people who'd known me before I was president, and by fewer colleagues who were also friends, who'd seen me tired, confused, angry, or defeated, and yet had never stopped having my back. It was a lonely thought at a lonely time, which probably explains why I was still playing cards with Marvin, Reggie, and Pete when I had a full day of meetings and appearances scheduled to start in less than seven hours. Did you guys just win again? I asked Pete after we finished the hand. Pete nodded, prompting Reggie to gather up all the cards, rise from his chair, and toss them into the trash bin. Hey, Reg, that's still a good deck, Pete said, not bothering to disguise his pleasure at the beatdown he and Marvin had just administered. Everybody loses sometimes. Reggie flashed a hard look at Pete. Show me someone who's okay with losing, he said, and I'll show you a loser. I'd never been to India before, but the country had always held a special place in my imagination. Maybe it was its sheer size, with one-sixth of the world's population, an estimated 2,000 distinct ethnic groups, and more than 700 languages spoken. Maybe it was because I'd spent part of my childhood in Indonesia listening to the epic Hindu tales of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, or because of my interest in Eastern religions, or because a group of Pakistani and Indian college friends who taught me to cook dal and keema and turned me on to Bollywood movies. More than anything, though, my fascination with India had to do with Mahatma Gandhi. Along with Lincoln, King, and Mandela, Gandhi had profoundly influenced my thinking. As a young man, I'd studied his writings and found him giving voice to some of my deepest instincts. His notion of satyagraha, or devotion to truth, and the power of nonviolent resistance to stir the conscience, his insistence on our common humanity and the essential oneness of all religions, his belief in every society's obligation, through its political, economic, and social arrangements, to recognize the equal worth and dignity of all people. Each of these ideas resonated with me. Gandhi's actions had stirred me even more than his words. He'd put his beliefs to the test by risking his life, going to prison, and throwing himself fully into the struggles of his people. His nonviolent campaign for Indian independence from Britain, which began in 1915 and continued for more than 30 years, hadn't just helped overcome an empire and liberate much of the subcontinent. It had set off a moral charge that pulsed around the globe. It became a beacon for other dispossessed, marginalized groups, including black Americans in the Jim Crow South, intent on securing their freedom. Michelle and I had a chance early in the trip to visit Mani Bhavan, the modest two-story building tucked into a quiet Mumbai neighborhood that had been Gandhi's home base for many years. Before the start of our tour, our guide, a gracious woman in a blue sari, showed us the guest book Dr. King had signed in 1959 when he traveled to India to draw international attention to the struggle for racial justice in the United States and pay homage to the man whose teachings had inspired him. The guide then invited us upstairs to see Gandhi's private quarters. Taking off our shoes, we entered a simple room with a floor of smooth patterned tile, its terrace doors opened to admit a slight breeze and a pale, hazy light. I stared at the Spartan floor bed and pillow, the collection of spinning wheels, the old-fashioned phone and low wooden writing desk, trying to imagine Gandhi present in the room, a slight brown-skinned man in a plain cotton dhoti, his legs folded under him, composing a letter to the British Viceroy for charting the next phase of the salt march. And in that moment, 
I had the strongest wish to sit beside him and talk, to ask him where he'd found the strength and imagination to do so much with so very little, to ask how he'd recovered from disappointment. He'd had more than his share. For all his extraordinary gifts, Gandhi hadn't been able to heal the subcontinent's deep religious schisms or prevent its partitioning into a predominantly Hindu India and an overwhelmingly Muslim Pakistan, a seismic event in which untold numbers died in sectarian violence and millions of families were forced to pack up what they could carry and migrate across newly established borders. Despite his labors, he hadn't undone India's stifling caste system. Somehow, though, he'd marched, fasted, and preached well into his 70s, until that final day in 1948, when on his way to prayer, he was shot at point-blank range by a young Hindu extremist who viewed his ecumenism as a betrayal of the faith. In many respects, modern-day India counted as a success story, having survived repeated changeovers in government, bitter feuds within political parties, various armed separatist movements, and all manner of corruption scandals. The transition to a more market-based economy in the 1990s had unleashed the extraordinary entrepreneurial talents of the Indian people, leading to soaring growth rates, a thriving high-tech sector, and a steadily expanding middle class. As a chief architect of India's economic transformation, Prime Minister Manhonman Singh seemed like a fitting emblem of this progress, a member of the tiny, often persecuted Sikh religious minority who'd risen to the highest office in the land, and a self-effacing technocrat who'd won people's trust not by appealing to their passions, but by bringing about higher living standards and maintaining a well-earned reputation for not being corrupt. Singh and I had developed a warm and productive relationship. While he could be cautious in foreign policy, unwilling to get too far ahead of an Indian bureaucracy that was historically suspicious of U.S. intentions, our time together confirmed my initial impression of him as a man of uncommon wisdom and decency. And during my visit to the capital city of New Delhi, we reached agreements to strengthen U.S. cooperation on counterterrorism, global health, nuclear security, and trade. What I couldn't tell was whether Singh's rise to power represented the future of India's democracy or merely an aberration. Our first evening in Delhi, he and his wife, Gursharan Kaur, hosted a dinner party for me and Michelle at their residence. And before joining the other guests in a candlelit courtyard, Singh and I had a few minutes to chat alone. Without the usual flock of minders and note-takers hovering over our shoulders, the Prime Minister spoke more openly about the clouds he saw on the horizon. The economy worried him, he said. Although India had fared better than many other countries in the wake of the financial crisis, the global slowdown would inevitably make it harder to generate jobs for India's young and rapidly growing population. Then there was the problem of Pakistan, its continuing failure to work with India to investigate the 2008 terrorist attacks on hotels and other sites in Mumbai had significantly increased tensions between the two countries, in part because Lashkar-e-Taiba, the terrorist organization responsible, was believed to have links to Pakistan's intelligence service. Singh had resisted calls to retaliate against Pakistan after the attacks, but his restraint had cost him politically. He feared that rising anti-Muslim sentiment had strengthened the influence of India's main opposition party, the Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP. In uncertain times, Mr. President, the Prime Minister said, the call of religious and ethnic solidarity can be intoxicating, and it's not so hard for politicians to exploit that, in India or anywhere else. I nodded, 
recalling the conversation I'd had with Václav Havel during my visit to Prague and his warning about the rising tide of illiberalism in Europe. If globalization and a historic economic crisis were fueling these trends in relatively wealthy nations, if I was seeing it even in the United States with the Tea Party, how could India be immune? For the truth was that despite the resilience of its democracy and its impressive recent economic performance, India still bore little resemblance to the egalitarian, peaceful, and sustainable society Gandhi had envisioned. Across the country, millions continued to live in squalor, trapped in sun-baked villages or labyrinthian slums, even as the titans of Indian industry enjoyed lifestyles that the rajas and moguls of old would have envied. Violence, both public and private, remained an all-too-pervasive part of Indian life. Expressing hostility towards Pakistan was still the quickest route to national unity, with many Indians taking great pride in the knowledge that their country had developed a nuclear weapons program to match Pakistan's, untroubled by the fact that a single miscalculation by either side could risk regional annihilation. Most of all, India's politics still revolved around religion, clan, and caste. In that sense, Singh's elevation as prime minister, sometimes heralded as a hallmark of the country's progress in overcoming sectarian divides, was somewhat deceiving. He hadn't originally become prime minister as a result of his own popularity. In fact, he owed his position to Sonia Gandhi, the Italian-born widow of former prime minister Rajiv Gandhi and the head of the Congress party, who declined to take the job herself after leading her party coalition to victory and had instead anointed Singh. More than one political observer believed that she'd chosen Singh precisely because, as an elderly Sikh with no national political base, he posed no threat to her 40-year-old son, Raul, whom she was grooming to take over the Congress party. Both Sonia and Raul Gandhi sat at our dinner table that night. She was a striking woman in her 60s, dressed in a traditional sari, with dark, probing eyes and a quiet, regal presence. That she, a former stay-at-home mother of European descent, had emerged from her grief after her husband was killed by a Sri Lankan separatist suicide bomb in 1991 to become a leading national politician, testified to the enduring power of the family dynasty. Rajiv was the grandson of Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first prime minister and an icon in the independence movement. His mother, Nehru's daughter, Indira Gandhi, had spent a total of 16 years as prime minister herself relying on a more ruthless brand of politics than her father had practiced, until 1984 when she, too, was assassinated. At dinner that night, Sonia Gandhi listened more than she spoke, careful to defer to Singh when policy matters came up, and often steered the conversation toward her son. It became clear to me, though, that her power was attributable to a shrewd and forceful intelligence. As for Rahul, he seemed smart and earnest, his good looks resembling his mother's. He offered up his thoughts on the future of progressive politics, occasionally pausing to probe me on the details of my 2008 campaign. But there was a nervous, unformed quality about him, as if he were a student who'd done the coursework and was eager to impress the teacher, but deep down lacked either the aptitude or the passion to master the subject. As it was getting late, I noticed Singh fighting off sleep, lifting his glass every so often to wake himself up with a sip of water. I signaled to Michelle that it was time to say our goodbyes. The Prime Minister and his wife walked us to our car. In the dim light, he looked frail, older than his 78 years. And as we drove off, I wondered what would happen when he left office. Would the baton be successfully passed to Raoul, 
fulfilling the destiny laid out by his mother, and preserving the Congress Party's dominance over the divisive nationalism touted by the BJP. Somehow, I was doubtful. It wasn't Singh's fault. He had done his part, following the playbook of liberal democracies across the post-Cold War world, upholding the constitutional order, attending to the quotidian, often technical work of boosting the GDP and expanding the social safety net. Like me, he had come to believe that this was all any of us could expect from democracy, especially in big, multi-ethnic, multi-religious societies like India and the United States. Not revolutionary leaps or major cultural overhauls. Not a fix for every social pathology or lasting answers for those in search of purpose and meaning in their lives. Just the observance of rules that allowed us to sort out or at least tolerate our differences and government policies that raised living standards and improved education enough to temper humanity's baser impulses. Except now, I found myself asking whether those impulses of violence, greed, corruption, nationalism, racism, and religious intolerance, the all-too-human desire to beat back our own uncertainty and mortality and sense of insignificance by subordinating others, were too strong for any democracy to permanently contain for they seemed to lie in wait everywhere, ready to resurface whenever growth rates stalled or demographics changed or a charismatic leader chose to ride the wave of people's fears and resentments. And as much as I might have wished otherwise, there was no Mahatma Gandhi around to tell me what I might do to hold such impulses back. Historically, congressional ambitions tend to be low during the six- or seven-week stretch between Election Day and the Christmas recess especially with a shift in party control about to happen. The dispirited losers just want to go home. The winners want to run out the clock until the new Congress gets sworn in. On January 5, 2011, we'd be seating the most Republican House of Representatives since 1947, which meant I'd be unable to get any legislation called for a vote, much less passed, without the assent of the incoming Speaker of the House, John Boehner. And if there was any question about his agenda... Boehner had already announced that the first bill he'd be calling to a vote was a total repeal of the ACA. We did, however, have a window of opportunity during the coming lame duck session. Having returned from my visit to Asia, I was intent on getting several key initiatives across the finish line before Congress adjourned for the holidays. Ratification of the new start on nuclear nonproliferation that we'd negotiated with the Russians. Repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the law that barred gays, lesbians, and bisexuals from openly serving in the military, and passage of the DREAM Act, which would establish a path to citizenship for a large swath of children of undocumented immigrants. Pete Rouse and Phil Shalero, who between them had nearly 70 years of Capitol Hill experience, looked dubious when I ran through my lame duck to-do list. Axe actually chortled. Is that it? He asked sarcastically. Actually, it wasn't. I'd forgotten to mention that we needed to pass a child nutrition bill that Michelle had made a central plank in her fight against childhood obesity. It's good policy, I said, and Michelle's team has done a great job lining up support from children's health advocates. Plus, if we don't get it passed, I won't be able to go home. I understood some of my staff's skepticism about trying to move such an ambitious agenda. Even if we could muster the 60 votes needed for each of those controversial bills, it wasn't clear that Harry Reid could get enough cooperation from Mitch McConnell to schedule so many votes in such a short time. Still, I didn't think I was being entirely delusional. 
almost every item on my list already had some legislative traction and had either cleared or seemed likely to clear the House. And while we hadn't had much luck overcoming GOP-led Senate filibusters previously, I knew that McConnell had a big-ticket item of his own that he desperately wanted to get done, passing a law to extend the so-called Bush tax cuts, which would otherwise automatically expire at the end of the year. This gave us leverage. I'd long opposed my predecessor's signature domestic legislation, laws passed in 2001 and 2003 that changed the U.S. tax code in ways that disproportionately benefited high-net-worth individuals while accelerating the trend of wealth and income inequality. Warren Buffett liked to point out that the law enabled him to pay taxes at a significantly lower rate, proportionate to his income, which came almost entirely from capital gains and dividends, than his secretary did on her salary. The law's changes to the estate tax alone had reduced the tax burden for the top 2% of America's richest families by more than $130 billion. Not only that, but by taking roughly $1.3 trillion in projected revenue out of the U.S. Treasury, the laws had helped turn a federal budget surplus under Bill Clinton into a burgeoning deficit, a deficit that many Republicans were now using to justify their calls for cuts to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the rest of America's social safety net. The Bush tax cuts might have been bad policy, but they had also modestly lowered the tax bills of most Americans, which made rolling them back politically tricky. Polls consistently showed a strong majority of Americans favoring higher taxes on the rich, but even well-to-do lawyers and doctors didn't consider themselves rich, especially if they lived in high-cost areas. And after a decade in which the bottom 90% of earners had seen stagnant wages, very few people thought their own taxes should go up. During the campaign, my team and I had settled on what we considered a policy sweet spot, proposing that the Bush tax cuts be repealed selectively, affecting only those families with income greater than $250,000 a year, or individuals earning more than $200,000. This approach had almost universal support from congressional Democrats would affect only the richest 2% of Americans and would still yield roughly $680 billion over the next decade, funds we could use to expand childcare, healthcare, job training, and education programs for the less well-off. I hadn't changed my mind on any of this. Getting the rich to pay more in taxes was not only a matter of fairness, but also the only way to fund new initiatives. But as had been true with so many of my campaign proposals, the financial crisis had forced me to rethink when we should try to do it. Early in my term, when it looked like the country might careen into a depression, my economic team had persuasively argued that any increase in taxes, even those targeting rich people and Fortune 500 companies, would be counterproductive, since it would take money out of the economy precisely at a time when we wanted individuals and businesses to get out there and spend. With the economy barely on the mend, the prospect of tax hikes still made the team nervous. And as it was, Mitch McConnell had threatened to block anything less than a full extension of the Bush tax cuts, which meant that our only option for getting rid of them right away, an option many progressive commentators urged us to take, involved doing nothing and simply letting everybody's tax rates automatically revert to higher Clinton-era levels on the 1st of January. Democrats could then return in the new year and propose replacement legislation that would reduce tax rates for Americans making less than $250,000 a year, essentially daring Republicans to vote no. 
it was a strategy we strongly considered. But Joe Biden and our legislative team worried that given how badly we'd lost the midterms, centrist Democrats might break ranks on the issue, and then Republicans would use those defections to marshal a vote that made the tax cuts permanent. Politics aside, the problem with playing chicken with the GOP, I decided, was the immediate impact it would have on a still fragile economy. Even if we could hold our Democrats in line and Republicans ultimately buckled under the pressure, it still could take months to get any tax legislation through a divided Congress. In the meantime, middle and working class Americans would have smaller paychecks. Businesses would rein in their investments even further. The stock market would tank again, and the economy would almost certainly end up back in a recession. After gaming out various scenarios, I sent Joe up to Capitol Hill to negotiate with McConnell. We would support a two-year extension of all the Bush tax cuts, but only if Republicans agreed to extend emergency unemployment benefits, the Recovery Act's lower to middle-class tax credit, known as making work pay, and another package of refundable tax credits benefiting the working poor for an equivalent period. McConnell immediately balked. Having previously declared that, quote, the single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president, he was apparently loath to let me claim that I'd cut taxes for the majority of Americans without Republicans having forced me to do it. I couldn't say I was surprised. One of the reasons I'd chosen Joe to act as an intermediary, in addition to his Senate experience and legislative acumen, was my awareness that in McConnell's mind, negotiating with the vice president didn't inflame the Republican base in quite the same way that any appearance of cooperating with black Muslim socialist Obama was bound to do. After a lot of back and forth, and after we'd agreed to swap the making work pay tax credit for a payroll tax cut, McConnell finally relented, and on December 6, 2010, I was able to announce that a comprehensive agreement had been reached. From a policy perspective, we were pleased with the outcome. While it was painful to keep the tax cuts for the wealthy in place for another two years, we'd managed to extend tax relief for middle-class families while leveraging an additional $212 billion worth of economic stimulus specifically targeted at those Americans most in need, the kind of package we'd have no chance of passing through a Republican-controlled House as a standalone bill. As for the politics behind the deal, I explained to Valerie that the two-year time frame represented a high-stakes wager between the Republicans and me. I was betting that in November 2012, I'd be coming off a successful re-election campaign allowing me to end the tax cuts for the wealthy from a position of strength. They were betting that they'd beat me, and that a new Republican president would help them make the Bush tax cuts permanent. The fact that the deal left so much riding on the next presidential election might explain why it immediately provoked outrage from left-leaning commentators. They accused me of caving to McConnell and Boehner, and of being compromised by my buddies on Wall Street and advisors like Larry and Tim. They warned that the payroll tax cut would weaken the Social Security trust funds, that the refundable tax credits benefiting the working poor would prove ephemeral, and that in two years' time, the Bush tax cuts for the wealthy would be made permanent, just like the Republicans had always wanted. In other words, they too expected me to lose. As it so happened, the same mid-December week we announced the deal with McConnell, Bill Clinton joined me in the Oval Office dining room for a visit. Whatever tensions had existed between us during the campaign had largely dissipated by then, and I found it useful to hear the lessons he'd learned after suffering a similar midterm shellacking at the hands of Newt Gingrich in 1994. At some point, 
we got into the nitty-gritty of the tax agreement I just made. And Clinton couldn't have been more enthusiastic. You need to tell that to some of our friends, I said, noting the blowback we were getting from certain Democratic circles. If I have a chance, I will, Clinton said. That gave me an idea. How about you get the chance right now? Before he could answer, I walked over to Katie's desk and asked her to have the press team rustle up any correspondents who were in the building. Fifteen minutes later, Bill Clinton and I stepped into the White House briefing room. Explaining to the startled reporters that they might like to get some perspective on our tax deal from the person who'd overseen just about the best U.S. economy we'd experienced in recent history, I turned the podium over to Clinton. It didn't take long for the former president to own the room, mustering all his raspy voice, lip-biting Arkansas charm, to make the case for our deal with McConnell. In fact, shortly after the impromptu press conference began, I realized I had another commitment to get to. But Clinton was clearly enjoying himself so much that I didn't want to cut him off. Instead, I leaned into the microphone to say that I had to leave, but that President Clinton could stick around. Later, I asked Gibbs how the whole thing had played. The coverage was great, Gibbs said, though a few of the talking heads said that you'd diminished yourself by giving Clinton the platform. I wasn't too worried about that. I knew that Clinton's poll numbers were a whole lot higher than mine at the time, partly because the conservative press that had once vilified him now found it useful to offer him up as a contrast to me, the kind of reasonable, centrist Democrat, they said, that Republicans could work with. His endorsement would help us sell the deal to the broader public and tamp down any potential rebellion among congressional Democrats. It was an irony that I, like many modern leaders, eventually learned to live with. You never looked as smart as the ex-president did on the sidelines. Our temporary detente with McConnell on taxes allowed us to focus on the rest of my lame duck to-do list. Michelle's child nutrition bill had already received enough Republican support to pass in early December with relatively little fuss. Despite accusations from Sarah Palin, now a Fox News commentator, that Michelle was intent on taking away the freedom of American parents to feed their children as they saw fit. Meanwhile, the House was working through the details of a food safety bill that would pass later in the month. Ratifying New START in the Senate proved more challenging, not only because, as a treaty, it required 67 rather than 60 votes, but because domestically there was no strong constituency clamoring to get it done. I had to nag Harry Reid to prioritize the issue during the lame duck sessions, explaining that U.S. credibility, not to mention my own standing with other world leaders, was at stake, and that a failure to ratify the treaty would undermine our efforts to enforce sanctions against Iran and get other countries to tighten up their own nuclear security. Once I got Harry's grudging commitment to bring the treaty up for a vote, I don't know how I'll find the floor time, Mr. President, he grumbled over the phone. But if you tell me it's important, I'll do my best, okay? We went to work lining up Republican votes. The Joint Chief's endorsement of the treaty helped. So did strong support from my old friend Dick Luger, who remained the ranking Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and rightly viewed New START as an extension of his earlier work on nuclear nonproliferation. Even so, closing the deal required me to commit to a multi-year, multi-billion dollar modernization of the infrastructure around the United States nuclear stockpile at the insistence of conservative Arizona Senator John Kyle. Given my long-term goal of eliminating nuclear weapons, not to mention all the better ways I could think of to use billions of federal dollars, this concession felt like a devil's bargain, though our in-house experts, many of whom were dedicated to nuclear disarmament, 
assured me that our aging nuclear weapon systems did need upgrades in order to reduce the risk of a catastrophic miscalculation or accident. And when New START finally cleared the Senate by a 71 to 26 vote, I breathed a big sigh of relief. The White House never looked more beautiful than during the holiday season. Huge pine wreaths with red velvet bows lined the walls along the colonnade and the main corridor of the East Wing, and the oaks and magnolias in the Rose Garden were strewn with lights. The official White House Christmas tree, a majestic fir delivered by horse-drawn carriage, occupied most of the Blue Room, but trees almost as spectacular filled nearly every public space in the residence. Over the course of three days, an army of volunteers organized by the social office decorated the trees, halls, and grand foyer with a dazzling array of ornaments, while the White House pastry chefs prepared an elaborate gingerbread replica of the residence, complete with furniture, curtains, and, during my presidency, a miniature version of bow. The holiday season also meant we hosted parties practically every afternoon and evening for three and a half weeks straight. These were big, festive affairs with three to four hundred guests at a time, laughing and chomping on lamb chops and crab cakes and drinking eggnog and wine, while members of the United States Marine Band, spiffy in their red coats, played all the holiday standards. For me and Michelle, the afternoon parties were easy. We just dropped by for a few minutes to wish everyone well from behind a rope line. But the evening events called for us to position ourselves in the diplomatic reception room for two hours or more posing for photos with nearly every guest. Michelle didn't mind doing this at the parties we hosted for the families of Secret Service personnel and the residence staff, despite what standing in heels for that long did to her feet. Her holiday spirits dimmed, however, when it came to fetting members of Congress and the political media. Maybe it was because they demanded more attention. Stop making so much small talk, she'd whisper to me during momentary breaks in the action or because some of the same people who regularly appeared on TV calling for her husband's head on a spike somehow had the nerve to put their arm around her and smile for the camera as if they were her best high school chums. Back in the West Wing, much of my team's energy in the weeks before Christmas went toward pushing through the two most controversial bills left on my docket, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, or DADT, and the DREAM Act. Alongside abortion, guns, and just about anything to do with race, the issues of LGBTQ rights and immigration had occupied center stage in America's culture wars for decades, in part because they raised the most basic question in our democracy. Namely, who do we consider a true member of the American family, deserving of the same rights, respect, and concern that we expect for ourselves? I believed in defining that family broadly. It included gay people as well as straight, and it included immigrant families that had put down roots and raised kids here, even if they hadn't come through the front door. How could I believe otherwise, when some of the same arguments for their exclusion had so often been used to exclude those who looked like me? That's not to say that I dismissed those with different views on LGBTQ and immigration rights as heartless bigots. For one thing, I had enough self-awareness, or at least a good enough memory, to know that my own attitudes towards gays lesbians, and transgender people hadn't always been particularly enlightened. I grew up in the 1970s, a time when LGBTQ life was far less visible to those outside the community, so that Toot's sister, and one of my favorite relatives, Aunt Arlene, felt obliged to introduce her partner of 20 years as my close friend Marge 
whenever she visited us in Hawaii. And, like so many teenage boys in those years, my friends and I sometimes threw around words like fag or gay at each other as casual put-downs, callow attempts to fortify our masculinity and hide our insecurities. Once I got to college and became friends with fellow students and professors who were openly gay, though, I realized the over-discrimination and hate they were subject to, as well as the loneliness and self-doubt that the dominant culture imposed on them. I felt ashamed for my past behavior and learned to do better. As for immigration, during my youth, I'd given the issue little thought, beyond the vague mythology of Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty transmitted through popular culture. The progression of my thinking came later, when my organizing work in Chicago introduced me to the predominantly Mexican communities of Pilsen and Little Village, neighborhoods where the usual categories of native-born Americans, naturalized citizens, green card holders, and undocumented immigrants all but dissolved, since many, if not most, families included all four. Over time, people shared with me what it was like to have to hide your background, always afraid that the life you'd worked so hard to build might be upended in an instant. They talked about the sheer exhaustion and expense of dealing with an often heartless or arbitrary immigration system, the sense of helplessness that came with having to work for employers who took advantage of your immigration status to pay you sub-minimum wages. The friendships I made and the stories I heard in those Chicago neighborhoods, and from LGBTQ people during college and my early career, had opened my heart to the human dimensions of issues that I'd once thought of mainly in abstract terms. For me, the don't ask, don't tell situation was straightforward. I considered a policy that prevented LGBTQ persons from openly serving in our military to be both offensive to American ideals and corrosive to the armed forces. Don't ask, don't tell was the result of a flawed compromise between Bill Clinton, who'd campaigned on the idea of ending the outright ban on LGBTQ people serving in the military, and his joint chiefs, who'd insisted that such a change would damage morale and retention. Since going into effect in 1994, Don't Ask, Don't Tell had done little to protect or dignify anyone, and, in fact, had led to the discharge of more than 13,000 service members solely due to their sexual orientation. Those who remained had to hide who they were and who they loved, unable to safely put up family pictures in their workspaces or attend social functions on base with their partners. As the first African-American commander-in-chief, I felt a special responsibility to end the policy. Mindful that blacks in the military had traditionally faced institutional prejudice and been barred from leadership roles, and for decades had been forced to serve in segregated units, a policy Harry Truman had finally ended with an executive order in 1948. The question was how best to accomplish the change. From the outset, LGBTQ advocates urged me to follow Truman's example and simply issue an order to reverse the policy particularly since I'd already used executive orders and memoranda to address other regulations adversely affecting LGBTQ people, including the granting of hospital visitation rights and the extension of benefits to domestic partners of federal employees. But in short-circuiting the consensus building involved in passing legislation, an executive order increased the likelihood of resistance to the new policy inside the military and foot-dragging in its implementation. And, of course, a future president could always reverse an executive order with the mere stroke of a pen. I'd concluded that the optimal solution was to get Congress to act. To do that, I needed the military's top leaders as active and willing partners, which, in the middle of two wars, I knew wouldn't be easy. 
previous Joint Chiefs had opposed repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, reasoning that the integration of openly gay service members might adversely impact unit cohesion and discipline. Congressional opponents of repeal, including John McCain, claimed that introducing such a disruptive new policy during wartime amounted to a betrayal of our troops. To their credit, though, Bob Gates and Mike Mullen didn't flinch when I told them, early in my term, that I intended to reverse Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Gates said that he'd already asked his staff to quietly begin internal planning on the issue, less out of any personal enthusiasm for the policy change than out of a practical concern that federal courts might ultimately find Don't Ask, Don't Tell unconstitutional and force a change on the military overnight. Rather than try to talk me out of my position, he and Mullen asked that I let them set up a task force to evaluate the implications of the proposed change on military operations, which would ultimately conduct a comprehensive survey of troops' attitudes towards having openly gay members in their ranks. The objective, Gates said, was to minimize disruption and division. If you're going to do this, Mr. President, Gates added, we should at least be able to tell you how to do it right. I warned Gates and Mullen that I didn't consider discrimination against LGBTQ people to be an issue subject to plebiscite. Nevertheless, I agreed to the request, partly because I trusted them to set up an honest evaluation process, but mainly because I suspected that the survey would show our troops, most of whom were decades younger than the high-ranking generals, to be more open-minded toward gays and lesbians than people expected. Appearing before the Senate Armed Services Committee on February 2, 2010, Gates further validated my trust when he said, quote, I fully support the president's decision to re-examine Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But it was Mike Mullen's testimony before the committee that same day that really made news, as he became the first sitting senior U.S. military leader in history to publicly argue that LGBTQ persons should be allowed to openly serve. Mr. Chairman, he said, speaking for myself and myself only, it is my personal belief that allowing gays and lesbians to serve openly would be the right thing to do. No matter how I look at this issue, I cannot escape being troubled by the fact that we have in place a policy which forces young men and women to lie about who they are in order to defend their fellow citizens. For me personally, it comes down to integrity. Theirs as individuals and ours as an institution. Nobody in the White House had coordinated with Mullen on the statement. I'm not even sure the Gates had known ahead of time what Mullen planned to say. But his unequivocal statement immediately shifted the public debate and created important political cover for fence-sitting senators, who could then feel justified in embracing the repeal. Mullen's testimony came months before the evaluation process he and Gates had requested was completed, which caused some political headaches. Proponents of repeal started coming hard at us, both privately and in the press, unable to understand why I wouldn't simply issue an executive order when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs supported a policy change, especially because, while we took our sweet time with a survey, LGBTQ service members were still being discharged. Valerie and her team bore the brunt of the friendly fire, particularly Brian Bond, a highly regarded gay activist who served as our principal liaison to the community. For months, Brian had to defend my decision-making, as skeptical friends, former colleagues, and members of the press suggested that he'd been co-opted, questioning his commitment to the cause. I can only imagine the toll this took on him personally. The criticism grew louder in September 2010, when, as Gates had predicted, 
a federal district court in California ruled that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was unconstitutional. I asked Gates to formally suspend all discharges while the case was appealed. But no matter how hard I pressed, he repeatedly refused my request, arguing that as long as Don't Ask, Don't Tell was in place, he was obligated to enforce it, and I knew that ordering him to do something he considered inappropriate might force me to have to find a new defense secretary. It was perhaps the only time I came close to yelling at Gates, and not just because I considered his legal analysis faulty. He seemed to consider the frustrations we were hearing from LGBTQ advocates, not to mention the anguished stories of gay and lesbian service members who were under his charge, as one more bit of politics from which I should shield him in the Pentagon, rather than a central consideration in his own decision-making. Ultimately, he did at least modify Don't Ask, Don't Tell's administrative procedures in such a way that nearly all actual discharges were halted while we awaited resolution on the issue. Mercifully, toward the end of that same month, the results from the troop study finally came in. They confirmed what I'd suspected. Two-thirds of those surveyed thought that allowing those gay, lesbian, and bisexual colleagues to serve openly would have little or no impact on or might actually improve the military's ability to execute its missions. In fact, most troops believed that they were either already working or had worked with LGBTQ service members and had experienced no difference in their ability to perform their duties. Get exposed to other people's truths, I thought, and attitudes change. With the survey in hand, Gates and Mullen officially endorsed the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Meeting with me in the Oval Office, the other Joint Chiefs pledged to implement the policy without undue delay. In fact, General James Amos, the Marine Commandant and a firm opponent of repeal, drew smiles when he said, I can promise you, Mr. President, that none of these other branches are going to do it faster or better than the U.S. Marine Corps. And on December 18th, the Senate passed the bill 65-31. to 31 with eight Republican votes. A few days later, former and current LGBTQ service members filled an auditorium at the Department of the Interior as I signed the bill. Many were in dress uniform, their faces expressing a medley of joy, pride, relief, and tears. As I addressed the crowd, I saw a number of the advocates who'd been some of our fiercest critics just a few weeks earlier, now smiling in appreciation. Spotting Brian Bond, I gave him a nod. But the biggest applause that day was reserved for Mike Mullen, a long, heartfelt standing ovation. As I watched the Admiral standing on the stage, visibly moved despite the awkward grin on his face, I couldn't have been happier for him. It wasn't often, I thought, that a true act of conscience is recognized that way. When it came to immigration, everyone agreed that the system was broken. The process of immigrating legally to the United States could take a decade or longer, often depending on what country you were coming from and how much money you had. Meanwhile, the economic gulf between us and our southern neighbors drove hundreds of thousands of people to illegally cross the 1,933-mile U.S.-Mexico border each year, searching for work and a better life. Congress had spent billions to harden the border, with fencing, cameras, drones, and an expanded and increasingly militarized border patrol. But rather than stop the flow of immigrants, these steps had spurred an industry of smugglers, coyotes, who made big money transporting human cargo in barbaric and sometimes deadly fashion. 
And although border crossings by poor Mexican and Central American migrants received most of the attention from politicians and the press, about 40% of America's unauthorized immigrants arrived through airports or other legal ports of entry and then overstayed their visas. By 2010, an estimated 11 million undocumented persons were living in the United States, in large part thoroughly woven into the fabric of American life. Many were longtime residents, with children who were either U.S. citizens by virtue of having been born on American soil or had been brought to the United States at such an early age that they were American in every respect except for a piece of paper. Entire sectors of the U.S. economy relied on their labor, as undocumented immigrants were often willing to do the toughest, dirtiest work for meager pay, picking the fruits and vegetables that stocked our grocery stores, mopping the floors of offices, washing dishes at restaurants, and providing care to the elderly. But although American consumers benefited from this invisible workforce, many feared that immigrants were taking jobs from citizens, burdening social service programs, and changing the nation's racial and cultural makeup which led to demands for the government to crack down on illegal immigration. This sentiment was strongest among Republican constituencies, egged on by an increasingly nativist right-wing press. However, the politics didn't fall neatly along partisan lines. The traditionally Democratic trade union rank and file, for example, saw the growing presence of undocumented workers on construction sites as threatening their livelihoods, while Republican-leaning business groups interested in maintaining a steady supply of cheap labor or in the case of Silicon Valley, foreign-born computer programmers and engineers often took pro-immigration positions. Back in 2007, the maverick version of John McCain, along with his sidekick Lindsey Graham, had actually joined Ted Kennedy to put together a comprehensive reform bill that offered citizenship to millions of undocumented immigrants while more tightly securing our borders. Despite strong support from President Bush, it had failed to clear the Senate. The bill did, however, receive 12 Republican votes, indicating the real possibility of a future bipartisan accord. I'd pledged during the campaign to resurrect similar legislation once elected, and I'd appointed former Arizona Governor Janet Napolitano as head of the Department of Homeland Security, the agency that oversaw U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, and U.S. Customs and Border Protection partly because of her knowledge of border issues and her reputation for having previously managed immigration in a way that was both compassionate and tough. My hopes for a bill had thus far been dashed. With the economy in crisis and Americans losing jobs, few in Congress had any appetite to take on a hot-button issue like immigration. Kennedy was gone. McCain, having been criticized by the right flank for his relatively moderate immigration stance, showed little interest in taking up the banner again. Worse yet, my administration was deporting undocumented workers at an accelerating rate. This wasn't a result of any directive from me, but rather it stemmed from a 2008 congressional mandate that both expanded ICE's budget and increased collaboration between ICE and local law enforcement departments in an effort to deport more undocumented immigrants with criminal records. My team and I had made a strategic choice not to immediately try to reverse the policies we'd inherited, in large part because we didn't want to provide ammunition to critics who claimed that Democrats weren't willing to enforce existing immigration laws, a perception that we thought could torpedo our chances of passing a future reform bill. But by 2010, immigrant rights and Latino advocacy groups were criticizing our lack of progress, much the same way LGBTQ activists had gone after us on Don't Ask, Don't Tell. 
and although I continued to urge Congress to pass immigration reform, I had no realistic path for delivering a new, comprehensive law before the midterms. Enter the DREAM Act. The idea that young, undocumented immigrants who'd been brought to the United States as children could be given some sort of relief had been floating around for years, and at least ten versions of the DREAM Act had been introduced in Congress since 2001, each time failing to garner the needed votes. Advocates often presented it as a partial but meaningful step on the road to wider reform. The act would grant dreamers, as these young people had come to be called, temporary legal residence and a pathway to citizenship so long as they met certain criteria. According to the most recent bill, they had to have entered the United States before the age of 16, lived here for five continuous years, graduated from high school or obtained a GED, and attended college for two years or joined the military, and they could have no serious criminal record. Individual states could make DREAMers legally eligible for reduced tuition rates at public colleges and universities, the only realistic way many of them could afford higher education. DREAMers had grown up going to American schools, playing American sports, watching American TV, and hanging out at American malls. In some cases, their parents had never even told them they weren't citizens. They learned of their undocumented status only when they tried to get a driver's license or submitted an application for college financial aid. I'd had a chance to meet many dreamers, both before and after I entered the White House. They were smart, poised, and resilient, as full of potential as my own daughters. If anything, I found the dreamers to be less cynical about America than many of their native-born contemporaries, precisely because their circumstances had taught them not to take life in this country for granted. The case for allowing such young people to stay in the United States the only country many of them had ever known, was so morally compelling that Kennedy and McCain had incorporated the DREAM Act into their 2007 immigration bill. And without the prospect of passing a more comprehensive rewrite of U.S. immigration laws in the immediate future, Harry Reid, who in the months leading up to the midterms had been locked in a tight re-election contest in his home state of Nevada and needed a strong Hispanic turnout to put him over the top, had promised to call the DREAM Act for a vote during the lame duck session. Unfortunately, Harry made this last-minute announcement on the campaign trail without giving us, his Senate colleagues, or immigration reform groups any notice. Though not thrilled with Harry's lack of coordination with her, you'd think he could have picked up the phone. Nancy Pelosi did her part, quickly pushing the legislation through the House. But in the Senate, McCain and Graham denounced Harry's decision as a campaign stunt and said that they wouldn't vote for the DREAM Act as a standalone bill since it was no longer linked to increased enforcement. The five Republican senators who'd voted for the 2007 McCain-Kennedy bill and were still in office were less declarative about their intentions, but all sounded wobbly. And since we couldn't count on every Democrat to support the bill, especially after the disastrous midterms, all of us in the White House found ourselves scrambling to drum up the 60 votes needed to overcome a filibuster during the waning days before the Senate wrapped up business for the year. Cecilia Munoz, the White House Director of Intergovernmental Affairs, was our point person on the effort. When I was a senator, she'd been the Senior Vice President of Policy and Legislative Affairs at the National Council of La Raza, the nation's largest Latino advocacy organization. And ever since, she'd advised me on immigration and other issues. Born and raised in Michigan and the daughter of Bolivian immigrants, Cecilia was measured, modest, and, as I used to joke with her, just plain nice. 
bringing to mind everyone's favorite young elementary or middle school teacher. She was also tough and tenacious, and a fanatical Michigan football fan. Within a matter of weeks, she and her team had launched an all-out media blitz in support of the DREAM Act, pitching stories, marshalling statistics, and enlisting practically every cabinet member and agency, including the Defense Department, to host some kind of event. Most important, Cecilia helped bring together a crew of young dreamers who were willing to disclose their undocumented status in order to share their personal stories with undecided senators and media outlets. Several times, Cecilia and I talked about the courage of these young people, agreeing that at their age we could never have managed such pressure. I just want to win so bad for them, she told me. And yet, despite the countless hours we spend in meetings and on the phone, the likelihood of getting 60 votes for the DREAM Act began to look increasingly bleak. One of our best prospects was Claire McCaskill, the Democratic senator from Missouri. Claire was one of my early supporters and best friends in the Senate, a gifted politician with a razor-sharp wit, a big heart, and not an ounce of hypocrisy or pretension. But she also came from a conservative, Republican-leaning state and was a juicy target for the GOP in its effort to wrest back control of the Senate. You know I want to help those kids, Mr. President, Claire said when I reached her by phone. But the polling in Missouri is just terrible on anything related to immigration. If I vote for this, there's a good chance I lose my seat. I knew she wasn't wrong. And if she lost, we might lose the Senate, along with any possibility of ever getting the DREAM Act or comprehensive immigration reform or anything else passed. How was I to weigh that risk against the urgent fates of the young people I'd met? the uncertainty and fear they were forced to live with every single day, the possibility that with no notice, any one of them might be rounded up in an ice raid, detained in a cell, and shipped off to a land that was as foreign to them as it would be to me. Before hanging up, Claire and I made a deal to help square the circle. If your vote's the one that gets us to 60, I said, then those kids are going to need you, Claire. But if we're way short, there's no point in you falling on your sword. The Senate voted on the DREAM Act on a cloudy Saturday a week before Christmas, the same day it voted to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I watched on the small TV in the Oval Office with Pete Souza, Reggie, and Katie as the roll call appeared, tallying the votes in favor. 40, 50, 52, 55. There was a pause, the chamber in a state of suspension, a last chance for a senator to change their mind, until the gavel finally fell we'd come up five votes short. I took the stairs up to the second floor of the West Wing and headed to Cecilia's office, where she and her young team had been watching the vote. Most of the room was in tears, and I gave everybody hugs. I reminded them that because of their work, we'd come closer to passing the DREAM Act than any previous effort, and that it would be our job to keep pushing as long as we were here until we finally met our goal. Everyone nodded quietly, and I went back downstairs. On my desk, Katie had left a printout of the roll call. Running my fingers down the page, I noticed that Claire McCaskill had voted yay. I asked Katie to get Claire on the phone. I thought you were a no unless the bill was close, I said when she picked up. Damn it, Mr. President, I thought so too, Claire said. But when it came time to record my vote and I started thinking about those kids who'd come by my office, her voice caught in her throat, thick with emotion. I just couldn't do it to them. I couldn't let them think I didn't care. Anyway, she went on, composing herself. 
Looks like you're going to have to help me raise a whole lot of money so I can beat back those Republican ads calling me soft on immigration. I promised Claire I would, even though there'd be no bill-signing ceremony for her to attend and no audience to give her a standing ovation. I believe that my friend's quiet exercise of conscience, no less than Mike Mullins, was one more step toward a better country. Our failure to pass the DREAM Act was a bitter pill to swallow. Still, all of us in the White House took heart in the fact that we'd managed to pull off the most significant lame-duck session in modern history. In six weeks, the House and Senate had together clocked a remarkable 48 days in session and enacted 99 laws, more than a quarter of the 111th Congress's total legislation over two years. What's more, the public seemed to notice the burst of congressional productivity. Acts reported a rise in both consumer confidence and my approval ratings. Not because my message or policies had changed, but because Washington had gotten a bunch of stuff done. It was as if, for the span of a month and a half, democracy was normal again, with the usual give and take between parties, the push and pull of interest groups, the mixed blessing of compromise. What more might we have accomplished, I wondered? And how much further along would the economic recovery be? Had this sort of atmosphere prevailed from the start of my term. Part 7. On the High Wire Chapter 25 If, at the end of 2010, anyone had asked me where the next major Middle East crisis would most likely occur, I could have offered them a rich menu of possibilities. There was Iraq, of course, where despite progress, it often felt as if a return to chaos was just a market bombing or militia attack away. The international sanctions we'd imposed on Iran in response to its nuclear program had started to cause some pain, and any defiance or desperation from the regime could lead to a confrontation that spun out of control. Yemen, one of the world's true hard luck cases, had become headquarters to al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which was now the deadliest and most active chapter of the terrorist network. And then there were the few hundred miles of winding, contested border that separated Israel from the Palestinian territories of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Mine was hardly the first U.S. administration to lose sleep over those relatively thin pieces of real estate. The conflict between Arabs and Jews had been an open sore on the region for almost a century, dating back to the 1917 Balfour Declaration, in which the British, who were then occupying Palestine, committed to create a, quote, national home for the Jewish people in a region overwhelmingly populated by Arabs. Over the next 20 or so years, Zionist leaders mobilized a surge of Jewish migration to Palestine and organized a highly trained armed forces to defend their settlements. In 1947, in the wake of World War II and in the shadow of the Holocaust's unspeakable crimes, the United Nations approved a partition plan to establish two sovereign states, one Jewish, the other Arab, with Jerusalem, a city considered holy by Muslims, Christians, and Jews alike, to be governed by an international body. Zionist leaders embraced the plan, but Arab Palestinians, as well as surrounding Arab nations that were also just emerging from colonial rule, strenuously objected. As Britain withdrew, the two sides quickly fell into war, and with Jewish militias claiming victory in 1948, the state of Israel was officially born. For the Jewish people, it was a dream fulfilled, a state of their own in their historic homeland after centuries of exile, religious persecution, and the more recent horrors of the Holocaust. 
but for the roughly 700,000 Arab Palestinians who found themselves stateless and driven from their lands. The same events would be part of what became known as the Nakba, or catastrophe. For the next three decades, Israel would engage in a succession of conflicts with its Arab neighbors, most significantly the Six-Day War of 1967, in which a greatly outnumbered Israeli military routed the combined armies of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. In the process, Israel seized control of the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan, the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, and the Golan Heights from Syria. The memory of those losses and the humiliation that came with it became a defining aspect of Arab nationalism and support for the Palestinian cause, a central tenet of Arab foreign policy. Meanwhile, Palestinians living within the occupied territories, mostly in refugee camps, found themselves governed by the Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, with their movements and economic activity severely restricted, prompting calls for armed resistance and resulting in the rise of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO. Arab politicians routinely denounced Israel, often in explicitly anti-Semitic terms, and most governments in the region embraced the PLO's chairman, Yasser Arafat, as a freedom fighter even as his organization and its affiliates engaged in escalating and bloody terrorist attacks against unarmed civilians. The United States was no bystander in all this. Jewish Americans had suffered generations of discrimination in their own country, but they and other Jews emigrating from the West to Israel still shared language, customs, and appearance with their white Christian brethren, and in comparison to Arabs, they still enjoyed far more sympathy from the American public. Harry Truman had been the first foreign leader to formally recognize Israel as a sovereign state, and the American Jewish community pressed U.S. officials to assist the fledgling nation. With the world's two Cold War superpowers vying for influence in the Middle East, the United States became Israel's primary patron, and with that, Israel's problems with its neighbors became America's problems as well. Practically every U.S. president since then had tried to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict with varying degrees of success. The historic Camp David Accords, brokered in 1978 by Jimmy Carter, achieved a lasting peace between Israel and Egypt and returned Sinai to Egyptian control. The agreement, which yielded a Nobel Peace Prize for the Israeli Prime Minister, Menachem Begin, and the Egyptian President, Anwar Sadat, also moved Egypt further out of the Soviet orbit and made the two countries critical U.S. security partners as well as the largest recipients of U.S. economic and military aid in the world, by a wide margin. But it left the Palestinian issue unresolved. Fifteen years later, with the Cold War over and U.S. influence at its zenith, Bill Clinton brought Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Arafat together for the signing of the first Oslo Accord. In it, the PLO finally recognized Israel's right to exist, while Israel recognized the PLO as the rightful representative of the Palestinian people, and agreed to the creation of the Palestinian Authority, which would have limited but meaningful governance over the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Along with giving Jordan license to follow Egypt's example and conclude its own peace deal with Israel, Oslo provided a framework for the eventual creation of an autonomous Palestinian state, one that, ideally, would coexist with a secure Israel that was at peace with its neighbors. But old wounds and the lure of violence over compromise among factions on both sides, proved too much to overcome. Rabin was assassinated by a far-right Israeli extremist in 1995. His liberal successor, Shimon Peres, 
served for seven months before losing a snap election to Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu, leader of the right-wing Likud party, whose platform had once included total annexation of the Palestinian territories. Unhappy about the Oslo Accords, harder-line organizations like Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad set about undermining the credibility of Arafat and his Fatah party with Palestinians, calling for armed struggle to take back Arab lands and push Israel into the sea. After Netanyahu was defeated in the 1999 election, his more liberal successor, Ehud Barak, made efforts to establish a broader peace in the Middle East, including outlining a two-state solution that went further than any previous Israeli proposal. Arafat demanded more concessions, however, and talks collapsed in recrimination. Meanwhile, one day in September 2000, Likud party leader Ariel Sharon led a group of Israeli legislators on a deliberately provocative and highly publicized visit to one of Islam's holiest sites, Jerusalem's Temple Mount. It was a stunt designed to assert Israel's claim over the wider territory, one that challenged the leadership of Ehud Barak and enraged Arabs near and far. Four months later, Sharon became Israel's next prime minister, governing throughout what became known as the Second Intifada. Four years of violence between the two sides, marked by tear gas and rubber bullets directed at stone-throwing protesters, Palestinian suicide bombs detonated outside an Israeli nightclub and in buses carrying senior citizens and schoolchildren, deadly IDF retaliatory raids, and the indiscriminate arrest of thousands of Palestinians, and Hamas rockets launched from Gaza into Israeli border towns, answered by U.S.-supplied Israeli Apache helicopters leveling entire neighborhoods. Approximately 1,000 Israelis and 3,000 Palestinians died during this period, including scores of children. And by the time the violence subsided, in 2005, the prospects for resolving the underlying conflict had fundamentally changed. The Bush administration's focus on Iraq, Afghanistan, and the war on terror left it little bandwidth to worry about Middle East peace. And while Bush remained officially supportive of a two-state solution, he was reluctant to press Sharon on the issue. Publicly, Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states continued to offer support to the Palestinian cause, but they were increasingly more concerned with limiting Iranian influence and rooting out extremist threats to their own regimes. The Palestinians themselves had splintered after Arafat's death in 2004. Gaza came under control of Hamas and soon found itself under a tightly enforced Israeli blockade, while the Fatah-run Palestinian Authority, which continued to govern the West Bank, came to be viewed by even some of its supporters as feckless and corrupt. Most important, Israeli attitudes towards peace talks had hardened, in part because peace no longer seemed so crucial to ensuring the country's safety and prosperity. The Israel of the 1960s that remained lodged in the popular imagination, with its communal kibbutz living and periodic rationing of basic supplies, had been transformed into a modern economic powerhouse. It was no longer the plucky David surrounded by hostile Goliaths. Thanks to tens of billions of dollars in U.S. military aid, the Israeli armed forces were now matchless in the region. Terrorist bombings and attacks within Israel had all but ceased, due in some measure to the fact that Israel had erected a wall more than 400 miles long between itself and the Palestinian population centers in the West Bank, punctuated with strategically placed checkpoints to control the flow of Palestinian workers in and out of Israel. Every so often, rocket fire from Gaza still endangered those living in Israeli border towns, 
and the presence of Jewish-Israeli settlers in the West Bank sometimes triggered deadly skirmishes. For most residents of Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, however, the Palestinians lived largely out of sight, their struggles and resentments troubling but remote. Given everything that was already on my plate when I became president, it would have been tempting to just do my best to manage the status quo, quash any outbreaks of renewed violence between Israeli and Palestinian factions, and otherwise leave the whole mess alone. But taking into account the broader foreign policy concerns, I decided I couldn't go that route. Israel remained a key U.S. ally, and even with the threats reduced, it still endured terrorist attacks that jeopardized not only its citizens, but also the thousands of Americans who lived or traveled there. At the same time, just about every country in the world considered Israel's continued occupation of the Palestinian territories to be a violation of international law. As a result, our diplomats found themselves in the awkward position of having to defend Israel for actions that we ourselves opposed. U.S. officials also had to explain why it wasn't hypocritical for us to press countries like China or Iran on their human rights records, while showing little concern for the rights of Palestinians. Meanwhile, the Israeli occupation continued to inflame the Arab community and feed anti-American sentiment across the Muslim world. In other words, the absence of peace between Israel and the Palestinians made America less safe. Negotiating a workable solution between the two sides, on the other hand, stood to strengthen our security posture, weaken our enemies, and make us more credible in championing human rights around the world, all in one fell swoop. In truth, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict also weighed on me personally. Some of the earliest moral instruction I got from my mother revolved around the Holocaust, an unconscionable catastrophe that, like slavery, she explained, was rooted in the inability or unwillingness to recognize the humanity of others. Like many American kids of my generation, I'd had the story of Exodus etched in my brain. In sixth grade, I'd idealized the Israel described to me by a Jewish camp counselor who'd lived on a kibbutz, a place where everyone was equal, he said. Everyone pitched in, and everyone was welcome to share in the joys and struggles of repairing the world. In high school, I devoured the works of Philip Roth, Saul Bellow, and Norman Mailer, moved by stories of men trying to find their place in an America that didn't welcome them. Later, studying the early civil rights movement in college, I'd been intrigued by the influence of Jewish philosophers like Martin Buber on Dr. King's sermons and writings. I'd admired how, across issues, Jewish voters tended to be more progressive than just about any other ethnic group. And in Chicago, some of my most stalwart friends and supporters had come from the city's Jewish community. I believed there was an essential bond between the black and Jewish experiences a common story of exile and suffering that might ultimately be redeemed by a shared thirst for justice, a deeper compassion for others, a heightened sense of community. It made me fiercely protective of the right of the Jewish people to have a state of their own. Though ironically, those same shared values also made it impossible for me to ignore the conditions under which Palestinians in the occupied territories were forced to live. Yes, many of Arafat's tactics had been abhorrent. Yes, Palestinian leaders had too often missed opportunities for peace. There'd been no Havel or Gandhi to mobilize a nonviolent movement with the moral force to sway Israeli public opinion. And yet none of that negated the fact that millions of Palestinians lacked self-determination and many of the basic rights that even citizens of non-democratic countries enjoyed. Generations were growing up in a starved and shrunken world 
from which they literally couldn't escape, their daily lives subject to the whims of a distant, often hostile authority, and the suspicions of every blank-faced, rifle-carrying soldier demanding to see their papers at each checkpoint they passed. By the time I took office, though, most congressional Republicans had abandoned any pretense of caring about what happened to the Palestinians. Indeed, a strong majority of white evangelicals, the GOP's most reliable voting bloc, believed that the creation and gradual expansion of Israel fulfilled God's promise to Abraham and heralded Christ's eventual return. On the Democratic side, even stalwart progressives were loath to look less pro-Israel than Republicans, especially since many of them were Jewish themselves or represented sizable Jewish constituencies. Also, members of both parties worried about crossing the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC, a powerful bipartisan lobbying organization dedicated to ensuring unwavering U.S. support for Israel. APAC's clout could be brought to bear on virtually every congressional district in the country, and just about every politician in Washington, including me, counted APAC members among their key supporters and donors. In the past, the organization had accommodated a spectrum of views on Middle East peace, insisting mainly that those seeking its endorsement support a continuation of U.S. aid to Israel and oppose efforts to isolate or condemn Israel via the U.N. and other international bodies. But as Israeli politics had moved to the right, so had APAC's policy positions. Its staff and leaders increasingly argued that there should be, quote, no daylight between the U.S. and Israeli governments, even when Israel took actions that were contrary to U.S. policy. Those who criticized Israeli policy too loudly risked being tagged as anti-Israel and possibly anti-Semitic and confronted with a well-funded opponent in the next election. I'd been on the receiving end of some of this during my presidential campaign, as Jewish supporters reported having to beat back assertions in their synagogues and on email chains that I was insufficiently supportive of or even hostile toward Israel. They attributed these whisper campaigns not to any particular position I'd taken, my backing of a two-state solution in opposition to Israeli settlements were identical to the positions of the other candidates, but rather to my expressions of concern for ordinary Palestinians my friendships with certain critics of Israeli policy, including an activist and Middle East scholar named Rashid Khalidi, and the fact that, as Ben bluntly put it, you're a black man with a Muslim name who lived in the same neighborhood as Louis Farrakhan and went to Jeremiah Wright's church. On election day, I'd ended up getting more than 70% of the Jewish vote, but as far as many APAC board members were concerned, I remained suspect, a man of divided loyalties. Someone whose support for Israel, as one of Axe's friends colorfully put it, wasn't, quote, felt in his kishkas, or guts in Yiddish. You don't get progress on peace, Rahm had warned me in 2009, when the American president and the Israeli prime minister come from different political backgrounds. We'd been discussing the recent return of Bibi Netanyahu as Israel's prime minister. After the Likud party had managed to cobble together a right-leaning coalition government, despite winning one less seat than its main opponent, the more centrist Kadima party. Ram, who'd briefly been a civilian volunteer in the Israeli army and had sat in the front row at Bill Clinton's Oslo negotiations, had agreed that we should try to restart Israeli-Palestinian peace talks, if for no other reason than that it might keep the situation from getting worse. But he wasn't optimistic, and the more time I spent with Netanyahu and his Palestinian counterpart, Mahmoud Abbas, the more I understood why. 
Built like a linebacker, with a square jaw, broad features, and a gray comb-over, Netanyahu was smart, canny, tough, and a gifted communicator in both Hebrew and English. He'd been born in Israel, but spent most of his formative years in Philadelphia, and traces of that city's accent lingered in his polished baritone. His family had deep roots in the Zionist movement. His grandfather, a rabbi, emigrated from Poland to British-governed Palestine in 1920, while his father, a professor of history best known for his writings on the persecution of Jews during the Spanish Inquisition, became a leader in the movement's more militant wing before Israel's founding. Although raised in a secular household, Netanyahu inherited his father's devotion to the defense of Israel. He'd been a member of a special forces unit in the IDF and had fought in the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and his older brother had died a hero in the legendary Entebbe raid of 1976, in which Israeli commandos rescued 102 passengers from Palestinian terrorists who had hijacked an Air France flight. Whether Netanyahu also inherited his father's unabashed hostility towards Arabs, quote, the tendency toward conflict is in the essence of the Arab. He is an enemy by essence. His personality won't allow him any compromise or agreement, unquote. Was harder to say. What was certain was that he had built his entire political persona around an image of strength and the message that Jews couldn't afford phony pieties, that they lived in a tough neighborhood and so had to be tough. This philosophy neatly aligned him with the most hawkish members of APEC, as well as Republican officials and wealthy American right-wingers. Netanyahu could be charming or at least solicitous when it served his purposes. He'd gone out of his way, for example, to meet me in a Chicago airport lounge shortly after I'd been elected to the U.S. Senate, lavishing praise on me for an inconsequential pro-Israel bill I'd supported in the Illinois state legislature. But his vision of himself as the chief defender of the Jewish people against calamity allowed him to justify almost anything that would keep him in power, and his familiarity with American politics and media gave him confidence that he could resist whatever pressure a Democratic administration like mine might try to apply. My early discussions with Netanyahu, both over the phone and during his visits to Washington, had gone well enough, despite our very different worldviews. He was most interested in talking about Iran, which he rightly viewed as Israel's largest security threat, and we agreed to coordinate efforts to prevent Tehran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. But when I raised the possibility of restarting peace talks with the Palestinians, he was decidedly noncommittal. I want to assure you, Israel wants peace, Netanyahu said. But a true peace has to meet Israel's security needs. He made it clear to me that he thought Abbas was likely unwilling or unable to do so, a point he would also stress in public. I understood his point. If Netanyahu's reluctance to enter peace talks was born of Israel's growing strength, then the reluctance of Palestinian President Abbas was born of political weakness. White-haired and mustached, mild-mannered and deliberate in his movements. Abbas had helped Arafat found the Fatah party, which later became the dominant party of the PLO, spending most of his career managing diplomatic and administrative efforts in the shadow of the more charismatic chairman. He'd been the preferred choice of both the United States and Israel to lead the Palestinians after Arafat's death, in large part due to his unequivocal recognition of Israel and his long-standing renunciation of violence. But his innate caution and willingness to cooperate with the Israeli security apparatus, not to mention reports of corruption inside his administration, had damaged his reputation with his own people.
having already lost control of Gaza to Hamas in the 2006 legislative elections. He viewed peace talks with Israel as a risk not worth taking, at least not without some tangible concessions that would provide him political cover. The immediate question was how to coax Netanyahu and Abbas to the negotiating table. To come up with answers, I relied on a talented group of diplomats, starting with Hillary, who was well-versed on the issues and already had relationships with many of the region's major players. To underscore the high priority I placed on the issue, I appointed former Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell as my special envoy for Middle East peace. Mitchell was a throwback, a hard-driving, pragmatic politician with a thick Maine accent who had demonstrated his peacemaking skills by negotiating the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, which brought an end to the decades-long conflict between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. We began by calling for a temporary freeze on Israel's construction of new settlements in the West Bank, a significant sticking point between the two parties, so that negotiations might proceed in earnest. Settlement construction, once limited to small outposts of religious believers, had over time become de facto government policy. And in 2009, there were about 300,000 Israeli settlers living outside the country's recognized borders. Developers, meanwhile, continued to build tiny subdivisions in and around the West Bank and East Jerusalem, the disputed, predominantly Arab section of the city that Palestinians hoped to one day make their capital. All this was done with the blessing of politicians who either shared the religious convictions of the settler movement, saw the political benefit of catering to settlers, or were simply interested in alleviating Israel's housing crunch. For Palestinians, the explosion in settlements amounted to a slow-motion annexation of their land and stood as a symbol of the Palestinian Authority's impotence. We knew that Netanyahu would probably resist the idea of a freeze. The settlers had become a meaningful political force, their movement well represented within Netanyahu's coalition government. Moreover, he would complain that the good-faith gesture we'd be asking from the Palestinians in return, that Abbas and the Palestinian Authority take concrete steps to end incitements to violence inside the West Bank, was a great deal harder to measure. But given the asymmetry in power between Israel and the Palestinians, there wasn't much, after all, that Abbas could give the Israelis that the Israelis couldn't already take on their own. I thought it was reasonable to ask the stronger party to take a bigger first step in the direction of peace. As expected, Netanyahu's initial response to our proposed settlement freeze was sharply negative and his allies in Washington were soon publicly accusing us of weakening the U.S.-Israeli alliance. The White House phones started ringing off the hook as members of my national security team fielded calls from reporters, leaders of American Jewish organizations, prominent supporters, and members of Congress, all wondering why we were picking on Israel and focusing on settlements when everyone knew that Palestinian violence was the main impediment to peace. One afternoon, Ben hurried in late for a meeting looking particularly harried after having spent the better part of an hour on the phone with a highly agitated liberal Democratic congressman. I thought he opposes settlements, I said. He does, Ben said. He also opposes us doing anything to actually stop settlements. This sort of pressure continued for much of 2009, along with questions about my kishkas. Periodically, we'd invite the leaders of Jewish organizations or members of Congress to the White House for meetings with me and my team so that we could assure them of our ironclad commitment to Israel's security and the U.S.-Israel relationship. It wasn't a hard argument to make. 
Despite my difference with Netanyahu on a settlement freeze, I delivered on my promise to enhance U.S.-Israel cooperation across the board, working to counteract the Iranian threat and to help fund the eventual development of an Iron Dome defense system, which would allow Israel to shoot down Syrian-made rockets coming from Gaza or from Hezbollah positions inside Lebanon. Nevertheless, the noise orchestrated by Netanyahu had the intended effect of gobbling up our time, putting us on the defensive, and reminding me that normal policy differences with an Israeli prime minister, even one who presided over a fragile coalition government, exacted a domestic political cost that simply didn't exist when I dealt with the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Japan, Canada, or any of our other closest allies. But shortly after I delivered my Cairo speech, in early June 2009, Netanyahu cracked open the door to progress by responding with an address of his own in which he declared, for the first time, his conditional support for a two-state solution. And after months of wrangling, he and Abbas finally agreed to join me for a face-to-face -face discussion while they were both in town for the annual leaders' gathering at the UN General Assembly at the end of September. The two men were courteous to each other, Netanyahu garrulous and physically at ease, Abbas largely expressionless, save for the occasional nod, but appeared unmoved when I urged them to take some risks for peace. Two months later, Netanyahu agreed to institute a 10-month freeze on the issuance of new settlement permits in the West Bank. Pointedly, he refused to extend the freeze to construction in East Jerusalem. Any optimism I felt about Bibi's concession was short-lived. No sooner had Netanyahu announced the temporary freeze than Abbas dismissed it as meaningless, complaining about the exclusion of East Jerusalem and the fact that construction of already approved projects was continuing apace. He insisted that in the absence of a total freeze, he would not join any talks. Other Arab leaders quickly echoed these sentiments, spurred in part by editorializing from Al Jazeera, the Qatari-controlled media outlet that had become the dominant news source in the region having built his popularity by fanning the flames of anger and resentment among Arabs with the same algorithmic precision that Fox News deployed so skillfully with conservative white voters in the States. The situation only got messier in March 2010, when just as Joe Biden was visiting Israel on a goodwill mission, the Israeli Interior Ministry announced permits for the construction of 1,600 new housing units in East Jerusalem. Although Netanyahu insisted that his office had nothing to do with the timing of the permits, the move reinforced perceptions among Palestinians that the freeze was a sham and the United States was in on it. I instructed Hillary to call Netanyahu and let him know I wasn't happy. And we reiterated our suggestion that his government show more restraint on expanding settlements. His response, delivered at APEC's annual conference in Washington later that month, was to declare to thunderous applause that, quote, Jerusalem is not a settlement, it is our capital. The following day, Netanyahu and I sat down for a meeting at the White House. Downplaying the growing tension, I accepted the fiction that the permanent announcement had been just a misunderstanding, and our discussions ran well over the allotted time. Because I had another commitment, and Netanyahu still had a few items he wanted to cover, I suggested we pause and resume the conversation in an hour arranging in the meantime for his delegation to regroup in the Roosevelt Room. He said he was happy to wait, and after that second session, we ended the evening on cordial terms, having met for more than two hours total. The next day, however, Rom stormed into the office, saying there were media reports 
that I deliberately snubbed Netanyahu by keeping him waiting, leading to accusations that I had allowed a case of personal pique to damage the vital U.S.-Israel relationship. That was a rare instance when I outcursed Rom. Looking back, I sometimes ponder the age-old question of how much difference the particular characteristics of individual leaders make in the sweep of history. Whether those of us who rise to power are mere conduits for the deep, relentless currents of the times, or whether we're at least partly the authors of what's to come. I wonder whether our insecurities and our hopes, our childhood traumas, or memories of unexpected kindness carry as much force as any technological shift or socioeconomic trend. I wonder whether a President Hillary Clinton or President John McCain might have elicited more trust from the two sides whether things might have played out differently if someone other than Netanyahu had occupied the prime minister's seat, or if Abbas had been a younger man, more intent on making his mark than protecting himself from criticism. What I do know is that despite the hours Hillary and George Mitchell spent doing shuttle diplomacy, our plans for peace talks went nowhere until late in August 2010, just one month before the settlement freeze was set to expire, when Abbas finally agreed to direct talks thanks largely to the intervention of Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak and King Abdullah of Jordan. Abbas conditioned his participation, however, on Israel's willingness to keep the settlement freeze in place, the same freeze he'd spent the previous nine months decrying as useless. With no time to lose, we arranged to have Netanyahu, Abbas, Mubarak, and Abdullah join me at meetings and an intimate White House dinner on September 1st to launch the talks. The day was largely ceremonial. The hard work of hammering out a deal would shift to Hillary, Mitchell, and the negotiating teams. Still, we dressed up the whole affair with photo ops and press availabilities and as much fanfare as we could muster, and the atmosphere among the four leaders was warm and collegial throughout. I still have a photograph of the five of us looking at President Mubarak's watch to check that the sun had officially set, since it was the Muslim month of Ramadan, and we had to confirm that the religiously prescribed fast had been lifted before seating everyone for dinner. In the soft light of the old family dining room, each of us took turns describing our visions for the future. We talked to predecessors like Begin and Sadat, Rabin and Jordan's King Hussein, who'd had the courage and wisdom to bridge old divides. We spoke of the costs of endless conflict, the fathers who never came home, the mothers who had buried their children. To an outsider, it would have seemed a hopeful moment, the start of something new. And yet later that night, when the dinner was over and the leaders had gone back to their hotels, and I sat in the treaty room going over my briefs for the next day, I couldn't help feeling a vague sense of disquiet. The speeches, the small talk, the easy familiarity, it all felt too comfortable, almost ritualized a performance that each of the four leaders had probably participated in dozens of times before, designed to placate the latest U.S. president who thought things could change. I imagined them shaking hands afterward, like actors taking off their costumes and makeup backstage, before returning to the world that they knew, a world in which Netanyahu could blame the absence of peace on Abbas's weakness while doing everything he could to keep him weak, and Abbas could publicly accuse Israel of war crimes, while quietly negotiating business contracts with the Israelis. And Arab leaders could bemoan the injustices endured by Palestinians under occupation, while their own internal security forces ruthlessly ferreted out dissenters and malcontents 
who might threaten their grip on power. And I thought of all the children, whether in Gaza or in Israeli settlements or on the street corners of Cairo and Amman, who would continue to grow up knowing mainly violence, coercion, fear, and the nursing of hatred. Because, deep down, none of the leaders I'd met with believed anything else was possible. A world without illusions. That's what they'd call it. The Israelis and Palestinians would end up meeting only twice in direct peace talks. Once in Washington, the day after our White House dinner. And then again 12 days later, for a two-part conversation, with Mubarak hosting negotiators in the Egyptian resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh before the group moved to Netanyahu's Jerusalem residence. Hillary and Mitchell reported that the discussions were substantive, with the United States dangling incentives to both sides, including plumped-up aid packages and even considering a possible early release of Jonathan Pollard, an American convicted of spying for Israel who'd become a hero to many right-leaning Israelis. But it was all to no avail. The Israelis refused to extend the settlement freeze. The Palestinians withdrew from negotiations. By December 2010, Abbas was threatening to go to the UN, seeking recognition of a Palestinian state, and to the International Criminal Court, seeking Israel's prosecution for alleged war crimes in Gaza. Netanyahu was threatening to make life harder for the Palestinian Authority. George Mitchell tried to put things in perspective, reminding me that during negotiations to end the Northern Ireland conflict, we had 700 bad days and one good one. Still, it felt as if, in the near term at least, the window for any peace deal had closed. In the months to come, I'd think back often to my dinner with Abbas and Netanyahu, Mubarak and King Abdullah, the pantomime of it, their lack of resolve. To insist that the old order in the Middle East would indefinitely hold, to believe that the children of despair wouldn't revolt at some point against those who maintained it, that, it turned out, was the greatest illusion of all. Inside the White House, we had frequently discussed the long-term challenges facing North Africa and the Middle East. As petro-states failed to diversify their economies, we asked ourselves what would happen when their oil revenues dried up. We bemoaned the restrictions placed on women and girls, hindering their ability to go to school, work, or, in some cases, even drive a car. We noted the stalled growth and its disproportionate impact on the younger generations in Arabic-speaking nations. People under the age of 30 made up about 60% of the population and were suffering unemployment rates double that of the rest of the world. Most of all, we worried about the autocratic, repressive nature of nearly every Arab government. Not just the lack of true democracy, but also the fact that those who held power seemed entirely unaccountable to the people they ruled. Even as conditions varied from country to country, most of these leaders maintained their grip through an old formula restricted political participation and expression, pervasive intimidation and surveillance at the hands of police or internal security services, dysfunctional judicial systems, and insufficient due process protections, rigged or non-existent elections, an entrenched military, heavy press censorship, and rampant corruption. Many of these regimes had been in place for decades, held together by nationalist appeals, shared religious beliefs, tribal bonds, familial ties, and webs of patronage. It was possible that the stifling of dissent, combined with plain inertia, would be enough to keep them going for a while. 
But although our intelligence agencies mainly focused on tracking the actions of terrorist networks, and our diplomats were not always attuned to what was happening on the Arab street, we could see indications of a growing discontent among ordinary Arabs, which, given the lack of legitimate outlets to express such frustration, could spell trouble. Or, as I told Dennis after returning from my first visit to the region as president, sometime, somewhere, things are going to blow. What to do with that knowledge? There was the rub. For at least half a century, U.S. policy in the Middle East had focused narrowly on maintaining stability, preventing disruptions to our oil supplies, and keeping adversarial powers, first the Soviets, then the Iranians, from expanding their influence. After 9-11, counterterrorism took center stage. In pursuing each of these goals, we'd made autocrats our allies. They were predictable, after all, and committed to keeping a lid on things. They hosted our military bases and cooperated with us on counterterrorism efforts. And, of course, they did a lot of business with U.S. companies. Much of our national security apparatus in the region depended on their cooperation and, in many instances, had become thoroughly entangled with theirs. Every so often, a report would surface from the Pentagon or Langley recommending that U.S. policy pay more attention to human rights and governance issues when dealing with our Middle East partners. But then the Saudis would deliver a vital tip that kept an explosive device from being loaded onto U.S.-bound cargo planes. Or our naval base in Bahrain would prove critical in managing a flare-up with Iran in the Strait of Hormuz, and those reports would be relegated to the bottom of a drawer. Across the U.S. government, the possibility that some sort of populist uprising might bring down one of our allies had historically been met with resignation. Sure, it was likely to happen, the same way a bad hurricane will hit the Gulf Coast or the big one will hit California, but since we couldn't say exactly when or where, and since we didn't have the means to stop it anyway, the best thing to do was prepare contingency plans and get ready to manage the aftershocks. I like to think that my administration resisted such fatalism. Building upon my Cairo speech, I'd used interviews and public remarks to urge the governments of the Middle East to heed the voices of citizens calling for reform. In meetings with Arab leaders, my team often put human rights issues on the agenda. The State Department worked diligently behind the scenes to protect journalists, free political dissidents, and widen the space for civic engagement. And yet only rarely did the United States scold allies like Egypt or Saudi Arabia publicly for their human rights violations. Given our concerns over Iraq, Al-Qaeda, and Iran, not to mention Israel's security needs, the stakes felt too high to risk rupturing our relationships. Accepting this type of realism, I told myself, was part of the job. Except that every so often, the story of a women's rights activist being arrested in Riyadh would reach my desk, where I'd read about a local employee of an international human rights organization languishing in a Cairo jail, and I'd feel haunted. I knew that my administration would never be able to transform the Middle East into an oasis of democracy, but I believed we could and should be doing a hell of a lot more to encourage progress toward it. It was during one of those moods that I set aside time for lunch with Samantha Power. I'd met Samantha while I was in the Senate, after I read her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide a moving, tightly reasoned discussion of America's lackluster response to genocide and the need for stronger global leadership in preventing mass atrocities. She was teaching at Harvard at the time, and when I reached out, she jumped at my suggestion that we share ideas over dinner the next time she was in D.C. 
she turned out to be younger than I'd expected. In her mid-thirties, tall and gangly, with red hair, freckles, and big, thickly-lashed, almost sorrowful eyes that crinkled at the corners when she laughed. She was also intense. She and her Irish mother had emigrated to the States when she was nine. She'd played basketball in high school, graduated from Yale, and worked as a freelance journalist covering the Bosnian War. Her experiences there, bearing witness to slaughter and ethnic cleansing, had inspired her to get a law degree, hoping it would give her the tools to cure some part of the world's madness. That evening, after she'd run me through an exhaustive list of U.S. foreign policy errors that she insisted needed correcting, I suggested she might want to get out of the ivory tower and work with me for a spell. The conversation that started over dinner that night continued on and off for the next several years. Samantha joined my Senate staff as a foreign policy fellow, advising on issues like the genocide then taking place in Darfur. She worked on my presidential campaign, where she met her future husband, my friend and eventual regulatory czar, Cass Sunstein, and became one of our top foreign policy surrogates. I did have to put her in the penalty box, removing her from the campaign, when, during what she thought was an off-the-record moment with a reporter, she called Hillary, quote, a monster. Following the election, I hired her for a senior position at the NSC, where she did excellent work, mainly out of the limelight, including designing a broad global initiative to increase government transparency and reduce corruption in countries around the world. Samantha was one of my closest friends in the White House. Much like Ben, she evoked my own youthful idealism, the part of me still untouched by cynicism, cold calculation, or caution dressed up as wisdom. And I suspect it was precisely because she knew that side of me and understood which heartstrings to pull that at times she drove me nuts. I didn't actually see her much from day to day, and that was part of the problem. Whenever Samantha got time on my calendar, she felt obliged to remind me of every wrong I hadn't yet righted. So, what ideals have we betrayed lately, I'd ask. She was shattered, for example, when on Armenian Remembrance Day, I failed to explicitly acknowledge the early 20th century genocide of Armenians at the hands of the Turks. The need to name genocide unequivocally was a central thesis of her book. I had good reason for not making a statement at that time. The Turks were deeply touchy about the issue, and I was in delicate negotiations with President Erdogan on managing America's withdrawal from Iraq. But still, she made me feel like a heel. But as exasperating as Samantha's insistence could be, every so often I needed a dose of her passion and integrity, both as a temperature check on my conscience and because she often had specific, creative suggestions for how to deal with messy problems that no one in the administration was spending enough time thinking about. Our lunch in May 2010 was a case in point. Samantha showed up that day ready to talk about the Middle East. In particular, the fact that the United States hadn't lodged an official protest of the Egyptian government's recent two-year extension of a state of emergency law that had been in place continuously since Mubarak's election in 1981. The extension codified his dictatorial power by suspending the constitutional rights of Egyptians. I understand there are strategic considerations when it comes to Egypt, Samantha said, but does anybody stop to ask whether it's good strategy? I told her that, actually, I had. I wasn't a big fan of Mubarak, but I'd concluded that a one-off statement criticizing a law that had been in place for almost 30 years wouldn't be all that useful. The U.S. government's an ocean liner, I said, not a speedboat. If we want to change our approach to the region, 
then we need a strategy that builds over time. We'd have to get buy-in from the Pentagon and the intel folks. We'd have to calibrate the strategy to give allies in the region time to adjust. Is anybody doing that? Samantha said. Coming up with that strategy, I mean? I smiled, seeing the wheels turning in her head. Not long afterward, Samantha and three NSC colleagues, Dennis Ross, Gail Smith, and Jeremy Weinstein, presented me with the blueprint for a presidential study directive stating that U.S. interests in stability across the Middle East and North Africa were adversely affected by the United States' uncritical support of authoritarian regimes. In August, I used that directive to instruct the State Department, Pentagon, CIA, and other government agencies to examine ways the United States could encourage meaningful political and economic reforms in the region to nudge those nations closer to the principles of open government so that they might avoid the destabilizing uprisings, violence, chaos, and unpredictable outcomes that so often accompanied sudden change. The NSC team set about conducting biweekly meetings with Middle East experts from across government to develop specific ideas for reorienting U.S. policy. Many of the veteran diplomats and experts they talked to were predictably skeptical of the need for any change to U.S. policy, arguing that as unsavory as some of our Arab allies might be, the status quo served America's core interests, something that wasn't guaranteed if more populist governments took their place. Over time, though, the team was able to arrive at a coherent set of principles to guide a shift in strategy. Under the emerging plan, U.S. officials across agencies would be expected to deliver a consistent and coordinated message on the need for reform. They would develop specific recommendations for liberalizing political and civic life in various countries, and offer a range of new incentives to encourage their adoption. By mid-December, the documents laying out the strategy were just about ready for my approval. And although I realized that it wouldn't change the Middle East overnight, I was heartened by the fact that we were starting to steer America's foreign policy machinery in the right direction. If only our timing had been a bit better. The same month, in the North African nation of Tunisia, an impoverished fruit vendor set himself on fire outside a local government building. It was an act of protest, born of desperation, one citizen's furious response to a government he knew to be corrupt and indifferent to his needs. By all accounts, the man, 26-year-old Mohamed Bouazizi, was not an activist, nor was he especially concerned with politics. He belonged to a generation of Tunisians raised in a stagnant economy, and under the thumb of a repressive dictator named Zin al-Abdin Ben Ali. And after being repeatedly harassed by municipal inspectors and denied a hearing in front of a judge, he was simply fed up. According to a bystander, at the moment of his self-immolation, Bouazizi shouted, to nobody in particular and to everyone at once, how do you expect me to make a living? The fruit vendor's anguish set off weeks of nationwide demonstrations against the Tunisian government. And on January 14, 2011, Ben Ali and his family fled to Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, similar protests, made up mostly of young people, were beginning to happen in Algeria, Yemen, Jordan, and Oman, the first flickers of what became known as the Arab Spring. As I prepared to give my State of the Union address on January 25th, my team debated the extent to which I should comment on the events happening almost at warp speed in the Middle East and North Africa. With public protests having effectively driven a sitting autocrat from power in Tunisia, 
people across the region seemed galvanized and hopeful about the possibilities for wider change. Still, the complexities were daunting and good outcomes far from guaranteed. In the end, we added a single, straightforward line to my speech. Tonight, let us be clear. The United States of America stands with the people of Tunisia and supports the democratic aspirations of all people. From the U.S. perspective, the most significant developments were in Egypt, where a coalition of Egyptian youth organizations, activists, left-wing opposition parties, and prominent writers and artists had issued a nationwide call for mass protests against President Mubarak's regime. On the same day as my State of the Union, close to 50,000 Egyptians poured into Tahrir Square in downtown Cairo, demanding an end to emergency law, police brutality, and restrictions on political freedom. Thousands of others participated in similar protests across the country. The police were attempting to disperse the crowds using batons, water cannons, rubber bullets, and tear gas. And Mubarak's government would not only issue an official ban on protesting, but also block Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter in an effort to hamper the demonstrators' ability to organize or connect with the outside world. For days and nights to come, Tahrir Square would resemble a permanent encampment with legions of Egyptians standing in defiance of their president, calling for, quote, bread, freedom, and dignity. This was precisely the scenario my presidential study directive had sought to avoid. The U.S. government suddenly caught between a repressive but reliable ally and a population insistent on change, voicing the democratic aspirations we claim to stand for. Alarmingly, Mubarak himself seemed oblivious about the uprising taking place around him. I'd spoken to him by phone just a week earlier, and he'd been both helpful and responsive as we discussed ways to coax the Israelis and Palestinians back to the negotiating table, as well as his government's call for unity in response to the bombing of a Coptic Christian church in Alexandria, carried out by Muslim extremists. But when I'd brought up the possibility that the protests that had begun in Tunisia might spread to his own country, Mubarak had dismissed it, explaining that, quote, Egypt is not Tunisia. He'd assured me that any protest against his government would quickly die down. Listening to his voice, I'd imagined him sitting in one of the cavernous, ornately decorated rooms inside the presidential palace where we'd first met. The curtains drawn, him looking imperious in a high-backed chair as a few aides took notes or just watched, coiled in readiness to attend to his needs. Insulated as he was, he would see what he wanted to see, I thought and hear what he wanted to hear, and none of it boded well. Meanwhile, the news footage from Tahrir Square brought back different memories. The crowds in those first few days appeared to be disproportionately young and secular, not unlike the students and activists who'd been in the audience of my Cairo speech. In interviews, they came off as thoughtful and informed, insisting on their commitment to nonviolence and their desire for democratic pluralism, rule of law, and a modern, innovative economy that could deliver jobs and a better standard of living. In their idealism and courage in challenging an oppressive social order, they appeared no different from the young people who had once helped tear down the Berlin Wall or stood in front of tanks in Tiananmen Square. They weren't so different either from the young people who had helped elect me president. If I were an Egyptian in my 20s, I told Ben, I'd probably be out there with them. Of course, I wasn't an Egyptian in my 20s. I was president of the United States. And as compelling as these young people were, 
I had to remind myself that they, along with the university professors, human rights activists, secular opposition party members, and trade unionists also on the front lines of the protests, represented only a fraction of the Egyptian population. If Mubarak stepped down, creating a sudden power vacuum, they weren't the ones most likely to fill it. One of the tragedies of Mubarak's dictatorial reign was that it had stunted the development of the institutions and traditions that might help Egypt effectively manage a transition to democracy. Strong political parties, an independent judiciary and media, impartial election monitors, broad-based civic associations, an effective civil service, and respect for minority rights. Outside the military, which was deeply entrenched throughout Egyptian society and reportedly had a significant stake in large swaths of the economy, the most powerful and cohesive force in the country was the Muslim Brotherhood, the Sunni-based Islamist organization whose central objective was to see Egypt and the entire Arab world governed by Sharia law. Thanks to its grassroots organizing and charitable work on behalf of the poor, and despite the fact that Mubarak had officially banned it, the Brotherhood boasted a substantial membership. It also embraced political participation rather than violence as a way of advancing its goals. And in any fair and free election, the candidates it backed would be odds-on favorites to win. Still, many governments in the region viewed the Brotherhood as a subversive, dangerous threat. And the organization's fundamentalist philosophy made it both unreliable as a custodian for democratic pluralism and potentially problematic for U.S.-Egyptian relations. In Tahrir Square, the demonstrations continued to swell, as did violent clashes between protesters and police. Apparently awakened from his slumber, Mubarak went on Egyptian television on January 28th to announce that he was replacing his cabinet, but he offered no signs that he intended to respond to the demands for broader reform. Convinced that the problem wasn't going away, I consulted my national security team to try to come up with an effective response. The group was divided almost entirely along generational lines. The older and more senior members of my team, Joe, Hillary, Gates, and Panetta, counseled caution, all of them having known and worked with Mubarak for years. They emphasized the role his government had long played in keeping peace with Israel, fighting terrorism, and partnering with the United States on a host of other regional issues. While they acknowledged the need to press the Egyptian leader on reform, they warned that there was no way of knowing who or what might replace him. Meanwhile, Samantha, Ben, Dennis, Susan Rice, and Joe's national security advisor, Tony Blinken, were convinced that Mubarak had fully and irretrievably lost his legitimacy with the Egyptian people. Rather than keep our wagon hitched to a corrupt authoritarian order on the verge of collapse and appear to be sanctioning the escalating use of force against protesters, they considered it both strategically prudent and morally right for the U.S. government to align itself with the forces of change. I shared both the hopes of my younger advisors and the fears of my older ones. Our best bet for a positive outcome, I decided, was to see if we could persuade Mubarak to embrace a series of substantive reforms, including ending the emergency law, restoring political and press freedoms, and setting a date for free and fair national elections. Such an orderly transition, as Hillary described it, would give opposition political parties and potential candidates time to build followings and develop serious plans to govern. It would also allow Mubarak to retire as an elder statesman, 
which might help mitigate perceptions in the region that we were willing to dump longtime allies at the slightest hint of trouble. It went without saying that trying to convince an aging and battled despot to ride off into the sunset, even if it was in his own interests, would be a delicate operation. After the Situation Room discussion, I phoned Mubarak again, raising the idea of him putting forward a bolder set of reforms. He instantly grew combative, characterizing the protesters as members of the Muslim Brotherhood and insisting once again that the situation would soon return to normal. He did agree, though, to my request to send an envoy, Frank Wisner, who'd been a U.S. ambassador to Egypt in the late 1980s, to Cairo for more extensive private consultations. Using Wisner to make a direct face-to-face appeal to the Egyptian president had been Hillary's idea, and I thought it made sense. Wisner was literally a scion of the American foreign policy establishment, his father having been an iconic leader during the foundational years of the CIA, and he was someone Mubarak knew well and trusted. At the same time, I understood that Wisner's history with Mubarak and his old-school approach to U.S. diplomacy might make him conservative in evaluating the prospects for change. Before he left, I called him with clear instructions to be bold. I wanted him to push Mubarak to announce that he would step down after new elections were held, a gesture I hoped would be dramatic and specific enough to give protesters confidence that change really was coming. While we awaited the outcome of Weissner's mission, the media became more focused on my administration's reaction to the crisis, and more specifically, whose side we were on. So far, we'd issued little more than generic public statements in an effort to buy ourselves time. But Washington reporters, many of whom clearly found the cause of the young protesters compelling, began pressing Gibbs on why we weren't unambiguously standing with the forces of democracy. Foreign leaders in the region, meanwhile, wanted to know why we weren't supporting Mubarak more forcefully. Bibi Netanyahu insisted that maintaining order and stability in Egypt mattered above all else, telling me that otherwise, quote, You'll see Iran in there in two seconds. King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia was even more alarmed. The spread of protests in the region was an existential threat to a family monarchy that had long squelched any form of internal dissent. He also believed that the Egyptian protesters weren't in fact speaking for themselves. He ticked off the four factions he believed were behind the protest. The Muslim Brotherhood, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, and Hamas. None of these leaders' analyses stood up to scrutiny. The Sunnis, who made up the vast majority of Egyptians, and all of the Muslim Brotherhood, were hardly susceptible to the influence of Shia Iran and Hezbollah. And there was absolutely no evidence that al-Qaeda or Hamas was behind the demonstrations in any way. Still, even younger, more reform-minded leaders in the region, including King Abdullah of Jordan, feared the possibility of protests engulfing their countries. And while they used more sophisticated language, they clearly expected the United States to choose, as Bibi had put it, stability over chaos. By January 31st, Egyptian army tanks were stationed throughout Cairo, the government had shut down internet service across the city, and protesters were planning a nationwide general strike for the next day. Wisner's readout on his meeting with Mubarak arrived. The Egyptian president would publicly commit not to run for another term but it stopped short of suspending emergency law or agreeing to support a peaceful transition of power. The report only widened the split within my national security team. The more senior members saw Mubarak's concession as enough justification to stick with him, while the younger staffers considered the move 
Much like Mubarak's sudden decision to appoint his chief of intelligence, Omar Suleiman, as vice president, as no more than a stalling tactic that would fail to placate the demonstrators. Tom Donilon and Dennis let me know that staff debates had turned acrimonious and the reporters were picking up on the discrepancy between Joe's and Hillary's cautiously anodyne statements and the more strident criticism of Mubarak coming from Gibbs and others in the administration. Partly to make sure that everyone was singing from the same hymnal while we determined our next steps, I paid an unscheduled visit to a meeting of the NSC Principals Committee in the Situation Room late in the afternoon on February 1st. The discussion had barely begun when an aide informed us that Mubarak was addressing the Egyptian people on a nationwide broadcast. We turned on the room's TV monitor so we could watch it in real time. Dressed in a dark suit and reading from a prepared text, Mubarak appeared to be following through on his pledge to Wisner saying that he had never intended to nominate himself for another term as president and announcing that he would call on the Egyptian parliament, a parliament he entirely controlled, to discuss speeding up a timeline for new elections. But the terms of an actual transfer of power were so vague that any Egyptian watching would likely conclude that whatever promises Mubarak was now making could and would be reversed the moment the protests died down. In fact, the Egyptian president devoted the bulk of the speech to accusing provocateurs and unnamed political forces of hijacking the protests to undermine the nation's security and stability. He insisted that he would continue to fulfill his responsibility as someone who had, quote, never ever been seeking power to protect Egypt from agents of chaos and violence. When he finished the address, someone turned off the monitor and I leaned back in my chair, stretching my arms behind my head. That, I said, it's not going to cut it. I wanted to take one last shot at convincing Mubarak to initiate a real transition. Returning to the Oval Office, I placed a call to him, and I put the phone on speaker mode so that my assembled advisors could hear. I began by complimenting him on his decision not to run again. I could only imagine how difficult it might be for Mubarak, someone who'd first assumed power when I was in college and had outlasted four of my predecessors, to hear what I was about to say. Now that you've made this historic decision for a transition to power, I said, I want to discuss with you how it will work. I say this with the utmost respect. I want to share my honest assessment about what I think will accomplish your goals. I then cut to the bottom line. If you stayed in office and dragged out the transition process, I believed, the protests would continue and possibly spin out of control. If you wanted to ensure the election of a responsible government that wasn't dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood, then now was the time for him to step down and use his stature behind the scenes to help usher in a new Egyptian government. Although Mubarak and I normally spoke to each other in English, he chose this time to address me in Arabic. I didn't need the translator to catch the agitation in his voice. You don't understand the culture of the Egyptian people, he declared, his voice rising. President Obama, if I go into the transition this way, it will be the most dangerous thing for Egypt. I acknowledged that I didn't know Egyptian culture the way he did, and that he'd been in politics far longer than I had. But there are moments in history, I said, where just because things have been the same way in the past doesn't mean they will be the same way in the future. You've served your country well for over 30 years. I want to make sure you seize this historic moment in a way that leaves a great legacy for you. We went back and forth like this for several more minutes with Mubarak insisting on the need for him to remain where he was 
and repeating that the protest would soon be over. I know my people, he said toward the end of the call. They are emotional people. I will talk to you after a while, Mr. President, and I will tell you that I was right. I hung up the phone. For a moment, the room was silent. Everyone's eyes glued on me. I had given Mubarak my best advice. I had offered him a plan for a graceful exit. Any leader who replaced him, I knew, might end up being a worse partner for the United States, and potentially worse for the Egyptian people. And the truth was, I could have lived with any genuine transition plan he might have presented, even if it left much of the regime's existing network intact. I was enough of a realist to assume that had it not been for the stubborn persistence of those young people in Tahrir Square, I'd have worked with Mubarak for the rest of my presidency, despite what he stood for. Just as I would continue to work with the rest of the, quote, corrupt, rotting authoritarian order, as Ben liked to call it, that controlled life in the Middle East and North Africa. Except those kids were in Tahrir Square. Because of their brash insistence on a better life, others had joined them. Mothers and laborers and shoemakers and taxi drivers. Those hundreds of thousands of people had, for a brief moment at least, lost their fear and they wouldn't stop demonstrating unless Mubarak restored that fear the only way he knew how, through beatings and gunfire, detentions and torture. Earlier in my presidency, I hadn't managed to influence the Iranian regime's vicious crackdown on the Green Movement protesters. I might not be able to stop a China or Russia from crushing its own dissidents. But the Mubarak regime had received billions of U.S. taxpayer dollars. We supplied them with weapons shared information, and helped train their military officers. And for me to allow the recipient of that aid, someone we called an ally, to perpetrate wanton violence on peaceful demonstrators, with all the world watching, that was a line I was unwilling to cross. It would do too much damage, I thought, to the idea of America. It would do too much damage to me. Let's prepare a statement, I said to my team. We're calling on Mubarak to step down now. Contrary to the beliefs of many in the Arab world, and more than a few American reporters, the United States is not a grand puppet master whimsically pulling the strings of the countries with which it does business. Even governments that rely on our military and economic assistance think first and foremost of their own survival. And the Mubarak regime was no exception. After I publicly announced my conviction that it was time for Egypt to start a quick transition to a new government, Mubarak remained defiant, testing how far he could go in intimidating the protesters. The next day, while the Egyptian army stood idly by, gangs of pro-Mubarak supporters descended on Tahrir Square, some on camels and horses, brandishing whips and clubs, others hurling firebombs and rocks from surrounding rooftops and began assaulting the demonstrators. Three protesters were killed and 600 were injured. Over the course of several days, authorities detained more than 50 journalists and human rights activists. The violence continued into the next day, along with large-scale counter-demonstrations organized by the government. Pro-Mubarak forces even began roughing up foreign reporters, accusing them of actively inciting the opposition. My biggest challenge during those tense several days was keeping everybody in my administration on the same page. The message coming out of the White House was clear. 
When Gibbs was asked what I meant when I said that the transition in Egypt had to begin now, he said simply, now means yesterday. We were also successful in getting our European allies to issue a joint statement that mirrored my own. Around the same time, though, Hillary was interviewed at a security conference in Munich and seemed to go out of her way to warn of the dangers in any rapid transition in Egypt. At the same conference, Frank Wisner, who no longer had an official role in the administration and claimed to be speaking only as a private citizen, voiced the opinion that Mubarak should stay in power during any transition period. Hearing this, I told Katie to track down my Secretary of State. When I got her on the phone, I didn't mask my displeasure. I understand full well the potential problems with any move away from Mubarak, I said. But I've made a decision, and I can't have a bunch of mixed messages out there right now. Before Hillary could respond, I added, and tell Wisner I don't give a damn about what capacity he's speaking in. He needs to be quiet. Despite the occasional frustrations I experienced in dealing with a national security establishment that remained uncomfortable with the prospect of an Egypt without Mubarak, that same establishment, particularly the Pentagon and the intelligence community, probably had more impact on the final outcome in Egypt than any high-minded statements coming from the White House. Once or twice a day, we had Gates, Mullen, Panetta, Brennan, and others quietly reach out to high-ranking officers in the Egyptian military and intelligence services, making clear that a military-sanctioned crackdown on the protesters would have severe consequences on any future U.S.-Egyptian relationship. The implication of this military-to-military -military outreach was plain. U.S.-Egyptian cooperation, and the aid that came with it, wasn't dependent on Mubarak staying in power. So Egypt's generals and intelligence chiefs might want to carefully consider which actions best preserved their institutional interests. Our messaging appeared successful, for by the evening of February 3rd, Egyptian army troops had positioned themselves to keep pro-Mubarak forces separated from the protesters. The arrests of Egyptian journalists and human rights activists began to slow. Encouraged by the change in the army's posture, more demonstrators flowed peacefully into the square. Mubarak would hang on for another week, vowing not to bow to foreign pressure. But on February 11th, just two and a half weeks after the first major protest in Tahrir Square, a weary-looking Vice President Suleiman appeared on Egyptian television to announce that Mubarak had left office and a caretaker government led by the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces would initiate the process for new elections. In the White House, we watched CNN broadcast footage of the crowd in Tahrir Square erupting in celebration. Many staffers were jubilant. Samantha sent me a message saying how proud she was to be a part of the administration. Walking down the colonnade on our way to my press statement to reporters, Ben couldn't wipe the smile off his face. It's pretty amazing, he said, being a part of history like that. Katie printed out a wire photo and left it on my desk. It showed a group of young protesters in the Egyptian square hoisting a sign that read, Yes, we can. I was relieved and cautiously hopeful. Still, I did find myself occasionally thinking about Mubarak, who just a few months earlier had been my guest in the old family dining room. Rather than flee the country, the elderly leader had apparently taken up residence in his private compound in Sharm el-Sheikh. I pictured him there, sitting in lavish surroundings, a dim light casting shadows across his face, alone with his thoughts. 
I knew that for all the celebration and optimism in the air, the transition in Egypt was only the beginning of a struggle for the soul of the Arab world, a struggle whose outcome remained far from certain. I remember the conversation I'd had with Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi and the de facto ruler of the United Arab Emirates, immediately after I called for Mubarak to step down. Young, sophisticated, close to the Saudis, and perhaps the savviest leader in the Gulf. MBZ, as we called him, hadn't minced words in describing how the news was being received in the region. MBZ told me that U.S. statements on Egypt were being watched closely in the Gulf, with increasing alarm. What would happen if protesters in Bahrain called for King Hamad to step down? Would the United States put out that same kind of statement that we had on Egypt? I told him I hoped to work with him and others to avoid having to choose between the Muslim Brotherhood and potentially violent clashes between governments and their people. The public message doesn't affect Mubarak, you see, but it affects the region, MBZ told me. He suggested that if Egypt collapsed and the Muslim Brotherhood took over, there would be eight other Arab leaders who would fall, which is why he was critical of my statement. It shows, he said, that the United States is not a partner we can rely on in the long term. His voice was calm and cold. It was less a plea for help, I realized, than a warning. Whatever happened to Mubarak, the old order had no intention of conceding power without a fight. If anything, anti-government demonstrations in other countries only grew in scope and intensity following Mubarak's resignation as more and more people came to believe that change was possible. A handful of regimes successfully managed to make at least symbolic reform in response to protesters' demands while avoiding significant bloodshed or upheaval. Algeria lifted its 19-year-old emergency law. The King of Morocco engineered constitutional reforms that modestly increased the power of the country's elected parliament, and Jordan's monarch would soon do the same. But for many Arab rulers... The main lesson out of Egypt was the need to systematically, ruthlessly crush the protests, no matter how much violence that might require and no matter how much international criticism such crackdowns might generate. Two of the countries that saw the worst violence were Syria and Bahrain, where sectarian divisions ran high and privileged minorities governed large and resentful majorities. In Syria, the March 2011 arrest and torture of 15 schoolboys who had sprayed anti-government graffiti on city walls set off major protests against the Alawite Shia-dominated regime of President Bashar al-Assad in many of the country's predominantly Sunni communities. After tear gas, water cannons, beatings, and mass arrests failed to quell the demonstrations, Assad's security forces went on to launch full-scale military operations across several cities, complete with live fire, tanks, and house-to-house searches. Meanwhile, just as MBZ had predicted, in the small island nation of Bahrain, huge, mostly Shia demonstrations against the government of King Hamad were taking place in the capital city of Manama, and the Bahraini government responded with force, killing scores of protesters and injuring hundreds more. As outrage over police brutality fueled even bigger demonstrations, the beleaguered Hamad went further taking the unprecedented step of inviting armed divisions of the Saudi and Emirati armies to help suppress his own citizens. My team and I spent hours wrestling with how the United States could influence events inside Syria and Bahrain. Our options were painfully limited. Syria was a longtime adversary of the United States, historically allied with Russia and Iran, 
as well as a supporter of Hezbollah. Without the economic, military, or diplomatic leverage we'd had in Egypt, the official condemnations of the Assad regime we made, and our later imposition of a U.S. embargo, had no real effect, and Assad could count on Russia to veto any efforts we might make to impose international sanctions through the U.N. Security Council. With Bahrain, we had the opposite problem. The country was a longtime U.S. ally and hosted the U.S. Navy's Fifth Fleet. That relationship allowed us to privately pressure Hamad and his ministers to partially answer the protesters' demands and to rein in the police violence. Still, Bahrain's ruling establishment viewed the protesters as Iranian-influenced enemies who had to be contained. In concert with the Saudis and the Emiratis, the Bahraini regime was going to force us to make a choice. And all were aware that when push came to shove, we couldn't afford to risk our strategic position in the Middle East by severing relations with three Gulf countries. In 2011, no one questioned our limited influence in Syria. That would come later. But despite multiple statements from my administration condemning the violence in Bahrain and efforts to broker a dialogue between the government and more moderate Shia opposition leaders, our failure to break with Hamad, especially in the wake of our posture toward Mubarak, was roundly criticized. I had no elegant way to explain the apparent inconsistency, other than to acknowledge that the world was messy, that in the conduct of foreign policy, I had to constantly balance competing interests, interests shaped by the choices of previous administrations and the contingencies of the moment, and that just because I couldn't in every instance elevate our human rights agenda over other considerations didn't mean that I shouldn't try to do what I could, when I could, to advance what I considered to be America's highest values. But what if a government starts massacring not hundreds of its citizens, but thousands, and the United States has the power to stop it? Then what? For 42 years, Muammar Gaddafi had ruled Libya with a viciousness that, even by the standards of his fellow dictators, spilled into madness. Prone to flamboyant gestures, incoherent rants, and odd behavior, in advance of the 2009 UNGA meetings in New York, he tried to get approval to erect a massive Bedouin tent in the middle of Central Park for himself and his entourage. He had nevertheless been ruthlessly efficient in stamping out dissent in his country, using a combination of secret police, security forces, and state-sponsored militias to jail, torture, and murder anyone who dared to oppose him. Throughout the 1980s, his government had also been one of the leading state sponsors of terrorism around the world facilitating such horrific attacks as the 1988 bombing of Pan Am Flight 103, which killed citizens of 21 countries, including 189 Americans. Gaddafi had more recently tried to wrap himself in the cloak of respectability by ending his support for international terrorism and dismantling his nascent nuclear program, which led Western countries, including the United States, to resume diplomatic relations. But inside Libya itself, nothing had changed. Less than a week after Mubarak left power in Egypt, Gaddafi's security forces fired into a large group of civilians who'd gathered to protest the arrest of a human rights lawyer. Within days, the protests had spread, and more than a hundred had been killed. A week later, much of the country was in open rebellion, with anti-Gaddafi forces taking control of Benghazi, Libya's second-largest city. Libyan diplomats and former loyalists, including the country's ambassador to the UN, began to defect appealing to the international community to come to the aid of the Libyan people. Accusing the protesters of being fronts for al-Qaeda, Gaddafi unleashed a campaign of terror, declaring, quote, everything will burn. 
by the beginning of March, the death count had risen to a thousand. Appalled by the escalating carnage, we quickly did everything we could short of using military force to stop Gaddafi. I called for him to relinquish power, arguing that he had lost the legitimacy to govern. We imposed economic sanctions, froze billions of dollars in assets that belonged to him and his family, and, at the UN Security Council, passed an arms embargo and referred the case of Libya to the International Criminal Court, where Gaddafi and others could be tried for committing crimes against humanity. But the Libyan leader was undeterred. Analysts forecast that once Gaddafi's forces reached Benghazi, tens of thousands of lives could be lost. It was around this time that a chorus grew, first among human rights organizations and a handful of columnists, and then members of Congress and much of the media, demanding that the United States take military action to stop Gaddafi. In many ways, I considered this a sign of moral progress. For most of American history, the thought of using our combat forces to stop a government from killing its own people would have been a non-starter. Because such state-sponsored violence happened all the time, because U.S. policymakers didn't consider the death of innocent Cambodians, Argentinians, or Ugandans relevant to our interests, and because many of the perpetrators were our allies in the fight against communism. This included the reportedly CIA-backed military coup that toppled a communist government in Indonesia in 1965, two years before my mother and I arrived there, with a bloody aftermath that resulted in between 500,000 and a million deaths. In the 1990s, though, more timely international reporting of such crimes, combined with America's ascendance as the world's lone superpower after the Cold War, had led to a re-examination of U.S. inaction and prompted the successful American-led NATO intervention in the Bosnian conflict. Indeed, the obligation of the United States to prioritize the prevention of atrocities in its foreign policy was what Samantha's book had been all about, one of the reasons I'd brought her into the White House. And yet, as much as I shared the impulse to save innocent people from tyrants, I was profoundly wary of ordering any kind of military action against Libya. For the same reason that I declined Samantha's suggestion that my Nobel Prize address include an explicit argument for a global, quote, responsibility to protect civilians against their own governments. Where would the obligation to intervene end? And what were the parameters? How many people would need to have been killed? And how many more would have to be at risk to trigger a U.S. military response? Why Libya, and not the Congo, for example? where a series of civil conflicts had resulted in millions of civilian deaths. Would we intervene only when there was no chance of U.S. casualties? Bill Clinton had thought the risks were low back in 1993, when he sent special operations forces into Somalia to capture members of a warlord's organization in support of U.S. peacekeeping efforts there. In the incident known as Black Hawk Down, 18 service members were killed and 73 more wounded. The truth is that war is never tidy and always results in unintended consequences, even when launched against seemingly powerless countries on behalf of a righteous cause. When it came to Libya, advocates for U.S. intervention had tried to obfuscate that reality by latching on to the idea of imposing a no-fly zone to ground Gaddafi's military planes and prevent bombing, which they presented as an antiseptic, risk-free way of saving the Libyan people. Typical question from a White House reporter at the time. Quote, how many more people have to die before we take this one step? What they were missing was the fact that establishing a no-fly zone in Libyan airspace would require us to first fire missiles into Tripoli to destroy Libya's air defenses, a clear act of war against a country that posed no threat to us. Not only that, 
but it wasn't even clear that a no-fly zone would have any effect, since Gaddafi was using ground forces, and not air bombardment, to attack opposition strongholds. America was also still knee-deep in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I had just ordered U.S. forces in the Pacific to help the Japanese handle the worst nuclear accident since Chernobyl, brought on by a tsunami that had leveled the city of Fukushima. We were seriously concerned about the potential of radioactive fallout reaching the West Coast, and in the fact that I was still dealing with a U.S. economy that was barely above water, and a Republican Congress that had pledged to undo everything my administration had accomplished in our first two years, and it's fair to say that I found the idea of waging a new war in a distant country with no strategic importance to the United States to be less than prudent. I wasn't the only one. Bill Daly, who'd become my chief of staff in January, seemed bewildered that anyone was even entertaining the notion. Maybe I'm missing something, Mr. President, he said during one of our evening wrap-ups. But I don't think we got clobbered in the midterms because voters don't think you're doing enough in the Middle East. Ask ten people on the street, nine of them don't even know where the heck Libya is. And yet, as reports of hospitals filling up with gruesome injuries and young people being unceremoniously executed on the streets continued to trickle out of Libya, support around the world for intervention gathered steam. To the surprise of many, the Arab League voted in support of an international intervention against Gaddafi, a sign not only of how extreme the levels of violence in Libya had become, but also the extent to which the Libyan strongman's erratic behavior and meddling in the affairs of other countries had isolated him from his fellow Arab leaders. The vote may have also been a handy way for countries in the region to deflect attention from their own human rights abuses, given that nations like Syria and Bahrain remained members in good standing. Meanwhile, Nicolas Sarkozy, who'd been criticized mercilessly in France for supporting the Ben Ali regime in Tunisia till the bitter end, suddenly decided to make saving the Libyan people his personal cause. Together with David Cameron, he announced his intention to immediately introduce a resolution in the UN Security Council on behalf of France and the United Kingdom, authorizing an international coalition to initiate a no-fly zone over Libya, a resolution on which we'd have to take a position. On March 15th, I convened a meeting of my national security team to discuss the pending Security Council resolution. We began with a briefing on Gaddafi's progress. Libyan troops with heavy armaments were poised to overtake a town on the outskirts of Benghazi, which could allow them to cut off water, food, and power to the city's 600,000 residents. With his forces massed, Gaddafi was pledging to go, quote, house by house, home by home, alley by alley, person by person, until the country is cleansed of dirt and scum, unquote. I asked Mike Mullen what difference a no-fly zone would make. Essentially none, he told me, confirming that since Gaddafi was using ground forces almost exclusively, the only way to stop an assault on Benghazi was to target those forces directly with airstrikes. In other words, I said, we're being asked to participate in a no-fly zone that will make everyone look like they're doing something, but that won't actually save Benghazi. I then asked for people's recommendations. Gates and Mullen were strongly opposed to any U.S. military action, emphasizing the stress that missions in Iraq and Afghanistan were already placing on our troops. They were also convinced, correctly I thought, that despite the rhetoric from Sarkozy and Cameron, the U.S. military would end up having to carry most of the load for any operation in Libya. Joe considered it foolish to get involved in yet another war abroad, while Bill remained astonished that we were even having the debate. As I worked my way around the room, though, 
voices for intervention weighed in. Hillary had been conferenced in from Paris, where she was attending a G8 meeting, and said she'd been impressed by the Libyan opposition leader she'd met there. Despite, or perhaps because of, her real politique on Egypt, she now favored us joining an international mission. Speaking from our UN offices in New York, Susan Rice said the situation reminded her of the international community's failure to intervene in the 1994 genocide in Rwanda. She'd been a member of Bill Clinton's National Security Council at the time and remained haunted by the lack of action. If a relatively modest action could save lives, she argued, we should take it. Although she suggested that rather than sign on to the proposal for a no-fly zone, we should present our own resolution seeking a broader mandate to take whatever actions were necessary to protect Libyan civilians from Gaddafi's forces. A few of the younger staffers expressed concern that a military action against Libya might have the unintended consequence of convincing countries like Iran that they needed nuclear weapons as a hedge against a future U.S. attack. But as had been true with Egypt, Ben and Tony Blinken felt we had a responsibility to support those forces protesting for democratic change in the Middle East, particularly if the Arab states and our closest allies were prepared to act with us. And while Samantha remained uncharacteristically clinical when describing the potential death toll in Benghazi should we decide not to act, I knew that she was in daily, direct contact with Libyans pleading for help. I almost didn't need to ask her what her position was. I checked my watch. Knowing I was soon due to host an annual dinner with the U.S. military's combatant commanders and their spouses in the blue room of the residence. All right, I said. I'm not ready to make a decision yet, but based on what I'm hearing, here's one thing we're not going to do. We're not going to participate in some half-assed no-fly zone that won't achieve our objectives. I told the team we'd reconvene in a couple of hours, by which time I expected to hear real options for what an effective intervention would look like including an analysis of the costs, human resources, and risks involved. Either we do this right, I said, or we stop pretending that we're serious about saving Benghazi just to make ourselves feel better. By the time I arrived in the Blue Room, Michelle and our guests had already assembled. We took photos with each commander and spouse, making small talk about our kids and trading jokes about our golf games. During dinner, I sat next to a young Marine and his wife. He had stepped on an IED while working as a bomb technician in Afghanistan and lost both his legs. He was still getting accustomed to his prosthetics, he told me, but he looked to be in good spirits and was handsome in his uniform. I could see on his wife's face the mixture of pride, determination, and suppressed anguish that had become so familiar to me during my visits with military families over the previous two years. All the while, my brain was churning with calculations thinking about the decision I'd have to make as soon as Buddy and Vaughn and the other butlers cleared away the dessert plates. The arguments Mullen and Gates had made against military action in Libya were compelling. I'd already sent thousands of young men like the Marines sitting next to me into battle, and there was no guarantee, whatever those on the sidelines might think, that a new war wouldn't lead others to suffer such injuries or worse. I was irritated that Sarkozy and Cameron had jammed me on the issue, in part to solve their domestic political problems and I felt scornful of the Arab League's hypocrisy. I knew the bill was right, that outside of Washington, there wasn't a lot of support for what America was being asked to do, and that the minute anything about a U.S. military operation in Libya went south, my political problems would only worsen. I also knew that unless we took the lead, the European plan would likely go nowhere. Gaddafi's troops would lay siege to Benghazi. At best, a protracted conflict would ensue, perhaps even a full-blown civil war. 
At worst, tens of thousands or more would be starved, tortured, or shot in the head. And at the moment, at least, I was perhaps the one person in the world who could keep that from happening. The dinner ended. I told Michelle I'd be home in an hour and made my way back to the Situation Room, where the team had been reviewing options and sat awaiting further instructions. I think I've got a plan that might work, I said. Chapter 26 We met for another two hours that night in the Situation Room, going point by point through the plan I'd sketched out in my mind during dinner, knowing we had to try to prevent a massacre in Libya while minimizing the risks and burdens on an already overstretched U.S. military. I was ready to take a meaningful stance against Gaddafi and to give the Libyan people an opportunity to engineer a new government. But we would do it swiftly, with the support of allies, and with the parameters of our mission clearly spelled out. I told the team I wanted to start, as Susan Rice had suggested, by persuading the French and British to back off their proposal for a no-fly zone so that we could put an amended resolution before the Security Council asking for a broader mandate to halt attacks by Gaddafi's forces in order to protect Libyan civilians. Meanwhile, the Pentagon would develop a military campaign that involved a clear division of labor among allies. In the campaign's first phase, the United States would help stop Gaddafi's advance on Benghazi and take out his air defense systems, a task for which we were uniquely suited given our superior capabilities. After that, we'd hand off the bulk of the operations to the Europeans and participating Arab states. European fighter jets would be principally responsible for carrying out any targeted airstrikes needed to keep Gaddafi's forces from advancing against civilian populations, in essence establishing a no-fly and no-drive zone, with Arab allies mainly providing logistical support. Because North Africa was in Europe's backyard and not ours, we would also ask the Europeans to pay for much of the post-conflict aid that would be required to rebuild Libya and help the country transition to democracy once Gaddafi was no longer in power. I asked Gates and Mullen what they thought. Although they were still reluctant to engage in what was essentially a humanitarian mission while in the middle of two other wars, they acknowledged that the plan was viable, limited the costs and risk to U.S. personnel, and could probably reverse Gaddafi's momentum in a matter of days. Susan and her team worked with Samantha through the night, and the next day we circulated a revised draft resolution among U.N. Security Council members. The main drama ahead of the vote was whether Russia would veto the new measure. So while Susan sought to persuade her counterparts on the floor of the U.N., we hoped that our efforts over the past two years with Dmitry Medvedev would help gain his support, stressing to Russia that beyond the moral imperatives of preventing a mass atrocity, it was in both Russia's and America's interests to make sure that we didn't see a prolonged civil war in Libya, as the country could then become a breeding ground for terrorism. It was clear that Medvedev had serious reservations about any Western-led military action that could lead to regime change, but he also wasn't inclined to run interference for Gaddafi. In the end, the Security Council approved our resolution on March 17th by a vote of 10 to 0, with five abstentions, Russia among them. I called the two key European leaders, Sarkozy and Cameron, both of whom showed barely disguised relief that we had handed them a ladder with which to get down from the limb they'd climbed out on. Within days, all elements of the operation were in place, with the Europeans agreeing that their forces would operate under a NATO command structure and with enough Arab participation from the Jordanians, Qataris, and Emiratis 
to insulate us from accusations that the Libya mission was yet another case of Western powers waging war against Islam. With the Pentagon prepared and awaiting my order to begin airstrikes, I publicly offered Gaddafi one last chance, urging him to pull his forces back and respect the rights of Libyans to engage in peaceful protest. I hoped that with the world lined up against him, his survival instincts might kick in and he'd try to negotiate a safe exit to a willing third country, where he could live out his days with the millions in oil money that over the years he'd siphoned into various Swiss bank accounts. But it seemed that whatever attachment Gaddafi might have once had to reality had been severed. As it happened, I had to depart that evening for Brazil for the start of a four-day, three-nation tour designed to boost the United States' image in Latin America. The Iraq War, as well as the Bush administration's drug interdiction and Cuba policies, hadn't played well there. The best part was that we deliberately scheduled the trip to take place during Malia and Sasha's spring break, allowing us to travel as a family. What we hadn't factored in was an imminent military conflict. As Air Force One touched down in the capital city of Brasilia, Tom Donlin informed me that Gaddafi's troops showed no signs of pulling back and had, in fact, started breaching the perimeter of Benghazi. You're probably going to have to issue an order sometime today, he said. Under any circumstances, launching a military action while visiting another country posed a problem. The fact that Brazil generally tried to avoid taking sides in international disputes and had abstained in the Security Council vote on the Libya intervention only made matters worse. This was my first visit to South America as president and my first time meeting Brazil's newly elected president, Dilma Rousseff. She was an economist and a former chief of staff of her charismatic predecessor, Lula da Silva, and was interested in, among other things, improving trade relations with the United States. She and her ministers greeted our delegation warmly as we arrived at the presidential palace, an airy, modernist structure with winged buttresses and high glass walls. Over the next several hours, we discussed ways to deepen U.S.-Brazilian cooperation on energy, trade, and climate change. But with global speculation swirling over when and how strikes against Libya would start, the tension became hard to ignore. I apologized to Rousseff for any awkwardness the situation was causing. She shrugged, her dark eyes fixed on me with a mix of skepticism and concern. We'll manage, she said in Portuguese. I hope this will be the least of your problems. As my meeting with Rousseff ended, Tom and Bill Daly hurried me to a nearby holding room, explaining that Gaddafi's forces were still on the move and that now was our best window for making a call. To formally commence military operations, I needed to reach Mike Mullen. Except the state-of-the-art, secure mobile communication system, the system that was supposed to let me function as commander-in-chief from any place on the planet, apparently wasn't working. Sorry, Mr. President, we're, uh, we're still having trouble connecting. As our communications technicians rushed about checking for loose cords and faulty portals, I sat down in a chair and scooped a handful of almonds from a bowl on a side table. I had long stopped sweating the logistical details of the presidency knowing that I was surrounded at all times by a highly competent crew. Still, I could see the beads of sweat breaking across the foreheads around the room. Bill, on his first foreign trip as chief of staff and no doubt feeling the pressure, was apoplectic. This is unbelievable, he said, his voice rising in pitch. I checked my watch. Ten minutes had passed, and our next meeting with the Brazilians was pending. I looked at Bill and Tom, who both appeared on the verge of strangling someone. Why don't we just use your cell phone, I said to Bill. What? 
It won't be a long conversation. Just check to make sure you've got enough bars. After some consultation among the team members regarding the advisability of me using a non-secure line, Bill dialed the number and handed me his phone. Mike, I said, can you hear me? I can, Mr. President. You have my authorization. And with those four words, spoken into a device that had probably also been used to order pizza, I initiated the first new military intervention of my presidency. For the next two days, even as U.S. and British warships began firing Tomahawk missiles and destroying Libya's air defenses, we kept my schedule largely unchanged. I met with a group of U.S. and Brazilian CEOs to discuss ways to expand commercial ties. I attended a cocktail reception with government officials and took pictures with U.S. embassy staffers and their families. In Rio de Janeiro, I gave an address to a couple thousand of Brazil's most prominent political, civic, and business leaders about the challenges and opportunities our country shared as the hemisphere's two largest democracies. All the while, though, I was checking in with Tom for news about Libya, imagining the scenes unfolding more than 5,000 miles away, the rush of missiles piercing the air, the cascade of explosions, the rubble and smoke, the faces of Gaddafi loyalists as they looked to the sky and calculated their chances of survival. I was distracted, but I also understood that my presence in Brazil mattered, especially to Afro-Brazilians who made up just over half of the country's population and experienced the same sort of deeply entrenched, though frequently denied, racism and poverty as black folks did back home. Michelle, the girls, and I visited a sprawling favela on the western end of Rio, where we dropped in at a youth center to watch a capoeira troupe perform, and I kicked a soccer ball around with a handful of local kids. By the time we were leaving, Hundreds of people had massed outside the center, and although my Secret Service detail nixed the idea of me taking a stroll through the neighborhood, I persuaded them to let me step through the gate and greet the crowd. Standing in the middle of the narrow street, I waved at the black and brown and copper-toned faces. Residents, many of them children, clustered on rooftops and small balconies and pressed against the police barricades. Valerie, who was traveling with us and witnessed the whole scene, smiled as I walked back inside saying, I'll bet that wave changed the lives of some of those kids forever. I wondered if that was true. It's what I had told myself at the start of my political journey, part of my justification to Michelle for running for president, that the election and leadership of a black president stood to change the way children and young people everywhere saw themselves in their world. And yet I knew that whatever impact my fleeting presence might have had on those children in the favelas, and however much it might cause some to stand straighter and dream bigger, it couldn't compensate for the grinding poverty they encountered every day, the bad schools, polluted air, poisoned water, and sheer disorder that many of them had to wade through just to survive. By my own estimation, my impact on the lives of poor children and their families so far had been negligible, even in my own country. My time had been absorbed by just trying to keep the circumstances of the poor, both at home and abroad, from worsening, making sure a global recession didn't drastically drive up their ranks or eliminate whatever slippery foothold they might have in the labor market, trying to head off a change in climate that might lead to a deadly flood or storm, or, in the case of Libya, trying to prevent a madman's army from gunning people down in the streets. That wasn't nothing, I thought. As long as I didn't start fooling myself, into thinking it was anywhere close to enough. On the short Marine One flight back to the hotel, 
The helicopter tracked along the magnificent chain of forested mountains that line the coast, with Rio's iconic 98-foot-high Christ the Redeemer statue suddenly coming into view, perched atop the conical peak known as Corcovado. We'd made plans to visit the site that evening. Leaning in close to Sasha and Malia, I pointed out the landmark, a distant, cloaked figure with outstretched arms, white against blue sky. Look, that's where we're going tonight. The two girls were listening to their iPods while thumbing through some of Michelle's magazines, their eyes scanning glossy images of dewy-faced celebrities I didn't recognize. After I waved my hands to get their attention, they took out their earbuds, swiveled their heads in unison toward the window, and nodded wordlessly, pausing for a beat as if to humor me before putting the buds back in their ears. Michelle, who appeared to be dozing to music from her own iPod, offered no comment. Later, as we sat having dinner at our hotel's outdoor restaurant, we were informed that a heavy fog had settled over Corcovado and we might have to cancel the trip to see Christ the Redeemer. Molly and Sasha didn't look all that disappointed. I watched as they questioned the waiter about the dessert menu and felt a little bruised by their lack of enthusiasm. With more of my time spent monitoring developments in Libya, I was seeing the family even less on this trip than I did at home, and it compounded my sense already too frequent of late, that my daughters were growing up faster than I'd expected. Malia was about to be a teenager, her teeth glinting with braces, her hair in a ropey ponytail, her body stretched as if on some invisible rack so that somehow overnight she'd become long and lean and almost as tall as her mother. At nine, Sasha at least still looked like a kid, with her sweet grin and dimpled cheeks, but I'd noticed a shift in her attitude toward me. She was less inclined to let me tickle her these days. She seemed impatient and touch embarrassed when I tried to hold her hand in public. I continued to marvel at how steady the two of them were, how well they'd adapted to the odd and extraordinary circumstances in which they were growing up, gliding seamlessly between audiences with the Pope and trips to the mall. Mostly, they were allergic to any special treatment or undue attention, just wanting to be like the other kids at school. When, on the first day of fourth grade, a classmate had tried to get a photo of Sasha. She had taken it upon herself to snatch the camera, warning that he'd better not try that again. In fact, both girls vastly preferred hanging out at friends' houses, partly because those households seemed to be less strict about the snacks they ate and the amount of TV they watched, but mainly because it was easier in those places to pretend their lives were normal, even with a Secret Service detail parked on the street outside. All of this was fine except for the fact that their lives were never less normal than when they were with me. I couldn't help fearing that I might lose whatever precious time I had with them before they flew the nest. We're good, Marvin said, walking up to the table. Fog's lifted. The four of us then piled into the back of an SUV, and soon we were heading up a winding, tree-lined road in the dark until our convoy halted abruptly in front of a wide, spotlit plaza. A massive, shining figure seemed to beckon us through the mist. As we made our way up a series of steps, our necks craning back to take in the sight, I felt Sasha grab my hand. Malia slipped an arm around my waist. Are we supposed to pray or something? Sasha asked. Why not? I said. We huddled together then, our heads bowed in silence, with me knowing that at least one of my prayers that night had been answered. Whether our brief pilgrimage to that mountaintop helped fulfill my other prayer, I can't say for certain. I do know that the first few days of the Libya campaign went as well as possible. 
Gaddafi's air defenses were quickly dismantled. European jets had moved into place as promised, with Sarkozy making certain it was a French plane that first crossed into Libyan airspace, executing a series of airstrikes against the forces advancing on Benghazi. Within days, Gaddafi's forces had retreated, and our no-fly, no-drive zone had been effectively established across much of the eastern part of the country. Still, as our Latin American tour continued, I remained on pins and needles. Each morning, I consulted with my national security team via secure video conference and got updates from General Carter Ham, the commander overseeing the operation, as well as from military leadership at the Pentagon, before reviewing a detailed list of next steps. Beyond maintaining a clear sense of how well we were meeting our military objectives, I wanted to make sure our allies held up their end of the bargain and that the U.S. role didn't stray beyond the narrow parameters I'd set. I was well aware that the American public's support for what we were doing was exceedingly thin and that any setbacks could prove devastating. We did have one bad scare. On our first night in Santiago, Chile, Michelle and I attended a state dinner hosted by Sebastián Piñera, the gregarious center-right billionaire who'd been elected president just a year earlier. I was sitting at the head table, listening to Piñera talk about the growing market in China for Chilean wine, when I felt a tap on my shoulder and turned to find Tom Donilon, looking even more stressed than usual. What is it? I asked. He leaned in to whisper in my ear. We just received a report that a U.S. fighter jet crashed over Libya. Shot down? Technical failure, he said. Two servicemen ejected before the crash, and we picked up one, the pilot. He's fine, but the weapons officer's still missing. We've got search and rescue teams near the site of the crash, and I'm in direct contact with the Pentagon. So as soon as there's news, I'll let you know. As Tom walked away, Pinera gave me a searching look. Everything all right? he asked. Yeah, sorry about that, I replied, my mind quickly running through the scenarios, most of them bad. For the next 90 minutes or so, I smiled and nodded as Piñera and his wife, Cecilia Moren Montes, told us about their children and how they first met and the best season to visit Patagonia. At some point, a Chilean folk rock band called Los Javes started to perform what sounded like a Spanish version of Hair. The entire time, I waited for another tap on the shoulder. All I could think about was the young officer I'd sent into war, who was now possibly injured or captured or worse. I felt as if I might burst. Not until Michelle and I were about to climb into the beast after dinner did I finally see Tom heading towards us. He was slightly out of breath. We have him, he said. It seems he was picked up by some friendly Libyans and he's going to be fine. I wanted to kiss Tom at that moment, but I kissed Michelle instead. When someone asks me to describe what it feels like to be the President of the United States, I often think about that stretch of time spent sitting helplessly at the state dinner in Chile contemplating the knife's edge between perceived success and potential catastrophe. In this case, the drift of a soldier's parachute over a faraway desert in the middle of the night. It wasn't simply that each decision I made was essentially a high-stakes wager. It was the fact that, unlike in poker, where a player expects and can afford to lose a few big hands even on the way to a winning night, a single mishap could cost a life and overwhelm, both in the political press and in my own heart whatever broader objective I might have achieved. As it was, the jet crash ended up becoming a relative blip. By the time I returned to Washington, the overwhelming superiority of the International Coalition's air forces had left Gaddafi's loyalists with few places to hide, and opposition militias, 
including many high-ranking defectors from the Libyan army, began advancing westward. Twelve days into the operation, NATO took command of the mission, with several European countries assuming responsibility for repelling Gaddafi's forces. By the time I addressed the nation on March 28th, the U.S. military had begun to move into a supporting role, primarily helping with logistics, refueling aircraft, and identifying targets. Given that a number of Republicans had been vocal advocates for intervention, we might have expected some grudging praise for the swift precision of our operation in Libya. But a funny thing had happened while I was traveling. Some of the same Republicans who had demanded that I intervene in Libya had decided that they were now against it. They criticized the mission as being too broad or coming too late. They complained that I hadn't consulted with Congress enough, despite the fact that I'd met with senior congressional leaders on the eve of the campaign. They cast doubt on the legal basis for my decision, suggesting that I should have sought congressional authorization under the War Powers Act, a legitimate, long-standing question about presidential power were it not coming from a party that had repeatedly given previous administrations carte blanche on the foreign policy front, particularly when it came to waging war. The Republicans seemed unembarrassed by the inconsistency. Effectively, they were putting me on notice that even issues of war and peace, life and death, were now part of a grim, unrelenting partisan game. They weren't the only ones playing games. Vladimir Putin had been publicly criticizing the UN resolution, and by implication Medvedev, for allowing a wide mandate for military action in Libya. It was inconceivable that Putin hadn't signed off on Medvedev's decision to have Russia abstain rather than veto our resolution, or that he'd failed to understand its scope at the time. And as Medvedev himself pointed out in response to Putin's comments, Coalition fighter jets were continuing to bomb Gaddafi's forces only because the Libyan strongman showed no signs of calling them into retreat or muzzling the vicious mercenary fighters he sponsored. But clearly that was beside the point. In openly second-guessing Medvedev, Putin seemed to have decided to deliberately make his hand-picked successor look bad, a sign, I had to assume, that Putin planned to formally retake the reins in Russia. Still, March ended without a single U.S. casualty in Libya and for an approximate cost of $550 million, not much more than what we spent per day on military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, we had accomplished our objective of saving Benghazi and its neighboring cities and perhaps tens of thousands of lives. According to Samantha, it was the quickest international military intervention to prevent a mass atrocity in modern history. What would happen with regard to Libya's government remained unclear with Gaddafi ordering further attacks even in the face of NATO bombing operations, and with the opposition fueled by a loose coalition of rebel militias, my team and I worried about the prospect of prolonged civil war. According to the U.S. diplomat Hillary had sent to Benghazi to act as a liaison to the emerging governing council there, the opposition was at least saying all the right things about what a post-Gaddafi Libya would look like, emphasizing the importance of free and fair elections, human rights, and rule of law but with no democratic traditions or institutions to draw on, the counselors had their work cut out for them. And with Gaddafi's police force no longer in place, the security situation in Benghazi and other rebel areas now had a Wild West aspect. Who is it that we sent to Benghazi? I asked after hearing one of these dispatches. A guy named Chris Stevens, Dennis told me. He used to be Charsay Affair at the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli, a bunch of Middle East posts before that. Apparently, he and a small team slipped into Benghazi on a Greek cargo ship. Supposed to be excellent. Brave guy, I said. 
One quiet Sunday in April, I found myself alone in the residence. The girls were off somewhere with their buddies. Michelle was having lunch with friends, and so I decided to head downstairs to do some work. It was a cool day in the 60s with a mix of sun and clouds, and walking along the colonnade, I took time to appreciate the plush beds of tulips, yellow, red, pink, the groundskeepers had planted in the rose garden. I rarely worked at the Resolute Desk on weekends, since there were always at least a few West Wing tours passing through, and visitors could catch a glimpse of the Oval Office from behind a red velvet rope only if I wasn't there. Instead, I usually set up shop in the Oval's adjoining dining room and study, a comfortable private area filled with mementos I'd gathered over the years. A framed Life magazine cover of the Selma March, signed by John Lewis. A brick from Abraham Lincoln's law office in Springfield. A pair of boxing gloves from Muhammad Ali. Ted Kennedy's painting of the Cape Cod coastline, which he'd sent to me as a gift after I'd admired it in his office. But as the clouds broke and sunlight splashed across the window, I moved myself to the terrace patio just outside the dining room. A lovely secluded space with hedges and plantings on one side and a small fountain on the other. I'd carried down a stack of memos to read, but my mind kept drifting. I had just announced that I'd be running for re-election. It was a formality, really, a matter of filing the papers and filming a short video announcement, a stark contrast to that heady, frigid day in Springfield four years earlier when I declared my candidacy before a crowd of thousands, promising to deliver hope and change. It seemed like an eternity ago, a time of optimism and youthful energy and undeniable innocence. My re-election campaign would be an entirely different endeavor. Certain of my vulnerability, Republicans were already lining up for the chance to run against me. I'd noticed that my political team had begun to layer a series of early fundraisers into my schedule, anticipating an expensive, bare-knuckle contest. Part of me resented the idea of gearing up for the election so soon. For if my first campaign seemed like a distant memory, my actual work as president felt as if it had only just begun. But there was no point arguing about it. I could read the polls myself. The irony was that our labors of the previous two years were finally bearing some fruit. When I hadn't been dealing with foreign policy issues, I'd been traveling the country, highlighting the shuttered auto factories that had just reopened, the small businesses that had been saved, the wind farms and energy-efficient vehicles that pointed the way to a clean energy future, a number of infrastructure projects funded by the Recovery Act, roads, community centers, light rail lines, were already completed. A host of ACA provisions had already come into force. In so many different ways, we'd made the federal government better, more efficient, and more responsive. But until the economy really started picking up, none of it would matter much politically. So far, we'd managed to ward off a so-called double-dip second recession, in large part thanks to the billions of stimulus dollars we'd attached to the Bush tax cut extension during the lame duck session. But just barely. And by the looks of it, the new House majority seemed intent on shifting the economy into reverse. From the moment he'd been elected Speaker in January, John Boehner had insisted that House Republicans had every intention of following through on their campaign pledge to end what he called my, quote, job-crushing spending binge of the last two years, unquote. Speaking after my 2011 State of the Union address, Paul Ryan, the House Budget Committee chair, had predicted that as a result of such out-of-control spending, the federal debt would, quote, soon eclipse our entire economy and grow to catastrophic levels in the years ahead, unquote. The new crop of GOP members, 
many of whom had run on a Tea Party platform, were pressing Boehner hard for an immediate, drastic, and permanent reduction in the size of the federal government, a reduction that they believed would finally restore America's constitutional order and take their country back from corrupt political and economic elites. Purely as a matter of economics, all of us in the White House thought that enacting the House GOP's agenda of deep federal spending cuts would result in absolute disaster. Unemployment remained at about 9%. The housing market had yet to recover. Americans were still trying to work off the $1.1 trillion in credit card debt and other loans they'd accumulated over the previous decade. Millions of people owed more on their mortgages than their homes were worth. Businesses and banks faced a similar debt hangover and remained cautious about investing in expansion or making new loans. It was true that the federal deficit had risen sharply since I'd taken office, mainly as a result of lower tax revenues and increased spending on social programs in the aftermath of what was now commonly known as the Great Recession. At my request, Tim Geithner was already mapping out plans to bring the deficit back down to pre-crisis levels once the economy had fully rebounded. I'd also formed a commission headed by former Clinton Chief of Staff Erskine Bowles and former Wyoming Senator Alan Simpson, to come up with a sensible plan for long-term deficit and debt reduction. But for now, the best thing we could do to lower the deficit was to boost economic growth. And with aggregate demand as weak as it was, this meant more federal spending, not less. The problem was that I'd lost the argument in the midterms, at least among those who'd bothered to go to the polls. Not only could Republicans claim they were following the will of the voters in seeking to cut spending, but the election results seemed to have turned all of Washington into deficit hawks. The media was suddenly sounding the alarm about America living beyond its means. Commentators decried the legacy of debt we were foisting on future generations. Even CEOs and Wall Street types, many of whom had benefited, directly or indirectly, from the bailout of the financial system, had the temerity to jump on the anti-deficit bandwagon insisting that it was high-time politicians in Washington did the, quote, courageous thing by cutting entitlement spending, using the misleading catch-all term for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and other social safety net programs. Few of them expressed interest in sacrificing their own tax breaks to address this supposed crisis. In our first skirmish with Boehner over funding levels for the rest of the 2011 fiscal year, we'd conceded just $38 billion in spending cuts an amount large enough for Boehner to take back to his conservative caucus members. They had originally sought nearly twice as much, but small enough inside a $3.6 trillion budget to avoid any real economic harm, especially since a big chunk of those cuts amounted to accounting tricks that wouldn't reduce vital services or programs. Boehner had already signaled, though, that the Republicans would soon be coming back for more, even suggesting that his caucus might withhold the votes necessary to increase the statutory debt limit if we didn't meet future demands. None of us believed that the GOP would actually act that irresponsibly. After all, raising the debt ceiling was a routine legislative duty observed by both parties, a matter of paying for spending that Congress had already approved, and the failure to do so would result in the United States defaulting on its debt for the first time in history. Still, the fact that Boehner had even broached such a radical idea and the fact that it had quickly gained traction among Tea Party members and conservative media outlets offered a hint of what was in store. Is that, I wondered, what my presidency was now reduced to? Fighting rearguard actions to keep the Republicans from sabotaging the American economy and undoing whatever I'd done? 
Could I really hope to find common ground with a party that increasingly seemed to consider opposition to me to be its unifying principle, the objective that superseded all others? There was a reason why, in selling our recent budget deal to his caucus, Boehner had apparently emphasized how angry I was during our discussions, a useful fiction that I'd told my team not to dispute in the interest of keeping the deal on track. For his members, there was no greater selling point. In fact, more and more, I'd noticed how the mood we'd first witnessed in the fading days of Sarah Palin's campaign rallies and on through the Tea Party's summer had migrated from the fringe of GOP politics to the center, an emotional, almost visceral reaction to my presidency, distinct from any differences in policy or ideology. It was as if my very presence in the White House had triggered a deep-seated panic, a sense that the natural order had been disrupted which is exactly what Donald Trump understood when he started peddling assertions that I had not been born in the United States and was thus an illegitimate president. For millions of Americans spooked by a black man in the White House, he promised an elixir for their racial anxieties. The suggestion that I hadn't been born in the United States wasn't new. At least one conservative crank had pushed the theory as far back as my Senate race in Illinois. During the primary campaign for president, some disgruntled Hillary supporters had recirculated the claim, and while her campaign strongly disavowed it, conservative bloggers and talk radio personalities had picked it up, setting off feverish email chains among right-wing activists. By the time the Tea Party seized on it during my first year in office, the tale had blossomed into a full-blown conspiracy theory. I hadn't just been born in Kenya, the story went. I was also a secret Muslim socialist, a Manchurian candidate who'd been groomed from childhood and planted in the United States using falsified documents to infiltrate the highest reaches of the American government. Still, it wasn't until February 10, 2011, the day before Hosni Mubarak stepped down in Egypt, that this absurd theory really got traction. During a speech at the Conservative Political Action Conference in Washington, Trump hinted he might run for president, asserting that, quote, our current president came out of nowhere. The people that went to school with him, they never saw him. They don't know who he is. It's crazy. At first, I paid no attention. My biography had been exhaustively documented. My birth certificate was on file in Hawaii, and we'd posted it on my website back in 2008 to deal with the first wave of what came to be called birtherism. My grandparents had saved a clipping from the August 13, 1961 edition of the Honolulu Advertiser that announced my birth. As a kid, I'd walked past Kapilani Medical Center, where my mother had delivered me, on my way to school every day. As for Trump, I'd never met the man, although I'd become vaguely aware of him over the years. First, as an attention-seeking real estate developer. Later, and more ominously, as someone who'd thrust himself into the Central Park Five case, when, in response to the story about five black and Latino teens who'd been imprisoned for and were ultimately exonerated of brutally raping a white jogger, he'd taken out full-page ads in four major newspapers demanding the return of the death penalty, and finally as a TV personality who marketed himself and his brand as the pinnacle of capitalist success and gaudy consumption. For most of my two years in office, Trump was apparently complimentary of my presidency, telling Bloomberg that, quote, overall I believe he's done a very good job. But maybe because I didn't watch much television, I found it hard to take him too seriously. The New York developers and business leaders I knew uniformly described him as all hype, someone who'd left a trail of bankruptcy filings, breached contracts, stiffed employees, and sketchy financing arrangements in his wake. 
and whose business now in large part consisted of licensing his name to properties he neither owned nor managed. In fact, my closest contact with Trump had come midway through 2010, during the Deepwater Horizon crisis, when he called Axe out of the blue to suggest that I put him in charge of plugging the well. When informed that the well was almost sealed, Trump had shifted gears, noting that we'd recently held a state dinner under a tent on the South Lawn and telling Axe that he'd be willing to build a beautiful ballroom on the White House grounds, an offer that was politely declined. What I hadn't anticipated was the media's reaction to Trump's sudden embrace of birtherism, the degree to which the line between news and entertainment had become so blurred and the competition for ratings so fierce that outlets eagerly lined up to offer a platform for a baseless claim. It was propelled by Fox News, naturally, a network whose power and profits had been built around stoking the same racial fears and resentments that Trump now sought to exploit. Night after night, its hosts featured him across their most popular platforms. On Fox's O'Reilly Factor, Trump declared, quote, If you're going to be president of the United States, you have to be born in this country, and there's a doubt as to whether or not he was. He doesn't have a birth certificate. On the network's morning show, Fox and Friends, he suggested that my birth announcement might have been a fake. In fact, Trump was on Fox so much, he soon felt obliged to throw in some fresh material, saying that there was something fishy about my getting into Harvard, given that my, quote, marks were lousy. He told Laura Ingram he was certain that Bill Ayers, my Chicago neighbor and former radical activist, was the true author of Dreams from My Father since the book was too good to have been written by someone of my intellectual caliber. But it wasn't just Fox. On March 23rd, just after we'd gone to war in Libya, he surfaced on ABC's The View, saying, quote, I want him to show his birth certificate. There's something on that birth certificate that he doesn't like. On NBC, the same network that aired Trump's reality show The Celebrity Apprentice in primetime, and that clearly didn't mind the extra publicity its star was generating, Trump told a Today Show host that he'd sent investigators to Hawaii to look into my birth certificate. I have people that have been studying it, and they can't believe what they're finding. Later, he'd tell CNN's Anderson Cooper, I've been told very recently, Anderson, that the birth certificate is missing. I've been told that it's not there and it doesn't exist. Outside the Fox universe, I couldn't say that any mainstream journalists explicitly gave credence to these bizarre charges. They all made a point of expressing polite incredulity, asking Trump, for example, why he thought George Bush and Bill Clinton had never been asked to produce their birth certificates. He'd usually reply with something along the lines of, well, we know they were born in this country. But at no point did they simply and forthrightly call Trump out for lying or state that the conspiracy theory he was promoting was racist. Certainly, they made little to no effort to categorize his theories as beyond the pale, like alien abduction or the anti-Semitic conspiracies and the protocols of the elders of Zion. And the more oxygen the media gave them, the more newsworthy they appeared. We hadn't bothered to dignify all this with any sort of official White House response, uninterested in giving Trump a bigger spotlight and knowing we had better things to do. In the West Wing, birtherism was treated like a bad joke, and my younger staffers were heartened by the way late-night TV hosts frequently skewered the Donald but I couldn't help noticing that members of the media weren't just booking Trump for interviews. They were also breathlessly covering his forays into presidential politics, including press conferences and travel to the early voting state of New Hampshire. Polls were showing that roughly 40% of Republicans were now convinced that I hadn't been born in America, 
and I'd recently heard from X that according to a Republican pollster he knew, Trump was now the leading Republican among potential presidential contenders, despite not having declared his candidacy. I chose not to share that particular piece of news with Michelle. Just thinking about Trump and the symbiotic relationship he developed with the media made her mad. She saw the whole circus for what it was, a variation on the press's obsession with flag pins and fist bumps during the campaign, the same willingness on the part of both political opponents and reporters to legitimize the notion that her husband was suspect, a nefarious other. She made clear to me that her concerns regarding Trump and birtherism were connected not to my political prospects, but rather to the safety of our family. People think it's all a game, she said. They don't care that there are thousands of men with guns out there who believe every word that's being said. I didn't argue the point. It was clear that Trump didn't care about the consequences of spreading conspiracy theories that he almost certainly knew to be false, so long as it achieved his aims. And he'd figured out that whatever guardrails had once defined the boundaries of acceptable political discourse had long since been knocked down. In that sense, there wasn't much difference between Trump and Boehner or McConnell. They, too, understood that it didn't matter whether what they said was true. They didn't have to actually believe that I was bankrupting the country or that Obamacare promoted euthanasia. In fact, the only difference between Trump's style of politics and theirs was Trump's lack of inhibition. He understood instinctively what moved the conservative base most, and he offered it up in an unadulterated form. While I doubted that he was willing to relinquish his business holdings or subject himself to the necessary vetting in order to run for president, I knew that the passions he was tapping, the dark, alternative vision he was promoting and legitimizing, were something I'd likely be contending with for the remainder of my presidency. I'd have plenty of time to worry about the Republicans later, I told myself. Same with budget issues, campaign strategy, and the state of American democracy. In fact, of all that was giving me cause to brood that day on the patio, I knew that one thing, above all else, would demand my attention in the next few weeks. I had to decide whether or not to authorize a raid deep inside Pakistan to go after a target we believed to be Osama bin Laden. And whatever else happened, I was likely to end up a one-term president if I got it wrong. Chapter 27 Osama bin Laden's precise whereabouts had been a mystery since December 2001, when, three months after the 9-11 attacks that killed nearly 3,000 innocent people, he had narrowly escaped as American and Allied forces closed in on his headquarters in Tora Bora, a mountainous area along the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. The search had continued in earnest for a number of years, though by the time I took office, bin Laden's trail had gone cold. He was still out there, though, as Al-Qaeda had slowly reorganized, basing itself in Pakistan's Fatah region, their leader would periodically release audio and video messages, rallying supporters with calls for jihad against Western powers. From the very first time I spoke publicly on America's response to 9-11, opposing the Iraq war at Chicago's Federal Plaza on the eve of my U.S. Senate race in 2002, I had advocated for a renewed focus on bringing bin Laden to justice. I'd return to the same theme during the presidential race, pledging to go after bin Laden inside Pakistan if the government there was unable or unwilling to take him out. Most of Washington, including Joe, Hillary, and John McCain, had dismissed that promise as a stunt, a way for a junior senator unschooled in foreign policy to sound tough 
and even after I took office, some people undoubtedly assumed I would set aside the issue of bin Laden in order to deal with other matters. But in May 2009, following a Situation Room meeting about terrorist threats, I'd brought a handful of advisors, including Rom, Leon Panetta, and Tom Donlan, up to the Oval Office and closed the door. I want to make the hunt for bin Laden a top priority, I said. I want to see a formal plan for how we're going to find him. I want to report on my desk every 30 days describing our progress. And Tom, let's put this in a presidential directive, just so everyone's on the same page. There were the obvious reasons for my focus on bin Laden. His continued freedom was a source of pain for the families of those who'd been lost in the 9-11 attacks and a taunt to American power. Even deep in hiding, he remained al-Qaeda's most effective recruiter, radicalizing disaffected young men around the world. According to our analysts, by the time I was elected, al-Qaeda was more dangerous than it had been in years, and warnings about terrorist plots emanating from the Fatah appeared regularly in my briefings. But I also viewed the elimination of bin Laden as critical to my goal of reorienting America's counterterrorism strategy. By losing our focus on the small band of terrorists who had actually planned and carried out 9-11, and instead defining the threat as an open-ended, all-encompassing war on terror, we'd fallen into what I believed was a strategic trap, one that had elevated al-Qaeda's prestige, rationalized the Iraq invasion, alienated much of the Muslim world, and warped almost a decade of U.S. foreign policy. Rather than gin up fears about vast terror networks and feed extremist fantasies that they were engaged in some divine struggle, I wanted to remind the world, and more importantly ourselves, that these terrorists were nothing more than a band of deluded, vicious killers, criminals who could be captured, tried, imprisoned, or killed. And there would be no better way of demonstrating that than by taking out bin Laden. A day before the ninth anniversary of 9-11, Leon Panetta and his CIA deputy, Mike Morell, asked to see me. They made a good team, I thought. As someone who'd spent much of his career in Congress before serving as Bill Clinton's chief of staff, the 72-year-old Panetta not only provided steady management of the agency, but also enjoyed the public stage, maintained good relationships across Congress and with the press, and had a keen nose for the politics of national security issues. Morell, on the other hand, was the consummate insider, with the meticulous mind of an analyst. And while only in his early 50s, he had decades of experience at the agency. Mr. President, it's very preliminary, Leon said. But we think we have a potential lead on bin Laden, the best one by far since Tora Bora. I absorbed the news in silence. Leon and Mike explained that, thanks to patient and painstaking work, involving the compilation and pattern mapping of thousands of bits of information. Analysts had identified the whereabouts of a man known as Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti, who they believed served as an al-Qaeda courier and had known ties to bin Laden. They had been tracking his phone and daily habits, which had led them not to some remote location in the Fatah, but rather to a large compound in an affluent neighborhood on the outskirts of the Pakistani city of Babadabad, 35 miles north of Islamabad. According to Mike, the size and structure of the compound indicated that somebody important lived there, quite possibly a high-value al-Qaeda member. The intelligence community had set up surveillance on the compound, and Leon promised to update me on anything we learned about its occupants. After they'd gone, I made a point of tempering my expectations. Anyone could be in that compound. Even if it was someone with al-Qaeda connections, 
the likelihood that bin Laden would be staying in a populated urban area seemed small. But on December 14th, Leon and Mike were back, this time with an officer and an analyst from the CIA. The analyst was a young man with the polished, fresh-faced look of a senior congressional staffer. The officer, a lean, thickly-bearded gentleman who was older and with a slightly rumpled, professorial air. He turned out to be the head of the CIA's counterterrorism center and the team's leader for the Bin Laden hunt. I imagined him holed up in some subterranean warren, surrounded by computers and thick manila folders, oblivious to the world as he combed through mounds of data. The two men walked me through everything that had led to the Abbottabad compound, a remarkable feat of detective work. Apparently, the courier, al-Kuwaiti, had purchased the property under an assumed name. The compound itself was unusually spacious and secure, eight times larger than neighboring residences, surrounded by 10 to 18-foot walls topped with barbed wire, and with additional walls inside the perimeter. As for the people who lived there, the analysts said they went to great lengths to conceal their identities. They had no landline or internet service, almost never left the compound, and burned their trash instead of putting it out for collection. But the age and number of children in the compound's main house appeared to match those of Bin Laden's children. And through aerial surveillance, our team had been able to observe a tall man who never left the property but regularly walked in circles in a small garden area within the compound's walls. We call him the Pacer, the lead officer said. We think he could be Bin Laden. I had a ton of questions, but the main one was this. What else could we do to confirm the Pacer's identity? Although they were continuing to explore possible strategies, the analysts confessed that they weren't hopeful. Given the configuration and location of the compound, as well as the caution of its occupants, the methods that might yield greater certainty that it was in fact Bin Laden might quickly trigger suspicion. Without us ever knowing it, the occupants could vanish without a trace. I looked at the lead officer. What's your judgment? I asked. I could see him hesitating. I suspected that he'd been around during the run-up to Iraq. The intelligence community's reputation was still recovering from the role it had played in supporting the Bush administration's insistence that Saddam Hussein was developing weapons of mass destruction. Still, I caught an expression on his face that indicated the pride of someone who'd cracked an intricate puzzle, even if he couldn't prove it. I think there's a good chance he's our man, he said. But we can't be certain. Based on what I'd heard, I decided we had enough information to begin developing options for an attack on the compound. While the CIA team continued to work on identifying the pacer, I asked Tom Donlan and John Brennan to explore what a raid would look like. The need for secrecy added to the challenge. If even the slightest hint of our lead on bin Laden leaked, we knew our opportunity would be lost. As a result, only a handful of people across the entire federal government were read into the planning phase of the operation. We had one other constraint. Whatever option we chose would not involve the Pakistanis. Although Pakistan's government cooperated with us on a host of counterterrorism operations and provided a vital supply path for our forces in Afghanistan, it was an open secret that certain elements inside the country's military, and especially its intelligence services, maintained links to the Taliban and perhaps even al-Qaeda, sometimes using them as strategic assets to ensure that the Afghan government remained weak and unable to align itself with Pakistan's number one rival, India. The fact that the Abbottabad compound was just a few miles from the Pakistan military's equivalent of West Point 
only heightened the possibility that anything we told the Pakistanis could end up tipping off our target. Whatever we chose to do in Abbottabad, then, would involve violating the territory of a putative ally in the most egregious way possible, short of war, raising both the diplomatic stakes and operational complexities. By mid-March, in the days leading up to the Libya intervention and my trip to Latin America, the team had presented what they cautioned were only preliminary concepts for an assault on the compound in Abbottabad. Roughly speaking, I had two options. The first was to demolish it with an airstrike. The benefits of that approach were obvious. No American lives would be risked on Pakistani soil. Publicly, at least, this option also offered a certain deniability. The Pakistanis would, of course, know that we were the ones who had carried out the strike, but they would have an easier time maintaining the fiction that we might not be, which could help quell outrage among their people. As we delved into the details of what a missile strike would look like, though, the downsides were significant. If we destroyed the compound, how would we ever be certain that bin Laden had been there? If al-Qaeda denied that bin Laden had been killed, how would we explain having blown up a residence deep inside Pakistan? Moreover, there were an estimated five women and 20 children living with the four adult males in the Abbottabad compound. And, in its initial iteration, the proposed strike would not only annihilate the compound, but almost certainly level several adjacent residences as well. Not long into the meeting, I told Joint Chiefs Vice Chairman Haas Cartwright that I'd heard enough. I was not going to authorize the killing of 30 or more people when we weren't even certain that it was bin Laden in the compound. If we were going to use a strike, they'd have to come up with a much more precise plan. The second option was to authorize a special ops mission in which a select team would covertly fly into Pakistan via helicopter, raid the compound, and get out before the Pakistani police or military had time to react. To preserve the secrecy of the operation and deniability if something went awry, we'd have to conduct it under the authority of the CIA rather than the Pentagon. On the other hand, for a mission of this magnitude and risk, we needed a top-flight military mind, which is why we had the Defense Department's Vice Admiral William McRaven, head of Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC, in the room to walk us through what a raid might entail. The chance to work closely with the men and women of the U.S. Armed Forces to witness firsthand their teamwork and sense of duty, had been one of the most humbling aspects of my two years in office. And if I'd had to pick one individual to represent everything right about our military, Bill McRaven might have been that person. In his mid-fifties, with a friendly open face, a deadpan sense of humor, and a plain-spoken, can-do demeanor, he reminded me of a sandy-haired Tom Hanks, if Tom Hanks had been a career Navy SEAL. Like his predecessor at JSOC, Stan McChrystal, for whom he'd served as deputy, McRaven had helped write the book on special ops. For his postgraduate thesis, 18 years earlier, in fact, McRaven had studied a series of 20th century commando operations, including a 1943 glider rescue of Mussolini ordered by Hitler, and the 1976 Israeli operation to free hostages in Entebbe, examining the conditions under which a small group of well-rehearsed, highly trained soldiers could use stealth to maintain short-term superiority over larger or better-armed forces. McRaven had gone on to develop a model for special operations that shaped U.S. military strategy around the world. During his storied career, he had personally commanded or carried out more than a thousand special ops in some of the most dangerous settings imaginable, most recently going after high-value targets in Afghanistan. 
he was also famously cool under pressure. As a SEAL captain, he'd survived a 2001 parachuting accident in which he was knocked semi-conscious during a jump and plunged 4,000 feet before his chute properly deployed. The accident broke his back and tore his leg muscles and tendons from his pelvis. Although the CIA had developed its own internal special ops teams, Leon had wisely chosen to consult McRaven in mapping out what a raid on a Badabad might look like. He'd concluded that no CIA operators could match the skill and experience of McRaven's Navy SEAL team, and thus had recommended an unusual arrangement in which the chain of command ran from me to him to McRaven, who would have complete authority to design and conduct the mission if we decide to go forward with it. Guided by data collected by aerial photography, the CIA had built a small three-dimensional replica of the Abbottabad compound, and during our March meeting, McRaven walked us through how a raid might go. A select team of SEALs would fly one or more helicopters for nearly an hour and a half under cover of darkness from Jalalabad, Afghanistan to the target, landing inside the compound's high walls. They would then secure every perimeter entry point, door, and window before breaking into the three-story main house, searching the premises, and neutralizing any resistance they encountered. They would apprehend or kill bin Laden and fly back out, stopping to refuel somewhere inside Pakistan before returning to the base in Jalalabad. When McRaven's presentation was over, I asked him if he thought his team could pull it off. Sir, right now we've just sketched out a concept, he said. Until I can get a larger team together to run through some rehearsals, I won't know if what I'm currently thinking is the best way to do it. I also can't tell you how we would get in and out. We need detailed air planners for that. What I can tell you is that if we get there, we can pull off the rate. But I can't recommend the mission itself until I've done the homework. I nodded. Let's do the homework then. Two weeks later, on March 29th, we reconvened in the Situation Room, and McRaven reported feeling highly confident that the raid could be executed. Getting out, on the other hand, he said, might be a little more, quote, sporty. Based on his experience with similar raids and the preliminary rehearsals he'd run, he was fairly certain that the team could finish the job before any Pakistani authorities caught wind of what was happening. Nevertheless, we considered all the scenarios in which that assumption proved incorrect. What would we do if Pakistani fighters intercepted our helicopters, either on the way in or on the way out? What if bin Laden was on site but hidden or in a safe room, thus extending the amount of time the special ops team spent on the ground? How would the team respond if Pakistani police or military forces surrounded the compound during the raid? McRaven emphasized that his planning was built on the premise that his team should avoid a firefight with Pakistani authorities. And if the authorities confronted us on the ground, his inclination would be to have the SEALs hold in place while our diplomats tried to negotiate a safe exit. I appreciated those instincts. His proposed approach was yet another example of the prudence I'd consistently encountered when dealing with our top military commanders. But with U.S.-Pakistan relations in a particularly precarious state, both Bob Gates and I expressed serious reservations about this strategy. U.S. drone strikes against al-Qaeda targets in the Fatah had been generating increasing opposition from the Pakistani public. Anti-American sentiment had been further inflamed late in January when a CIA contractor named Raymond Allen Davis killed two armed men who approached his vehicle in the teeming city of Lahore, setting off angry protests over the CIA presence in Pakistan and resulting in nearly two months of tense diplomatic drama as we brokered Davis's release. 
I told McRaven and the team that I was not going to risk putting the fate of our SEALs in the hands of a Pakistani government that would no doubt face intense public pressure over whether to jail or release them, especially if it turned out that bin Laden wasn't in the compound. I therefore wanted him to beef up plans to get the raiding party out no matter what, possibly adding two extra helicopters to provide backup for the team in the compound. Before we adjourned, Haas Cartwright offered a new, more surgical option for an airstrike, one involving a drone that would fire a small 13-pound missile directly at the pacer while he was taking his daily walk. According to Cartwright, the collateral damage would be minimal, and given the experience our military had developed in targeting other terrorist operatives, he felt satisfied it could do the job while avoiding the risks inherent in a raid. The possible courses of action were now in focus. McRaven would oversee the construction of a full-scale model of the Abbottabad compound at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where the SEAL team would conduct a series of dress rehearsals. Should I decide to authorize the raid, he said, the optimal time to do it would be the first weekend in May, when a couple of moonless nights would provide the SEALs with extra cover. Left unstated were obvious concerns that with each step we took to plan and prepare, and every day that passed, more people were being read into our secret. I told both McRaven and Cartwright that I wasn't yet ready to make a decision as to which option, if any, we'd pursue. But for planning purposes, I said, assume it's a go. All the while, we carried on with business as usual at the White House. I was tracking the situation in Libya, the war in Afghanistan, and the Greek debt crisis, which had flared up again and was once more starting to affect U.S. markets. One day, on the way back from the Situation Room, I ran into Jay Carney, who'd succeeded Robert Gibbs as my press secretary. Jay was a former journalist who'd had a front-row seat for all sorts of historic moments. He'd covered the breakup of the Soviet Union as Time Magazine's Moscow correspondent and had been on Air Force One with President Bush on the morning of 9-11. Now he was telling me he'd just been part of his daily press briefing, fielding questions about whether my birth certificate was valid. It had been more than a month since Donald Trump had inserted himself into the national political dialogue. My advisors and I had assumed that, having milked it for all it was worth, the media would gradually tire of his obsession with my birth. And yet, like algae in a stagnant pond, the number of stories on his conspiratorial musings proliferated with each passing week. Cable shows ran long segments on Trump and his theories. Political reporters searched for fresh angles on the sociological significance of birtherism or its impact on my re-election campaign. Or, with barely acknowledged irony, what it said about the news business. A major point of discussion was the fact that the document we'd made available on the Internet in 2008 was a short-form birth certificate, which was the standard document issued by the Hawaii State Department of Health and could be used to obtain a passport, social security number, or driver's license. According to Trump and his fellow birthers, however, the short-form document proved nothing. Why hadn't I produced the original long-form version of my birth certificate, we were asked. Had information on the long-form been deliberately omitted from the short-form? Perhaps some clue that I was a Muslim. Had the long-form itself been doctored? What was Obama hiding? Finally, I decided I'd had enough. I called in White House counsel Bob Bauer and told him to go ahead and obtain the long-form birth certificate from its home in a bound volume, somewhere deep in the bowels of the Hawaii Vital Records Office. I then let David Pluff and Dan Pfeiffer know that I planned not just to release the document, but to say something publicly as well. 
They thought this was a bad idea, arguing that I'd just feed the story. And anyway, answering such ridiculous charges was beneath both me and the office of the president. That, I said, is exactly the point. On April 27th, I walked to the podium in the White House briefing room and greeted the press. I began by remarking on the fact that the national TV networks had all decided to break from the regularly scheduled programming to carry my remarks live, something they very rarely did. I observed that two weeks earlier, when the House Republicans and I had issued sharply contrasting budget proposals with profound implications for the nation, the news instead had been dominated by talk of my birth certificate. I noted that America faced enormous challenges and big decisions, that we should expect serious debate and sometimes fierce disagreements, because that was how our democracy was supposed to work, and I was certain that we had it in us to shape a better future together. But, I said, we're not going to be able to do that if we are distracted. We're not going to be able to do that if we spend time vilifying each other. We're not going to be able to do that if we just make stuff up and pretend that facts are not facts. We're not going to be able to solve our problems if we get distracted by sideshows and carnival barkers. I looked out at the assembled reporters. I know that there's going to be a segment of people for which, no matter what we put out, this issue will not be put to rest. But I'm speaking to the vast majority of the American people, as well as to the press. We do not have time for this kind of silliness. We've got better stuff to do. I've got better stuff to do. We've got big problems to solve, and I'm confident we can solve them. But we're going to have to focus on them, not on this. The room was quiet for a moment. I exited through the sliding doors that led back into the communications team's offices, where I encountered a group of junior members of our press shop who'd been watching my remarks on a TV monitor. They all looked to be in their 20s. Some had worked on my campaign. Others had only recently joined the administration, compelled by the idea of serving their country. I stopped and made eye contact with each one of them. We're better than this, I said. Remember that. Back in the Situation Room the next day, my team and I conducted a final review of our options for a possible Abbottabad operation to take place that weekend. Earlier in the week, I'd given McRaven approval to dispatch the SEAL team and helicopter assault force to Afghanistan, and the group was now in Jalalabad awaiting further orders. In order to make sure that the CIA had adequately pressure-tested its work, Leon and Mike Morell had asked the chief of the National Counterterrorism Center, Mike Leiter, to have a fresh team of analysts pore over the available intelligence on the compound and its residents to see how the agency's conclusions matched up with those of Langley. Leiter reported that his team had expressed a 40 to 60 percent degree of certainty that it was bin Laden, compared to the CIA team's assessment of 60 to 80 percent. A discussion ensued about what accounted for the difference. After a few minutes, I interrupted. I know we're trying to quantify these factors as best we can, I said. But ultimately, this is a 50-50 call. Let's move on. McRaven let us know the preparations for the raid were complete. He and his men were ready. Cartwright likewise confirmed that the drone missile option had been tested and could be activated at any time. With the options before us, I went around the table to get everyone's recommendations. Leon, John Brennan, and Mike Mullen favored the raid. Hillary said that for her, it was a 51-49 call, carefully ticking through the risks of a raid, especially the danger that we could rupture our relations with Pakistan 
or even find ourselves in a confrontation with the Pakistani military. She added, however, that considering this was our best lead on bin Laden in 10 years, she ultimately came down on the side of sending in the SEALs. Gates recommended against a raid, although he was open to considering the strike option. He raised the precedent of the April 1980 attempt to rescue the 53 American hostages held in Iran, known as Desert One, which had turned catastrophic after a U.S. military helicopter crashed in the desert, killing eight service members. It was a reminder, he said, that no matter how thorough the planning, operations like this could go badly wrong. Beyond the risk to the team, he worried that a failed mission might adversely impact the war in Afghanistan. Earlier that same day, I had announced Bob's planned retirement after four years as Secretary of Defense and my intention to nominate Leon as his successor. As I listened to Bob's sober, well-reasoned assessment, I was reminded of just how valuable he'd been to me. Joe also weighed in against the raid, arguing that given the enormous consequences of failure, I should defer any decision until the intelligence community was more certain that bin Laden was in the compound. As had been true in every major decision I'd made as president, I appreciated Joe's willingness to buck the prevailing mood and ask tough questions, often in the interest of giving me the space I needed for my own internal deliberations. I also knew that Joe, like Gates, had been in Washington during Desert One. I imagined he had strong memories of that time. The grieving families, the blow to American prestige, the recrimination, and the portrayal of Jimmy Carter as both reckless and weak-minded in authorizing the mission. Carter had never recovered politically. The unspoken suggestion was that I might not either. I told the group that they would have my decision by morning. If it was a go on the raid, I wanted to make sure that McRaven had the widest window possible to time the operation's launch. Tom Donnellan walked back to the Oval Office with me, his usual assortment of binders and notebooks tucked under his arm, and we quickly went down his checklist of potential action items for the weekend ahead. He and Brennan had prepared a playbook for every contingency, it seemed, and I could see the strain and nervousness on his face. Seven months into his tenure as my national security advisor, He'd been trying to exercise more and lay off the caffeine, but was apparently losing the battle. I'd come to marvel at Tom's capacity for hard work, the myriad details he kept track of, the volume of memos and cables and data he had to consume, the number of snafus he fixed and interagency tussles he resolved, all so that I could have both the information and the mental space that I needed in order to do my job. I'd asked Tom once where his drive and diligence came from, and he'd attributed it to his background. He'd grown up in an Irish working-class family, putting himself through law school and serving on various political campaigns to eventually become a heavy-hitting foreign policy expert. But despite his successes, he said, he still constantly felt the need to prove himself, terrified of failure. I'd laughed and said I could relate. Michelle and the girls were in rare form at dinner that night, teasing me relentlessly about what they called my ways. How I ate nuts a handful at a time, always shaking them in my fist first. How I always wore the same pair of ratty old sandals around the house. How I didn't like sweets. Your dad doesn't believe in delicious things. Too much joy. I hadn't told Michelle about my pending decision, not wanting to burden her with a secret until I knew for certain what I planned to do. And if I was more tense than usual, she didn't seem to notice. After tucking the girls in, I retired to the treaty room and turned on a basketball game my gaze following the moving ball as my mind ran through various scenarios one last time. 
The truth was, I'd narrowed the scope of the decision at least a couple of weeks earlier. Every meeting since had helped confirm my instincts. I wasn't in favor of a missile strike, even one as precise as Cartwright had devised. Feeling that the gamble wasn't worth it without the ability to confirm that bin Laden had been killed. I was also skeptical of giving the intelligence community more time, since the extra months we'd spent monitoring the compound had yielded virtually no new information. Beyond that, considering all the planning that had already taken place, I doubted we could hold our secret another month. The only remaining question was whether or not to order the raid. I was clear-eyed about the stakes involved. I knew we could mitigate the risks, but not eliminate them. I had supreme confidence in Bill McCraven and his SEALs. I knew that in the decades since Desert One, and the years since the Black Hawk Down incident in Somalia, America's special forces capability had been transformed. For all the strategic mistakes and ill-conceived policies that had plagued the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, they had produced a cadre of men who had carried out innumerable operations and learned to respond to almost every situation imaginable. Given their skill and professionalism, I trusted that the SEALs would find a safe way out of Abbottabad, even if some of our calculations and assumptions proved to be incorrect. I watched Kobe Bryant launch a turnaround jumper in the paint. The Lakers were playing the Hornets on their way to wrapping up the first round of the playoffs. The grandfather clock ticked from its spot against the treaty room wall. Over the past two years, I'd made countless decisions. On the faltering banks, on Chrysler, pirates, Afghanistan, healthcare. They had left me familiar with, if never casual about, the possibilities of failure. Everything I did or had done involved working the odds, quietly and often late at night, in the room where I now sat. I knew that I could not have come up with a better process to evaluate those odds or surrounded myself with a better mix of people to help me weigh them. I realized that through all the mistakes I'd made and the jams I'd had to extract us from, I had in many ways been training for exactly this moment. And while I couldn't guarantee the outcome of my decision, I was fully prepared and fully confident in making it. The next day, Friday, April 29th, was mostly travel. I was going to Tuscaloosa, Alabama to survey the damage from a devastating tornado outbreak and had an evening commencement address to deliver in Miami. In between, I was scheduled to take Michelle and the girls to Cape Canaveral to see the final launch of the space shuttle Endeavor before it was decommissioned. Ahead of leaving, I sent an email asking Tom, Dennis, Daly, and Brennan to meet me in the diplomatic reception room, and they found me just as the family exited to the South Lawn where Marine One awaited. With the roar of the helicopters in the background, along with the sound of Sasha and Malia engaging in some sisterly bickering, I officially gave the go-ahead for the Abbottabad mission, emphasizing that McRaven had full operational control and that it would be up to him to determine the exact timing of the raid. The operation was now largely out of my hands. I was glad to get out of Washington, if only for the day, to occupy my mind with other work and, as it turned out, to appreciate the work of others. Earlier in the week, a monstrous supercell storm had swept across the southeastern states, dropping tornadoes that killed more than 300 people, which made it the deadliest natural disaster since Hurricane Katrina. A single mile-and-a-half-wide tornado fueled by 190-mile-per-hour winds had ripped through Alabama, destroying thousands of homes and businesses. Landing in Tuscaloosa, I was met by the director of FEMA, a burly, low-key Floridian named Craig Fugate, 
and along with state and local officials, the two of us toured neighborhoods that looked like they'd been flattened by a megaton bomb. We visited a relief center to offer solace to families that had lost everything they owned. Despite the devastation, nearly every person I talked to, from the state's Republican governor to the mother comforting her toddler, praised the federal response, mentioning how quickly teams had been on the ground, how effectively they had worked with local officials, how every request, no matter how small, had been handled with care and precision. I wasn't surprised, for Fugate had been one of my best hires, a no-nonsense, no-ego, no-excuses public servant with decades of experience dealing with natural disasters. Still, it gave me satisfaction to see his efforts recognized, and I was once again reminded that so much of what really mattered in government came down to the daily, unheralded acts of people who weren't seeking attention, but simply knew what they were doing and did it with pride. In Cape Canaveral, we were disappointed to learn that NASA had been forced to scrub the space shuttle launch at the last minute due to problems with an auxiliary power unit. But our family still had a chance to talk to the astronauts and spend time with Janet Cavandi, the director of flight crew operations at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, who'd come to Florida for the launch. As a kid, I'd been fascinated by space exploration. And while president, I'd made it a priority to highlight the value of science and engineering whenever possible, including instituting an annual science fair at the White House at which students proudly showcased their robots, rockets, and solar-powered cars. I'd also encouraged NASA to innovate and prepare for a future mission to Mars, in part by collaborating with commercial ventures on low-orbit space travel. Now I watched Malia and Sasha grow wide-eyed as Cavandi emphasized all the people and the hours of diligent work that went into even a single launch, and as she described her own path from being a young girl entranced by the night sky over her family's cattle farm in rural Missouri to become an astronaut who'd flown on three space shuttle missions. My day ended at the graduation ceremony for students at Miami-Dade, which, with more than 170,000 students on eight campuses, was the country's largest college. Its president, Eduardo Padron, had attended the school in the 1960s as a young Cuban immigrant with rudimentary English and no other option for a higher education. After receiving his associate's degree there and later earning a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Florida, he turned down lucrative job offers in the private sector to return to Miami-Dade, where for the past 40 years he'd made it his mission to throw others the same lifeline the school had thrown him. He described the college as, quote, a dream factory for its students who primarily came from low-income, Latino, Black, and immigrant families, and were, in most cases, the first in their families to attend college. We don't give up on any student, he told me. And if we're doing our jobs, we don't let them give up on themselves. I couldn't help being inspired by the generosity of his vision. In my remarks to the graduates that evening, I spoke about the American idea what their accomplishments said about our individual determination to reach past the circumstances of our birth, as well as our collective capacity to overcome our differences to meet the challenges of our time. I recounted an early childhood memory of sitting on my grandfather's shoulders and waving a tiny American flag in a crowd gathered to greet the astronauts from one of the Apollo space missions after a successful splashdown in the waters off Hawaii. And now, more than 40 years later, I told the graduates, I just had a chance to watch my own daughters hear from a new generation of space explorers. It had caused me to reflect on all that America had achieved since my own childhood. It offered a case of life coming full circle, and proof, just as their diplomas were proof, 
just as my having been elected president was proof that the American idea endures. The students and their parents had cheered, many of them waving American flags of their own. I thought about the country I just described to them, a hopeful, generous, courageous America, an America that was open to everyone. At about the same age as the graduates were now, I'd seized on that idea and clung to it for dear life. For their sake, more than mine, I badly wanted it to be true. As energized and optimistic as I felt during the trip on Friday, I knew my Saturday night back in Washington, when Michelle and I were scheduled to attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner, promised to be decidedly less inspiring. Hosted by the White House Press Corps, and attended at least once by every president since Calvin Coolidge, the dinner had originally been designed to give journalists and those they covered a chance, for one evening, to set aside their often adversarial stance towards one another and have some fun. But over time, as the news and entertainment businesses had begun to blend, the annual gathering had evolved into Washington's version of the Met Gala, or the Oscars, with a performance from a comedian televised on cable, and with a couple thousand journalists, politicians, business tycoons, and administration officials, plus an assortment of Hollywood celebrities, packing themselves into an uncomfortable hotel ballroom to schmooze, be seen, and listen to the president deliver what amounted to a stand-up routine, roasting rivals and joking about the latest political news of the day. At a time when people across the country were still trying to figure out how to find a job, keep their homes, or pay their bills in the wake of a recession, my attendance at the black tie affair, with its clubbishness and red carpet glitz, had always felt politically awkward. But because I'd shown up the past two years, I knew I couldn't afford to raise any suspicions by skipping out of this year's dinner at the last minute, despite the knowledge that McRaven would soon join the SEAL team in Jalalabad and could likely launch the operation within hours. I'd have to do my best to act like everything was normal in front of a ballroom full of reporters. Fortunately, it turned out that the country's leading distraction had been invited to sit at the Washington Post table that night, and those of us aware of what was going on took odd comfort in knowing that once Donald Trump entered the room, it was all but guaranteed that the media would not be thinking about Pakistan. To some degree, the release of my long-form birth certificate and my scolding of the press in the White House briefing room had yielded the desired effect. Donald Trump had grudgingly acknowledged that he now believed I was born in Hawaii, while taking full credit for having forced me, on behalf of the American people, to certify my status. Still, the whole birther controversy remained on everybody's mind, as became clear that Saturday when I met with John Favreau and the team of writers who prepared my remarks, none of whom were aware of the operation about to take place. They'd come up with an inspired monologue, though I paused on a line that poked fun at the birthers by suggesting that Tim Pawlenty, the former Republican governor of Minnesota who was exploring a run for president, had been hiding the fact that his full name was actually Tim Bin Laden Palenti. I asked Favs to change Bin Laden to Hosni, suggesting that given Mubarak's recent turn in the news, it would be more current. I could tell he didn't see my edit as an improvement, but he didn't argue the point. At the end of the afternoon, I placed the last call to McRaven, who let me know that due to some foggy weather in Pakistan, his intention was to wait until Sunday night to commence the operation. He assured me that everything was in place and his team was ready. I told him that wasn't the main reason for my call. Tell everyone on the team how much I appreciate them, I said. Yes, sir. Bill, I said, not having the words at that moment to convey how I felt. I mean it. 
Tell them this. I will, Mr. President, he said. That night, Michelle and I motorcaded over to the Washington Hilton, took pictures with various VIPs, and sat on a dais for a couple of hours, making small talk while guests like Rupert Murdoch, Sean Penn, John Boehner, and Scarlett Johansson mingled over wine and overcooked steaks. I kept my face fixed in an accommodating smile as I quietly balanced on a mental high wire, my thoughts thousands of miles away. When it was my turn to speak, I stood up and started my routine. About halfway through, I turned my attention directly to Trump. Now, I know he's taken some flack lately, I said, but no one is happier. No one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? What really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? As the audience broke into laughter, I continued in this vein, noting his credentials and breadth of experience as host of Celebrity Apprentice and congratulating him for how he handled the fact that, at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. These are the kinds of decisions that would keep me up at night. Well handled, sir. Well handled. The audience howled as Trump sat in silence, cracking a tepid smile. I couldn't begin to guess what went through his mind during the few minutes I spent publicly ribbing him. What I knew was that he was a spectacle. And in the United States of America in 2011, that was a form of power. Trump trafficked in a currency that, however shallow, seemed to gain more purchase with each passing day. The same reporters who laughed at my jokes would continue to give him airtime. Their publishers would buy to have him sit at their tables. Far from being ostracized for the conspiracies he'd peddled, he, in fact, had never been bigger. I was up early the next morning before the White House operator's regular wake-up call. We'd taken the unusual step of canceling the public tours of the West Wing for the day, presuming there were important meetings ahead. I decided to get in a quick nine holes of golf with Marvin, as I often did on quiet Sundays, partly to avoid telegraphing anything else being out of the ordinary, and partly to get outside rather than sit checking my watch in the treaty room, waiting for darkness to fall in Pakistan. It was a cool, windless day, and I hacked around the course, losing three or four balls in the woods. Returning to the White House, I checked in with Tom. He and the rest of the team were already in the situation room, making sure we were set to respond to whatever might happen. Rather than distract them with my presence, I asked that he notify me once the helicopters carrying the SEAL team were in the air. I sat in the Oval, trying to read through some papers, but got nowhere, my eyes running over the same lines again and again. I finally called in Reggie, Marvin, and Pete Souza, all of whom by this time had been read into what was about to transpire, and the four of us sat down in the Oval Dining Room to play spades. At 2 p.m. Eastern Time, two Black Hawk helicopters that had been modified for stealth lifted off from Jalalabad Airfield, carrying 23 members of the SEAL team along with a Pakistani-American CIA translator and a military dog named Cairo, the commencement of what was officially known as Operation Neptune's Spear. It would take them 90 minutes to reach Abbottabad. I left the dining room and went back to the Situation Room, which had effectively been converted into a war room. Leon was on a video conference line from Langley, relaying information from McRaven, who was holed up in Jalalabad and in continuous direct communication with his SEALs. The atmosphere was predictably tense, with Joe, Bill Daly, and most of my national security team, including Tom, 
Hillary, Dennis, Gates, Mullen, and Blinken, already seated at the conference table. I was given updates on plans for notifying Pakistan and other countries, and our diplomatic strategies in the event of either success or failure. If bin Laden was killed in the raid, preparations had been made for a traditional Islamic burial to take place at sea, avoiding the creation of a pilgrimage site for jihadists. After a time, I could tell that the team was simply covering old ground for my benefit. Worried that I was sidetracking them, I went back upstairs until shortly before 3.30, when Leon announced that the Blackhawks were approaching the compound. The team had planned for us to follow the operation indirectly through Leon, since Tom was concerned about the optics of me communicating directly with McRaven, which might leave the impression that I was micromanaging the operation, a bad practice generally, and a political problem if the mission failed. On my way back into the Situation Room, though, I had noticed that a live aerial view of the compound, as well as McRaven's voice, was being transmitted to a video monitor in a smaller conference room across the hall. As the helicopters drew close to the target, I stood up from my seat. I need to watch this, I said, before heading to the other room. There I found a blue-uniformed Air Force Brigadier General, Brad Webb, seated in front of his computer at a small table. He tried to offer me a seat. Sit down, I said, putting a hand on his shoulder and finding a spot in a side chair. Webb let McRaven and Leon know I had changed venues and was watching the feed. Soon the entire team had squeezed into the room. This was the first and only time as president that I'd watched a military operation unfold in real time, with ghostly images moving across the screen. We'd been following the action for barely a minute when one of the Blackhawks lurched slightly on descent, and before I could grasp exactly what was happening, McRaven informed us that the helicopter had momentarily lost lift and then clipped the side of one of the compound's walls. For an instant, I felt an electric kind of fear. A disaster reel played in my head a chopper crashing, the seals scrambling to get out before the machine caught fire, a neighborhood of people emerging from their homes to see what happened as the Pakistani military rushed to the scene. McRaven's voice interrupted my nightmare. It'll be fine, he said, as though remarking on a car fender bumping into a shopping cart at the mall. The pilot's the best we have, and he'll bring it down safely. And that's exactly what happened. I'd later learned that the Black Hawk had been caught in a vortex caused by higher-than-anticipated temperatures and the rotor's downwash of air getting trapped inside the compound's high walls, forcing the pilot and the SEALs on board to improvise both the landing and their exit. In fact, the pilot had purposely set the tail of the chopper on the wall to avoid a more perilous crash. But all I saw in the moment were grainy figures on the ground, rapidly moving into position and entering the main house. For twenty excruciating minutes, even McRaven had a limited view of what was taking place. Or perhaps he was staying silent on the details of the room-to-room -room search his team was conducting. Then, with a suddenness I didn't expect, we heard McRaven's and Leon's voices, almost simultaneously, utter the words we'd been waiting to hear. The culmination of months of planning and years of intelligence gathering. Geronimo ID'd. Geronimo, E-K-I-A. Enemy killed in action. Osama bin Laden, codenamed Geronimo for the purposes of the mission, the man responsible for the worst terrorist attack in American history, the man who had directed the murder of thousands of people and set in motion a tumultuous period of world history, had been brought to justice by a team of American Navy SEALs. Inside the conference room, there were audible gasps.
My eyes remained glued to the video feed. We got him, I said softly. Nobody budged from their seats for another 20 minutes while the SEAL team finished its business, bagging bin Laden's body, securing the three women and nine children present and questioning them in one corner of the compound, collecting computers, files, and other material of potential intelligence value, and attaching explosives to the damaged Blackhawk, which would then be destroyed, replaced by a rescue Chinook that had been hovering a short distance away. As the helicopters took off, Joe placed a hand on my shoulder and squeezed. Congratulations, boss, he said. I stood up and nodded. Dennis gave me a fist bump. I shook hands with others on the team. But with the helicopters still rotoring through Pakistani airspace, the mood remained quiet. It wasn't until around 6 p.m., when the choppers had landed safely in Jalalabad, that I finally felt some of the tension start to drain out of me. Over a video teleconference line a short while later, McRaven explained that he was looking at the body as we spoke, and that in his judgment it was definitely Bin Laden. The CIA's facial recognition software would soon indicate the same. To further confirm, McRaven had a six-foot-two member of his team lie next to the body to compare his height to Bin Laden's purported six-foot-four frame. Seriously, Bill, I teased him. All that planning, and you couldn't bring a tape measure. It was the first lighthearted thing I'd said all day. But the laughter didn't last long, as photographs of Bin Laden's corpse were soon passed around the conference table. I glanced at them briefly. It was him. Despite the evidence, Leon and McRaven said that we couldn't be fully certain until the DNA results came back, which would take another day or two. We discussed the possibility of holding off on an official announcement, but reports of a helicopter crash in Abbottabad were already starting to pop up on the Internet. Mike Mullen had put in a call to Pakistan's army chief, General Ashfaq Parvez Kayani, and while the conversation had been polite, Kayani had requested that we come clean on the raid and its target as quickly as possible in order to help his people manage the reaction of the Pakistani public. Knowing there was no way to hold the news for another 24 hours, I went upstairs with Ben to quickly dictate my thoughts on what I would say to the nation later that evening. For the next several hours, the West Wing ran at full throttle. While diplomats began to contact foreign governments and our communications team got ready to brief the press, I placed calls to George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and told them the news, making a point to acknowledge with Bush that the mission was the culmination of a long, hard process begun under his presidency. Though it was the middle of the night across the Atlantic, I contacted David Cameron as well to recognize the stalwart support our closest ally had provided from the very beginning of the Afghan war. I expected my most difficult call to be with Pakistan's beleaguered president, Asif Ali Zardari, who would surely face a backlash at home over our violation of Pakistani sovereignty. When I reached him, however, he expressed congratulations and support. Whatever the fallout, he said, it's very good news. He showed genuine emotion, recalling how his wife, Benazir Bhutto, had been killed by extremists with reported ties to al-Qaeda. Meanwhile, I hadn't seen Michelle all day. I'd let her know earlier what would be happening, and rather than sit anxiously at the White House, waiting for news, she'd left Malia and Sasha in their grandmother's care and gone out to dinner with friends. I had just finished shaving and putting on a suit and tie when she walked through the door. So, she said. I gave a thumbs up, and she smiled, pulling me into a hug. That's amazing, babe, she said. Really? How do you feel? 
Right now, just relieved, I said. But check back with me in a couple hours. Back in the West Wing, I sat with Ben to put the finishing touches on my remarks. I'd given him a few broad themes. I wanted to recall the shared anguish of 9-11, I said, and the unity we'd all felt in the days that immediately followed. I wanted to salute not just those involved in this mission, but everyone in our military and intelligence communities who continued to sacrifice so much to keep us safe. I wanted to reiterate that our fight was with Al-Qaeda and not Islam. And I wanted to close by reminding the world and ourselves that America does what it sets out to do. That as a nation, we were still capable of achieving big things. As usual, Ben had taken my straight thoughts and crafted a fine speech in less than two hours. I knew that this one mattered to him more than most. Since the experience of watching the Twin Towers collapse, it changed the trajectory of his life propelling him to Washington with a burning drive to make a difference. It brought back my own memories of that day, Michelle having taken Malia to her first day of preschool, me standing outside the state of Illinois building in downtown Chicago, feeling overwhelmed and uncertain after assuring Michelle over the phone that she and the girls would be okay, three-month-old Sasha sleeping on my chest later that night as I sat in the dark watching the news reports and trying to contact friends in New York. No less than Ben's, my own course in life had been fundamentally altered by that day, in ways that at the time I could not possibly have predicted, setting off a chain of events that would somehow lead to this moment. After scanning the speech one last time, I stood up and clapped Ben on the back. Good job, brother, I said. He nodded, a jumble of emotions passing across his face before he rushed out the door to get the final edits of my remarks entered into the teleprompter. It was now almost 11.30 p.m. The major networks had already reported bin Laden's death and were waiting to take my address live. Celebratory crowds had gathered outside the White House gates, thousands of people filling the streets. As I stepped into the cool night air and started walking down the colonnade toward the East Room, where I'd give my remarks, I could hear the raucous, rhythmic chants of USA, 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 coming from Pennsylvania Avenue a sound that echoed far and wide and would continue deep into the night. Even after the jubilation quieted down, all of us in the White House could feel a palpable shift in the country's mood in the days immediately following the Abbottabad raid. For the first and only time in my presidency, we didn't have to sell what we'd done. We didn't have to fend off Republican attacks or answer accusations from key constituencies that we'd compromise some core principle. No issues with implementation or unforeseen consequences sprang up. I still had decisions to make, including whether to release photos of bin Laden's dead body. My answer was no. We didn't need to spike the football or hoist a ghoulish trophy, I told my staff. And I didn't want the image of bin Laden shot in the head to become a rallying point for extremists. We still had to patch up relations with Pakistan. While the documents and computer files seized from the compound proved to be a treasure trove of intelligence, confirming that bin Laden had continued to play a central role in planning attacks against the United States, as well as the enormous pressure we'd managed to put on his network through our targeting of its leaders. None of us believed that the threat from al-Qaeda was over. What was beyond dispute, though, was that we dealt the organization a decisive blow, moving it a step closer to strategic defeat. Even our harshest critics had to acknowledge that the operation had been an unequivocal success. As for the American people, the Abbottabad raid offered a catharsis of sorts. 
In Afghanistan and Iraq, they'd seen our troops wage almost a decade of war, with outcomes they knew to be ambiguous at best. They'd expected that violent extremism was here to stay in one form or another, and that there'd be no conclusive battle or formal surrender. As a result, the public instinctively seemed to seize on bin Laden's death as the closest we'd ever likely get to a V-Day. And at a time of economic hardship and partisan rancor, people took some satisfaction in seeing their government deliver a victory. Meanwhile, the thousands of families who'd lost loved ones on 9-11 understood what we'd done in more personal terms. The day after the operation, my daily batch of ten constituent letters contained a printed email from a young woman named Peyton Wall, who'd been four years old at the time of the attacks and was now 14. She explained that her dad had been in one of the Twin Towers and had called to speak to her before it collapsed. All her life, she wrote, she'd been haunted by the memory of her father's voice, along with the image of her mother weeping into the phone. Although nothing could change the fact of his absence, she wanted me and all those who'd been involved in the raid to know how much it meant to her and her family that America hadn't forgotten him. Sitting alone in the treaty room, I reread that email a couple of times. My eyes clouded with emotion. I thought about my daughters and how profoundly the loss of their mother or father would hurt them. I thought about young people who'd signed up for the armed forces after 9-11, intent on serving the nation no matter the sacrifice. And I thought about the parents of those wounded or killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Gold Star moms Michelle and I had comforted, the fathers who'd shown me pictures of their departed sons. I felt an overwhelming pride in those who'd been part of the mission, from the SEALs themselves to the CIA analysts who'd pieced together the trail to Abbottabad, to the diplomats who'd prepared to manage the fallout, to the Pakistani-American translator who'd stood outside the compound shooing away curious neighbors as the raid took place. They'd all worked together seamlessly and selflessly, without regard to credit or turf or political preferences, to achieve a shared goal. With these thoughts came another. Was that unity of effort, that sense of common purpose, possible only when the goal involved killing a terrorist? The question nagged at me. For all the pride and satisfaction I took in the success of our mission in Abbottabad, the truth was that I hadn't felt the same exuberance as I had on the night the health care bill passed. I found myself imagining what America might look like if we could rally the country so that our government brought the same level of expertise and determination to educating our children or housing the homeless as it had to getting bin Laden. If we could apply the same persistence and resources to reducing poverty or curbing greenhouse gases or making sure every family had access to decent daycare. I knew that even my own staff would dismiss these notions as utopian. And the fact that this was the case, the fact that we could no longer imagine uniting the country around anything other than thwarting attacks and defeating external enemies, I took as a measure of how far my presidency still fell short of what I wanted it to be and how much work I had left to do. I set such musings aside for the rest of that week, allowing myself a chance to savor the moment. Bob Gates would attend his last cabinet meeting and get a rousing ovation, appearing for a moment genuinely moved. I spent time with John Brennan, who had been involved one way or another in the hunt for bin Laden for close to 15 years. Bill McRaven stopped by the Oval Office, and along with my heartfelt thanks for his extraordinary leadership, I presented him with a tape measure I'd mounted on a plaque. And on May 5, 2011, 
just four days after the operation. I traveled to New York City and had lunch with the firefighters of Engine Company 54, Ladder 4, Battalion 9, which had lost all 15 members who'd been on duty the morning of the attack and participated in a wreath-laying ceremony at Ground Zero. Some of the first responders who'd rushed into the burning towers served in the honor guard that day, and I had a chance to meet with the 9-11 families in attendance, including Peyton Wall, who got a big hug from me and promptly asked if I could arrange for her to meet Justin Bieber. I told her I was pretty sure I could make that happen. The next day, I flew to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where McRaven introduced me and Joe to the SEAL team and pilots involved in the Abbottabad raid. A small-scale model of the compound had been set up at the front of the room, and as the commanding officer methodically walked us through the operation, I studied the 30 or so elite military members seated before me in folding chairs. Some of them looked the part, strapping young men whose muscles bulged through their uniforms. But I was struck by how many of them could have passed for accountants or high school principals, guys in their early 40s with graying hair and understated demeanors. They were a testament to the role that skill and judgment, born of experience, played in successfully navigating the most dangerous missions. Experience, the commander emphasized, that had also cost the lives of many of their colleagues. When the briefing was over, I shook hands with everyone in the room and presented the team with the Presidential Unit Citation, the highest award a military unit could receive. In return, the men surprised me with a gift, an American flag they had taken with them to Abbottabad now in a frame with their signatures on the back. At no point during my visit did anyone mention who had fired the shot that killed bin Laden. And I never asked. On the flight back, Tom gave me an update on Libya. Bill Daly and I reviewed my schedule for the month ahead, and I caught up on some paperwork. By 6.30 p.m., we landed at Andrews Air Force Base, and I boarded Marine One for the short ride back to the White House. I was in a quiet mood as I gazed out at the rolling Maryland landscape and the tidy neighborhoods below, and then the Potomac glistening beneath the fading sun. The helicopter began its gentle turn, due north across the mall. The Washington Monument suddenly materialized on one side, seeming almost close enough to touch. On the other side, I could see the seated figure of Lincoln, shrouded in shadow behind the memorial's curved marble columns. Marine One began to shudder a bit, in a way that was now familiar to me, signaling the final descent as it approached the South Lawn. And I looked down at the street below, still thick with rush hour traffic. Fellow commuters, I thought, anxious to get home. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of A Promised Land by Barack Obama. This program was produced by Dan Zitt and Scott Cresswell. Director, Dan Zitt. Edited by Chris Benelli. This audiobook was recorded at TPS Studios in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Engineer, Philip DeRosa. Text copyright 2020 by Barack Obama. Production copyright 2020 by Penguin Random House, LLC. All rights reserved.